so go up to Nantucket, find the man who can suck it. You better do it now before you kick the bucket. You better do it now before you kick the bucket. You better do it now before you kick the bucket. That is the brilliant Professor Mike Steinel. I wish I were Mike Steinel. Happy birthday to Nadine, who turns 100 today. Happy birthday to Nadine. We love you. Welcome to the mop-up for October 13th, 2022. I'm David Feldman, coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature, I'm going to start saying the temperature, as opposed to the temperature, the temperature is 70 degrees and partly cloudy. Well, the January 6th committee has voted to subpoena Donald Trump. That's according to NBC News. The January 6th committee has voted to subpoena Donald Trump and force him to testify. Donald Trump is not expected to comply with the subpoena. We'll be keeping an eye on this throughout the show. It is Thursday evening at 5.04, and obviously we'll be talking about today's hearings throughout the show. The January 6th committee held what is probably their last hearing, perhaps, before the midterms, with every other member of Congress back in their home district running for re-election. The midterms are less than a month away. If Trump is to testify before the January 6th committee, they better do it quickly, because if they lose the House next month and then try to hold these hearings during a lame duck session, they try to get Trump to testify, it could get really ugly. So we'll be watching this. The question is, is it a good idea? Is it a good idea to have Donald Trump testify before the January 6th committee? Is it a good idea to have him testify before the midterms? He will fight it, or maybe he won't. Who knows, right? Meanwhile, during their 10th televised proceeding, the committee today presented what? After 1,500 interviews and after poring over countless documents, including texts from Trump's Secret Service detail, they presented what uh, seems to be a closing argument that Donald Trump, after losing the 2020 presidential election, hatched a plan to prevent Congress from certifying the results on January 6th. He hatched a plan to encourage a mob of his own supporters to lay siege on the Capitol. The committee shared testimony from countless witnesses, including the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, the very delusional Ginny Thomas. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn will be joining us later on in the show to go over the highlights from today's proceedings, and we'll obviously be discussing them throughout the show. I'll have more on the hearings in a few minutes. But first, let's start with some good news, shall we? Let's let's start with some good news. Donald Trump. We'll get to him in, in a second, right? We'll get to him in a second. But first, some good news. NASA says its DART spacecraft succeeded in shifting the orbit of an asteroid millions of miles away. America, this is good news. America now has the capability to redirect killer asteroids from hitting the planet Earth. 
This is a milestone in planetary defense. We don't have to worry about space rocks destroying Earth. We can do it. We can do it ourselves. We don't need space rocks. Now, if you're a regular listener to this show, and you should be, our guest on Monday's program, thanks to the great Peter B. Collins, was Apollo 9 astronaut Rusty Schweikert. You should go back and watch that. We posted the entire interview. It's 90 minutes of pure scientific joy. So it's on our YouTube channel. Or you can watch Monday's full show or listen to Monday's full show. Rusty Schweikert was instrumental in launching the DART mission. He explains earlier this week how NASA shifted the orbit of space rock dimorphous, and then he outlines the geopolitical implications for America now that it possesses the tools to save our planet. Go listen to my interview to Peter B. Collins' conversation with Rusty Schweikert. He founded the B612 Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to defending Earth from asteroid impacts. And uh, so this is exciting stuff. Go watch Monday's show where physicist Marianne Cummings, Professor Marianne Cummings, talks with Rusty Schweikert about defending the Earth from asteroid impacts. You will not get a more beautiful explanation uh, on how this all works and, and how they succeeded in uh, giving us the capability to defend ourselves from killer space rocks than on this uh, episode of The David Feldman Show from Monday. The brilliant Peter B. Collins, the brilliant Professor Marianne Cummings, and the inadequate David Feldman talk to Rusty Schweikert. Here is the head of NASA yesterday making the big announcement. This is great news. Today, NASA confirms that DART successfully changed the targeted asteroid's trajectory. Now, how do we know that? Well, prior to DART's impact, it took Dimorphos 11 hours and 55 minutes to orbit its larger parent asteroid, Didymos. Since DART's impact, astronomers have been using telescopes on Earth to measure how much that time has changed. And now the team has confirmed that the spacecraft's impact altered Dimorphos orbit around Didymos by 32 minutes and therefore successfully moved its trajectory. Where have I seen that guy before? I have seen the head of NASA before talking about saving the planet. Where have I, where have I, oh yeah. And the wind and the waves obeyed him. Now, Lord, in the name of Jesus, we come against this Hurricane Gloria and we command those wind storms to be still in the name of Jesus. And we command that that storm would continue to go farther to the north and the east and go harmlessly out into the Atlantic Ocean without any damage to life and property in the name of Jesus. In his name, we forbid you to come into this area. In Jesus', Jesus name. name. 
Thank you. Amen. Thank you. And amen. That's one way to do it. Uh, you don't need NASA. You just need, I guess that was Pat Robertson, not the same guy. A jury in Connecticut awarded the families who lost loved ones in the Sandy Hook shooting. They were awarded $1 billion in damages after Alex Jones defaulted in a defamation lawsuit in which they claim he called them crisis actors who were part of some massive conspiracy to fake a school shooting in order to drum up support for gun control. Jones's comments on Infowars led to death and rape threats. Here is Alex Jones reacting live during his show to the $1 billion verdict. They want to scare everybody away from freedom and scare us away from questioning Uvalde and what really happened there or, or Parkland or any other event. And guess what? We're not scared and we're not going away and we're not going to stop. And literally for hundreds of thousands of dollars, I can keep them in court for years. I can appeal this stuff. We can stand up against this travesty, against the billions of dollars they want. It's a joke. So please go to InfoWarsStore.com and get Vitamin Mineral Fusion, get X3, get all the great products that are there that keep us on air at InfoWarsStore.com. Yeah, Vitamin Mineral Fusion, I take it all the time and I need to reorder because uh, I want Alex Jones' acid reflux. And you can only get his type of acid reflux by going to the InfoWars store and ordering Vitamin Mineral Fusion. See, I want what he's, he's got going on, where you try to sleep at night and the mineral, the Vitamin Mineral Fusion starts kicking up in your stomach and then it shoots the meal that you had right before you went to bed. It just shoots it right into your esophagus and fries your vocal cords until you sound like you're talking through a voice box. I want that sound. I want that acid reflux, the type of acid reflux, the Alex Jones acid reflux that you can only get by ordering his vitamin mineral fusion. Now, here, watch. Here's Alex getting a little acid reflux in the middle of the show, and it helps fry his vocal cords and gives him that timber, that distinctive timber that has made him so beloved and get Vitamin Mineral Fusion, get X3, get all the great products that are there. You see him kicking down that, 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 that acid reflux? Watch this again. This is what I want. I want his voice. And you can only get this type of voice through acid reflux that fries your vocal cords. And you get that by ordering Vitamin Mineral Fusion from the InfoWars store, watch. And get Vitamin Mineral Fusion, get X3, get all the great products that are there. <laughs> yes, what a great man. One billion dollars. Uh, that's his secret. That's how he sounds so mellifluous. It's the acid reflux that you can only get by ordering Vitamin Mineral Fusion from the InfoWars store. Well, J.D. Vance, speaking of acid reflux, is running for Senate in Ohio. He is a Yale graduate. He wrote Hillbilly Elegy. He's running against Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan. It's neck and neck. 
And I don't love Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan, but I certainly don't like J.D. Vance. And they held their first debate. J.D. was asked about same-sex marriage. Now, the outgoing Republican senator, Rob Portman, it's a Republican seat right now. We think Tim Ryan might be able to flip it blue because J.D. Vance is, well, here. He was asked about uh, outgoing Republican Senator Rob Portman's bill that would legalize same-sex marriage. That's right. A Republican has introduced a bill legalizing same-sex marriage because Rob Portman is a Republican with a gay son. And that's how it works. If his gay son needed an abortion, then Rob Portman would be pro-choice because that's how Republicans roll. They couldn't care less unless... It affects them. Here's the question in the debate. Senator Rob Portman is co-sponsoring the Marriage Equality Act that will codify same-sex marriage. Are you ready to support that bill? Why or why not? Mr. Vance, we start with you. Yeah, so I've come out against this bill, and I don't think it's actually about gay marriage. It's not about same-sex marriage or same-sex equality. Look, gay marriage is the law of the land in this country, and I'm not trying to do anything to change that. Right, that's what Brett Kavanaugh said during his uh, hearings about Roe v. Wade. That's what Amy Coney Barrett said during her hearings when she was asked about Roe v. Wade. It's the law of the land. But if you look at the specific bill that's being proposed, it wouldn't just codify something that's already enacted in law. It would actually make it easier for both the government and a lot of private parties to sue religious organizations if those religious organizations don't comply with the dictates of the federal government. I'm a, I'm a devout Christian, and I think it's important to protect religious liberty in this country. We remember about 10 years ago when the, when the Obama administration, I'm sure supported by Tim Ryan, went after a group of Catholic nuns because that Catholic nunnery wanted to run its organization the way that, that confirmed with its religious beliefs. That should be okay in this country. And the problem with this legislation is it's going to unleash a wave of litigation against our churches, our religious organizations, our mosques, our synagogues, everything. That's why I don't think it's a great idea. Thank you. That went really well if you're, a, you know, an idiot who wants to vote for J.D. Uh, Vance. But then here was Congressman Ryan's response. Vance, Congressman Ryan, same question. Yeah, I voted for that in the House of Representatives. I will support uh, codifying that into the Senate. But only, only J.D. Vance can say <laughs> that, that the bill that codifies same-sex marriage is not about same-sex marriage. Only J.D. You can, you're the only one, J.D. Vance, that can, can actually say that. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and then it got a little worse for J.D. Vance. The Democratic congressman... Uh, uh, started talking about the subject of drugs. And this got embarrassing because J.D.'s hillbilly elegy was all about the meth epidemic. And it turns out J.D. Vance used his reputation to get rich off treating drug addiction without actually treating the addiction. He just treated himself to the money that comes with treating addiction. What I haven't done? I didn't start a fake nonprofit pretending like I was going to help people with addiction like J.D. Vance did. Literally started a nonprofit and didn't spend one nickel on anybody. In fact, he brought in somebody from Purdue Pharma to be the spokesperson for the nonprofit. The same 
drug company, Big Pharma, the big drug company that had all the pill mills going, got everybody addicted. One million people died, J.D. One million people died. And you started a nonprofit to try to take advantage of people in Ohio. And you know what? All you did with it was launch your political career. His campaign manager worked for that nonprofit. He ran a poll to check his own standing from that nonprofit. I'm not going to take a backseat to you or anybody else on fentanyl drugs or immigration or anything else. Somebody that. That would be to Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan uh, mopping the floor with what was left of J.D. Vance's integrity. And then it got even worse. I'm for Ohio. I don't kiss anyone's ass like him. Ohio needs an ass kicker, not an ass kisser. OK. Well, that that seems unfair. Uh, J.D. Vance opposes same sex marriage, so. He's kissing someone's ass? I hope it's not a man's ass. Wait, I'm being told, yes. J.D., the man who, uh, who is opposed to same-sex marriage apparently likes to kiss other men's asses. Like just a few weeks ago in, in Youngstown, on the stage, uh, Donald Trump said to J.D. Vance, all you do is kiss my ass to get my support. He said that. That's bad because that means J.D. Vance is going to do whatever he wants. Mitch McConnell's given him 40 million. He's going to do what he wants. And Peter Thiel gave him a 15 million. He's going to do what he wants. And here's the thing that's most troubling about this lack of courage is that after Trump took J.D. Vance's dignity from him on the stage in Youngstown, J.D. Vance got back up on stage and said, start shaking his hand, take a picture saying, hey, aren't we having a great time here tonight? I don't know anybody I grew up with, I don't know anybody I went to high school with that would allow somebody to take their dignity like that and then get back up on stage. We need leaders who have courage to take on their own party. And I've proven that. And he was called an ass kisser by the former president. Well, Tim Ryan sounds like Joe from Scranton. You have to come to office hours to get that reference, but he sounds just like Joe from Scranton. Well, in these midterms, everything comes down, unfortunately, to Donald Trump. He will not go away. All J.D. Vance did was try to accuse Congressman Ryan of being soft on crime, right? That's the dance. Republicans are hard on crime. Democrats soft on crime. Ryan is a Democrat, so he must be soft on crime, right? But Tim Ryan, Democrat, refused to play the game. And quite frankly, I think he came across as a bit of a bully. On January 6th, we had 140 cops, United States Capitol Police, get injured during the insurrection when they tried to overthrow the government. Beat them upside the head with lead pipes, spray them with pepper spray. The one video we saw, the cop got jammed into the, the door, right? J.D. Vance raised money for the legal defense fund of the insurrectionists. This is the kind of extremism, J.D., that we wholly reject. You have video posts. Don't even try to deny it. We got, we, got your, we got your Twitter posts and everything else. Everybody's seen it. He said, help these guys with their legal defense fund. Now, you, can you imagine one guy saying out of one side of his mouth he's pro-cop, and out of the other side of his mouth he's raising money for the insurrectionists who are beating up the Capitol Police? The one guy he tried to raise money for got four years in prison. This is ridiculous. I'm not taking a backseat to you. I brought $500 million back to fund police in Ohio. Well, now that is a master's class in debating Republicans.
It really is. That's Congressman Mill. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, that is Congressman Ryan. And we don't agree with him on everything, but we would like to flip that seat blue. And that's a pretty good job of making a fool out of a fool and not holding back. And all anybody wants to talk about is January 6th. You know, Donald Trump had a bad day. People have bad days. Well, if you stay at a Trump hotel and you pay enough money, Donald Trump, this is true, will personally come to your daughter's wedding and give her a toast. And the great thing about Donald Trump toasting your daughter's wedding is he only talks about himself. He talks about how great his crowds are, how great a president he was. Here is Donald Trump over the weekend delivering a wedding toast at a young Jewish couple's wedding at one of Trump's overpriced bedbug-riddled hotels. Now, anybody can talk about the bride and the groom, but Trump, he goes the extra step. And the crowd was massive and everybody was happy. And I said, I have to go. No, no, no. You. I just want to say it's been an honor to be your president. And so many of my friends are in this room and they happen to be Jewish. And they said tonight that no president has done more for Israel than I have. And if that weren't true, this man would come down on me, I would have. Right. He would come down on you because the implication being that uh, Jews are powerful and they pull the strings. little veiled anti-Semitism, but the Shortman family had no idea that they were victims of anti-Semitism because they're Trump supporters and they're stupid. Now, I actually think that wedding took place inside Mar-a-Lago because all the wedding guests got to go home with autographed copies of our nuclear launch codes. So I hope they have a long and happy marriage, the Shortmans, just like Ginny Thomas and Clarence Thomas. They do everything together. Well, not quite everything. Uh, Ginny uh, testified before the January 6th committee because apparently, without Clarence knowing this, she was working with John Eastman, who was one of Clarence's former clerks. She was working with John Eastman behind Clarence's back to overthrow the results of the 2020 presidential election. She kept Clarence out of the loop, right? He would never allow that. A sitting Supreme Court justice, he has too much integrity to allow his wife to go off the rails and try to overthrow a presidential election. Apparently, Ginny Thomas sent texts to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows on how to stop the certification. I mean, she might be going to prison. And Clarence Thomas, he's starting to anticipate the loneliness of not having his soulmate, Ginny, around to satisfy his every sexual need. Here he is this week flirting with Justice Alina Kagan during a Supreme Court hearing on a copyright case involving the works of Andy Warhol and Prince, right? Here he is, Judge Clarence Thomas, going all long dong silver on Justice Kagan. Let's say that um, I'm both a Prince fan, which I was in the 80s, and um, 
no longer? <laughs> well. <laughs> so. Uh, only on Thursday night. <laughs> Your wife is about to go to prison, Clarence. Jenny's about to go to prison, and only on Thursday night, Selena. Yeah, Thursday night is when Ginny Thomas meets with her defense attorney. So come on over, Elena, and I'll teach you the butter churn and the worm, all my favorite dances from the uh, 80s. Uh, Clarence loves Prince, and apparently his favorite Prince song, Purple Vein. If you're just joining us, I think that might have been a, I think that was a Warren Thomas joke, actually. I just realized that the great comedian Warren Thomas, I think that was actually Warren's joke. If you're just joining us, the January 6th committee has voted to subpoena Donald Trump. The 10th hearings kicked off this afternoon at 1 p.m. Congresswoman Liz Cheney, the Republican co-chair of the committee, accused Trump of obstruction and not only that, witness tampering. As the chairman mentioned, we've received new and voluminous documentation from the Secret Service, which we continue to analyze. We've received new witness testimony, including about efforts to obstruct our investigation and conceal key facts. Witness tampering, witness tampering. They've talked about this throughout the hearings that Trump was talking to witnesses and telling them not to be a rat. The committee cannot prosecute, obviously, but they can make a criminal referral to the Justice Department. And I suspect, and what do I know, I suspect they will make a criminal referral regarding witness tampering. If there's one thing you can prosecute Donald Trump on, it's obstruction of justice, witness tampering. Even part two of the Mueller report said that. Mueller laid out a prosecutorial plan in part two of the Mueller report on how to convict Donald Trump of obstruction of justice. But the attorney general at the time, Mr. Barr, wasn't interested. Liz Cheney then went on to say that the committee, the January 6th committee, has gotten to the bottom of January 6th and knows who exactly is responsible for the insurrection. The vast weight of evidence presented so far has shown us that the central cause of January 6th was one man, Donald Trump, whom many others followed. None of this would have happened without him. He was personally and substantially involved in all of it. That's Liz Cheney today, who then went on to say that Donald Trump knew he was going to lose and that he hatched a plan weeks, if not months, in advance. Today, we will focus on President Trump's state of mind, his intent, his motivations, and how he spurred others to do his bidding. And how another January 6th could happen again if we do not take necessary action to prevent it. It would be nice if we took the necessary action to prevent another illegal invasion of Iraq. Uh, we could do that by marching Liz Cheney's father before the International Criminal Court. But I digress. Please continue. President Trump had a premeditated plan to declare that the election was fraudulent and stolen before Election Day. OK, you keep saying that you need to back it up and back it up the committee did today. This was pretty stunning. Today, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren played an audio clip 
that pretty much seals the case shut. It makes you wonder, why aren't all these people behind bars? And just a few days before the election, Steve Bannon, a former Trump chief White House strategist and outside advisor to President Trump, spoke to a group of his associates from China and said this. And what Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. But that doesn't mean he's the winner. He's just going to say he's the winner. The Democrats, more of our people vote early that count. Theirs voted mail. And so they're going to have a natural disadvantage, and Trump's going to take advantage of it. That's our strategy. He's going to declare himself a winner. So when you wake up Wednesday morning, it's going to be a firestorm. <laughs> also, also if, Trump is, if Trump is losing mm. by 10 or 11 o'clock at night, mm. it's going to be even crazier. Can you no, because he's going to sit right there and say they stole it. I'm, yeah. court, uh, Agree. I'm directing the attorney general mm. to shut down all ballot places in all 50 states. It's going to be no. He's not going out easy. Trump, if Biden's winning, Trump is going to do some crazy shit. As you know, Mr. Bannon refused to testify in our investigation. He's been convicted of criminal contempt of Congress, and he's awaiting sentencing. That is game, set, match. I don't know if you watched the hearings today, but you play a clip like that of Steve Bannon. But what else is there to know? I don't know how much more evidence we need. If this were any other crew, they would all be thrown into prison. If this were any other country, they would be in prison. So, Trump. He made his stolen well, election claims. Hang on, sorry. Uh, so Trump will be subpoenaed and asked to testify. He could play out the clock uh, with the subpoena. He's probably hoping the GOP wins the House next month, and they will obviously shut down this investigation and reopen a new investigation into Hunter Biden. The problem for Trump is he lives for this. He is a different kind of animal, and uh, an actual animal. He, he loves being the uh, center of attention. He does. Uh, well, let's listen to more of Liz Cheney. He made his stolen election claims on election night against the advice of his campaign without any evidence in hand. Then over the next two months, he sought to find those who would help him invent and spread lies about the widespread fraud. Well, you need evidence to say that, Liz Cheney. And here once again, is Congressman Zoe Lofgren presenting evidence that Trump advisor Roger Stone uh, couldn't care less if Trump was going to win or lose. He believes might makes right. Now, recently, the select committee got footage of Mr. Stone before and after uh, the election from Danish filmmaker Christopher Gilbranson, pursuant to a subpoena. Right before the election, here's Roger Stone talking about what President Trump would do after the election. Let's just hope we're celebrating. I suspect it'll be, I really do suspect it will still be up in the air. But when that happens, the key thing to do is to claim victory. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. No, we won. Fuck you. Sorry, over. We won. You're wrong. Fuck you. ABC. I said, fuck the Lord, and let's get right to the violence. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> it's no fault. 
I, I don't know uh, how brazen you could possibly, any more brazen you could possibly be. I mean, they're just doing it right in the open. They are the gang that can't shoot straight. These are incompetence. These are mediocrities. Bannon, Stone, Trump, and everybody he surrounds himself with. It's a slam dunk. It's so easy to convince, to convict them, and yet they're still walking free. They're still. I don't know how much more evidence you need. Again, if this were any other country, we wouldn't be talking about this. So, uh, yeah, Trump loves attention. He loves the attention, bad or good, doesn't matter. Uh, just as long as people notice him, kind of like me. I'm kind of like Trump, only he's better at it than uh, I am. And he's getting his wish. He's getting the attention that, uh, that he wants. He's like that kid in, that's not who I want to look at. He's getting his wish. Think about the bad kids you went to school with when you were younger. That's who Trump is. They would always act out because they were starved for love. And in lieu of love, they take attention, good or bad. And Trump is getting his wish. He is. He is getting his wish. He's getting attention. U.S. District Judge Louis A. Kaplan in Manhattan ruled yesterday that Trump must testify under oath next week in a defamation lawsuit filed by E. Jean Carroll She's the journalist who accused Trump of raping her inside a Manhattan clothing store back in the 90s. She is now 78 and is able to supersede the statute of limitations on that rape due to New York State's recently passed Adult Survivors Act, which now allows rape victims to sue for civil damages no matter when that rape occurred. Trump like the 13-year-old he is, issued a statement yesterday where he said, once again, quote, this woman is not my type. The 13-year-old talking about rape. Meanwhile, Vets for Trump co-founder Joshua Macias and co-defendant Antonio LaMotta were convicted today of bringing assault weapons to Philadelphia without a permit on November 5th. 2020, as votes in the presidential election were being counted. Prosecutors were hoping to convict them on election interference. The two men could face 18 months in jail. LaMotta is also facing misdemeanor charges of illegal entry of the Capitol on January 6. Prosecutors say the two men drove from Virginia to Philadelphia on Election Day, where they were stopped by police after an FBI tip. The two men were found to be carrying handguns, an AR-15, ammunition, and several QAnon stickers, or as Ted Nugent calls all that, a picnic basket. Well, Stuart Rhodes, Elmer Stuart Rhodes, he is the leader of the Oath Keepers. He is a Yale School graduate, a congressional staffer for former Congressman and Libertarian Ron Paul. 
He's a U.S. Army paratrooper. And this week, he's on trial for sedition. In a 13-count indictment, the Justice Department charges that on and before January 6, Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers, conspired to use force to prevent the lawful transfer of power to President Joe Biden. Rhodes, 56, founded the Oath Keepers back in 2009, right after Barack Obama was inaugurated as president. He founded the Oath Keepers, convinced the socialist state under Barack Obama would seize our weapons and enslave all Americans to serve the new world order. That would be uh, Oath Keeper leader Stuart Rhodes. You know, this is the type of guy you, you want to live next door to. Right? Stuart Rhodes. Nice guy. He's a Yale Law School graduate. Do you realize in real life someone actually lives next door to Stuart Rhodes? This is why I would never own a house. You know, you scrape and you save and you put together a down payment. You buy the house and now you're living next door to Stuart Rhodes. You're up all night to the sound of target practice because your neighbor is Stuart Rhodes, and, and, and your wife keeps saying, go next door and tell him to keep it down. But she really doesn't want him to keep it down. She just wants to watch you go over there and get your ass kicked because she hates you. She wants to see you beaten up by a man twice your size, twice the man you are, because your wife hates you, your children hate you, your dog hates you, everyone hates you. That's why I would never buy a home. <clears throat> Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keepers, he uh, recruited military veterans, police officers, and first responders, telling them they originally took an oath to protect America from all enemies foreign and domestic. And now he's asked them to swear a new oath to basically become a domestic enemy of America. He's on trial, right? And during testimony this week, during his trial, a former Oath Keeper, Terry Cummings, who was there on January 6, told jurors of the cache of weapons that Stuart Rhodes and the Oath Keepers had brought to Washington that day, he said, quote, I had not seen that many weapons in one location since I was in the military. That's what was going on on January 6. The Justice Department says Rhodes stockpiled these weapons near the Capitol so they could be rushed to insurrectionists once shots were fired. Rhodes' lawyer maintains that Rhodes is innocent. He says the Oath Keepers were simply preparing. They gathered all those weapons in preparation for Donald Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act on January 6. The Insurrection Act supposedly provides a president with wide latitude as to who can use arms in defense of our country. The Washington Post reports this morning that members of President Trump's Secret Service were in constant contact 
with the Oath Keepers in the lead-up to January 6. Why? The Post says it's highly unusual for for any protesters coming to Washington, D.C., let alone militia members like the Oath Keepers, to have an open channel or engage in dialogue with the Secret Service. What was going on? Why were the Oath Keepers talking to the Secret Service? What are the implications in all this? This is why the January 6th committee wanted all those deleted texts from the Secret Service. The Secret Service, whose initials are SS, just wanted to go a little QAnon on you. No, the, the, the Secret... Think about this, though. The Secret Service protects the president. How far does that protection extend? Does that protection include protecting the president's presidency? What was in all those Secret Service texts subpoenaed by the January 6th committee? Why were they deleted? Why did Nancy Pelosi spill earlier this year that in the lead up to January 6th, there was little cooperation between the Capitol Police and the Secret Service. What was going on? Were there rogue elements in the Secret Service? We have rogue elements in every organization, in every government organization. There are rogue elements. There are rogue elements in every police force. It follows that there might be rogue elements in the Secret Service detail that protects Donald Trump. Did some Secret Service agents go rogue and take it upon themselves to inflate their roles and try to become members of Trump's palace guard? These agents are willing to die for their president, so what else would they be willing to do for their president? I'm not talking about the Secret Service. I'm talking about rogue, possible rogue elements, possible rogue elements within the Secret Service. That is why this Oath Keepers trial is worth keeping an eye on. The Justice Department is hoping to find out just how much contact the Oath Keepers had with Trump's inner circle during the lead-up to January 6. Why was Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, and his lawyer, why were they meeting with this guy? Proud Boy leader Enrique Terrio. The, they met with him, the Proud Boy leader Stuart Rhodes, met with Enrique Terrio the night before the January 6th insurrection. They met inside the hall of the state's parking garage right next door to Capitol Hill where the insurrection took place. I'm going to play a clip that was entered into evidence by the Justice Department in this Stuart Rhodes trial, Stuart Rhodes on trial, Oath Keeper. A filmmaker directing a documentary was embedded with Enrique Terrio, leader of the Proud Boys. The documentarian captured this meeting between the leader of the Proud Boys and the leader of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, the night before 
January 6th. This was inside a parking garage right next to the Capitol. In this video, you will see Kelly Sorrell. She's an attorney, the attorney for the Oath Keepers. Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, is also there, and he's shaking hands and talking with Enrique Terrio, the leader of the Proud Boys. Keep in mind, this is the night before January 6th. Stuart Rhodes's defense counsel, now in this trial, says his client was storing all those weapons nearby because he was expecting Donald Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act on January 6th. So these are lawyers, right? Stuart Rhodes, Yale Law School graduate. His attorney is present in this meeting in the garage. They believe they are working within the margins of the law. The Insurrection Act, they believe, is about to be invoked within hours by President Donald Trump. Keep in mind, while they are meeting in this garage on January 5th, over at the Willard Hotel, which is practically next door to the White House, Donald Trump's war room is preparing for tomorrow's big rally on the ellipse. In attendance at that meeting in that hotel, while this meeting in the parking garage is going on, there is a meeting uh, where General Michael Flynn, who that night appeared on Alex Jones's program to say America is in a national emergency, setting the stage for the president to declare the Insurrection Act, right? To invoke the Insurrection Act. The New York Times reports that while Michael Flynn is giving interviews saying we're in a national emergency because of this stolen election, in another room inside the Willard Hotel are Trump's lawyers, John Eastman, Ginny uh, Thomas's buddy, the former clerk for uh, Clarence, Rudy Giuliani, as well as Roger Stone, Roger Stone, who was getting protection from this guy, the Proud Boy founder, Enrico Terrio. The Proud Boys were Roger Stone's personal security team. And uh, they were his doing security for him over at the Willard Hotel. The Proud Boys were also doing security for Roger Stone uh, the next day when he attended Trump's big rally on the Ellipse on January 6th. And unbeknownst to any of these mental deficients is that the head of the Proud Boys, Enrico Terrio, is an FBI informant. He's been an FBI informant since 2012. That's according to Reuters, a legitimate news source. When Enrico Terrio, when Enrico Terrio was contacted by Reuters after the insurrection, right? Like like a week after the insurrection, it got out that he was that Enrico Terrio was an FBI informant. Reuters contacted Terrio and he insisted he was not an FBI informant. Of course he's going to say that. But Reuters spoke with a former prosecutor and reviewed a 2014 federal court proceeding revealing that Enrico Terrio, the leader of the, F of the Proud Boys, is an FBI informant. 
This is from Reuters, okay? I am going to read to you very quickly from Reuters. In the Miami hearing, a federal prosecutor, a Federal Bureau of Investigation agent, and Tario's own lawyer, Tario being the head of the Proud Boys, Tario's own lawyer described his undercover work and said he had helped authorities prosecute more than a dozen people in various cases involving drugs, gambling, and human smuggling, right? That's Enrico Terrio, the head of the Proud Boys. So why did Enrico Ter- Enrique Terrio, look, you're lucky I'm not calling him Danny Terrio from Dance Fever. Why did Enrique Terrio have a documentarian embedded with him when he met with Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers, in that parking garage on January 5th? Well, it's the same reason Yale Law School graduate and head of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, brought his attorney into that parking garage with him. The footage you're about to see and listen to was part of Enrique Tarrio's sting operation. For him... I suspect January 6th was a sting operation. He knew uh, he had Roger Stone's ear. He was talking to Stone. He was providing Roger Stone with protection. And he was talking, Enrique Terrio was talking to Roger Stone. He was talking to the FBI. And now he was talking with Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers. And then he was talking to the FBI. Uh, Again, this is probably going to come out, maybe not, during uh, Stuart Rhodes' trial that's going on. But Enrico Terrio was an asset for a few FBI agents, maybe the Secret Service. He was an asset. Uh, Let's watch this footage. It's from the Justice Department, and it's captioned by the Washington Post— which doesn't do speculation. I'm doing a little speculation, not too reckless. I don't think I'm being too reckless here. Listen and watch. This is the meeting between the head of the Proud Boys, Enrique Terrio, and the head of the Oath Keeper, Stuart Rhodes, the night before January 6th in a parking garage. He literally just got shit at the police station. Because she's going to... Yeah, just back up. We're just going to... We're going to turn around and get out of here. She has a... um, this guy has a good attorney. This is, this is Terry. He was a two A attorney that got him off of his stuff, so. It's getting out of the car. I want you to meet this First attorney, night. Kelly. Hey, Kelly, she's from Texas. That's Hi. the attorney for the Oath Keepers. And Stuart. Glad you're Stuart, Stuart, Stuart Rhodes meeting Enrique Terry. Do you need a vehicle to. No, we're going to. Do they know what you're driving? Do they know what you're driving? It doesn't matter. I, I'm sure that even if they were to come by right now, I'm, I'm on my way out. So I this is Enrique Terrio talking. So I thought they told you 24 They didn't hours. give me the 24 hours. They didn't want, the reason I why they that. did that is that they didn't want me to go to tomorrow's event. I don't know. You going on Virginia's side? I'm going to go on the other side. So Enrique Terrio is saying that the he was already forbidden from showing up to the January 6th uh, rally on the ellipse, but he's in Washington, D.C., where he's not supposed to be, and he's meeting with the Oath Keepers, and he's, he's 
has his own documentarian with him, but he's not supposed to be in Washington, D.C., but he is. We're going north. The Maryland? Okay. Yeah. I'm going to stay close just to make sure my guys are okay. okay. He's going to stay close to make sure the Proud Boys are okay are okay on January 6th. So it's tomorrow, tomorrow. and I got, a, I got a lot of stuff to do tomorrow. Give me a chance. Give me a chance, and he's asking the documentarian to step aside so he can have a private meeting with Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers. So what's going on here? I have no idea. Uh... But I think a lot of things are going on here, and I'm going to venture some guests. Guess. One thing I'm certain of is this video was shot the night before the insurrection, and we're dealing with very sick people. Very sick people meeting in that garage, while more sick people are meeting simultaneously in Donald Trump's war room over at the Willard Hotel. Let's start with Enrique Terrio, okay? Very sick guy. Enrique Terrio. Uh, when someone who is Afro-Cuban joins a white supremacist group like the Proud Boys, he's sick. When you are drawn to violence, racism, and climb up the ladder of an organization that celebrates oppression of people of color, while you yourself are a person of color, you're sick. Then leading that organization while at the same time being an FBI informant is even sicker. It's just another one in a series of lies uh, you've been living your entire life. This guy's entire identity is leader of the Proud Boys, and he's living a lie because he's been forming, he's informing on the very people who he leads. It's sick. I'm pretty certain the FBI profiles these kind of people and keeps them close. I hope they do. He is their eyes, their ears. So he most obviously had a low-level handler inside the FBI. I suspect the reason Enrique Terrio had that film crew embedded with him was self-surveillance. That documentarian following Enrico Terrio uh, was an unwitting participant in providing evidence to the FBI that Enrique Terrio was doing what he was told. I'm not sure what he was told. I have a feeling Enrique Terrio doesn't know what he was told. I have a feeling the FBI, he was being handled by low-level agents who weren't sure what they were telling him and didn't care. In that garage the night before January 5th was Stuart Rhodes, head of the Oath Keepers, also very sick, very sick man. Uh, anyone who starts a militia back in 2009 based on the notion that Barack Obama is a socialist, you're saying things. You're deranged. Then he gathers up other military vets and police officers and has them swear an oath to protect this country from the one world order. This is delusional. It's sick stuff. These are sick people. Now, the world is random, and so is our government. It's a big government, and inside that government are Democrats, Republicans, independents, smart people, dumb people, sick people, very sick people, paranoid schizophrenics, healthy people, and they all work together to conspire 
that nothing works. Nothing works. It's completely out of sync. And that's what makes this country work. The fact that it doesn't work. You can't conspire to overthrow it. Within our government, there are cells. Uh, for example, I believe Enrique Terrio, head of the Proud Boys, had a low-level handler inside the FBI. And I also believe very few people knew that because it wasn't important to know. I suspect some low-level FBI functionary and the boss of that low-level FBI functionary were keeping half an eye on Enrique Terrio. The same way a low-level FBI functionary and his low-level FBI functionary boss was keeping half an eye on Lee Harvey Oswald in the lead-up to the president's assassination. There aren't sleeper cells waiting to be triggered. There are just very sick men. Very, very sick men. And the FBI visits these very, very sick men because they're very sick and they need to be watched, and they're useful idiots for low-level functionaries inside our FBI. Now, think of my show as the FBI, and I'm J. Edgar Hoover. We have office hours. We have chat rooms. Those chat rooms are in Zoom. They're on YouTube. And we also have mo moderators who I don't know personally. Think of the moderators, or the mods as we call them, as FBI agents. The mods are there to monitor the chat, to make sure nobody is violating the terms of service. We don't tolerate racism, bigotry, misogyny. Uh, we don't tolerate sexual harassment, hate speech, or solicitation. Human trafficking is fine with us, but the other stuff, no. Uh, the, the mods in the chat rooms have the authority to act independently, and I have to trust them because I am J. Edgar Hoover, and there's a sale on panties at Bergdorf Goodman's that I have to. I'm joking. Um, I'm being serious here. There's a sale at Bergdorf, and I need to make this quick. What am I talking about? No, there, there's no way that the head of the FBI could know or would want to know who his low-level agents are using as useful idiots or informers. The, the head of the FBI doesn't need to know any of this until they need information and then ask their agents, where are you getting this? Right? Now, that night, so there's no grand conspiracy. There's just a lot of sick men who love violence and weapons that low-level FBI functionaries are keeping their eye on. Now, that night, January 5th, over at the Willard Hotel, you have Trump's war room made up of the sickest, highly credentialed lunatics in America. Here is Liz Cheney explaining. President Trump had a premeditated plan to declare that the election was fraudulent and stolen before Election Day before he knew the election results. He made his stolen election claims on election night against the advice of his campaign without any evidence in hand. 
Then, over the next two months, he sought to find those who would help him invent and spread lies about the widespread fraud. Many of those who stepped forward to help, including Rudy Giuliani, knew they never had real evidence sufficient to change the election results. And on the evening of January 5th, they admitted they were still trying to find that phantom evidence. Okay, that was Liz Cheney today during the hearings. So, the Willard Hotel, let's start off with the convicted felons uh, who met that night uh, at the Willard Hotel on January 5th. General Michael Flynn, who on January 5th had already been pardoned by Trump for lying to the FBI about his secret communications with the Russian ambassador before Trump even took office, and he pled guilty. By the time of the meeting on January 5th, Michael Flynn also swore an oath to QAnon, and he had as his attorney Sidney Powell, who was also part of Trump's legal team. She was busy challenging the election. She claimed the ballots had been tampered with by Venezuelan leader Hugo Chavez, who had died in 2013. Very sick woman, uh, representing a former, uh, he was head of, uh, he was his national security advisor, Donald Trump's national security advisor, General Michael Flynn. Obama told Trump not to appoint Michael Flynn because he's sick. Michael Flynn is a sick man. He swore an oath to QAnon. He and Sidney Powell, the attorneys uh, for uh, for Trump, uh, they, they spoke at a QAnon conference in Dallas. Also in the room at the Willard Hotel that night, is Steve Bannon. Now, in August of 2020, a few months before the meeting at the Willard Hotel, Bannon was arrested on charges of mail fraud and money laundering. That night in the Willard, on January 5th, Bannon was facing charges of taking contributions from veterans to build a United States-Mexico border wall. And instead, he kept the money for himself. He needed a pardon And on Trump's last day in office, he got one, but he's still on trial for contempt of Congress, as well as for that border wall fraud. The New York State Attorney General is uh, still prosecuting for it, even though he's been pardoned. This is a sick guy. Steve Bannon's sick, smells bad, racist, white supremacist, sick. Also in the meeting the night before the insurrection was this guy. Rudy Giuliani, okay, he's perfectly sane. No legal problems for this guy. No drinking problem. No problem with money. No back alimony. He's not broke or broken. Uh, Okay, Rudy Giuliani showed up to that meeting at the Willard Hotel on January 5th. After this, the hair dye incident, okay? This is, he showed his face After the hair dye incident, uh, the Trump administration started out as a clam bake for the worst of the worst. And then they all began filtering out. And then by the, the 2020 election, by the end, they knew he lost and they headed for the exits. But only the truly six, the truly sick, the disease stuck around for that last clam bake, January 6th. They were alcoholics like Rudy Giuliani. They were delusional QAnon supporters like Michael Flynn or out-of-work political hacks like Roger Stone, also pardoned by Donald Trump. 
Roger Stone who needed money and the thrill, the thrill of anything, violence. Roger Stone just needs to be near it no matter what it is. He needs to be near it. Or they were inveterate white nationalists like Steve Bannon who needed a pardon and wants a fascist like Donald Trump to seize power. These are the worst people in the world. In the Willard Hotel that night, the worst people in the world were advising Donald Trump on January 5th. The same way the worst people in the world were advising Donald Trump when he descended from that escalator to declare his candidacy candidacy in 2015. Trump is a mobster. Everyone, everyone who comes in contact with Donald Trump uh, is destroyed. Everyone. Some people are smart enough to get out early, but he's a mobster and he destroys everyone and everything the FBI, the CIA, Putin, Obama, everyone knew who Trump was in 2020. Obama and his deep, dark state tried to warn us in the lead up to the election. They tried, but they really couldn't. I know most of my listeners don't think Putin installed him, but somebody did. Somebody helped him. There were a lot of people who have a financial interest in destroying what is left of America's democracy. And that includes installing Donald Trump. There is a tsunami of evidence that should lock Trump up along with his family and everyone he's touched. But we just can't seem to do it. Why is that? Who is supporting Trump? It shouldn't take this long to lock up a mobster. I remember Trump from New York City back in the late 80s. He was and remains a New York City mobster. And the rules don't apply to New York City mobsters. Building codes, debt, whatever. Not for mobsters, nothing applies. And he brought that New York City mobster mentality to Washington, D.C., and the system in place was totally unprepared for him. There were some people outside that system who were totally prepared, and some of them were in the system, but they weren't running it. But they were waiting because there are fascist elements that run deep in our history and just below the surface of our government and any government. Trump is not only free, but he's in danger, or we're in danger, of his getting reelected. Now, you might think, as I do, that Liz Cheney is a political hack. Uh... You might think they, they all do it. She is a political hack, and they all do it, but nobody at the level Donald Trump does because he gets away with it. This time, it is different. This time, we're dealing with the face of fascism. And the fascists in this country, they need Donald Trump, and that's why he can't go down. 
you can't bring him down. And every day that he's not locked up only makes him and the fascists more powerful. Some think Trump will pass. They think the fascist element will pass. Maybe, but I know it won't happen unless the Democrats keep control of the House. I know we have problems with the Democrats. I, I do. But if the Republicans get control of the House in November, God help us. I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road. Got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller, magic kit, so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. I got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. I need my sedatives and my antipsychotics. A high-speed parallax motor because I'm into robotics. And my little red Speedo. I like to do aquatics, I'm traveling late. Got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill. A copy of Lolita and my little blue pills. A Navajo blanket in case I get a chill, I'm traveling late. Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender. A fifth of tequila. In case I go on a bender, my attorney's number. In case I want to change my gender, I'm traveling light.
just in case I have some visitors. For breeze if my room is stinky, a Polaroid in case I get kinky. My Jesus bobblehead and my Star Wars bedspread, I'm traveling light. I got my rabbi costume and my portable dark room, my hair plug lotion and my expensive wrinkle cream, my Emmy statue for my self-esteem. I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shoeshine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read. Some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A. And my enemies list. Don't forget about my enemies list. Thank you so much, Professor Mike Steinel. Happy birthday to Nadine, who turns 100 today, 100 years old. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Joining us in England is Grace Jackson, who works our China desk. She is the host of Literary Hangover. Before we talk about uh, China and a whole host of other things, two things. One is we are not running behind. No, we're, we're, we're not. We, we, I know it looks that way. Uh, Emil Guillermo, host of the PETA podcast, had to move to 1030 and our 7.30 is open, so we're going to do Quizmaster Dan at around 7.40, so we're on time. Just people don't realize it. That's the first thing. So, Dan, if you could tell Professor Ben Burgess and, and the Hershenfelds we're running 10 minutes behind, that would be great. And we'll be doing the quiz in about an hour and 10 minutes, please, if that's... I got it. Thank you, sir. And please bring your shoes. Remember to bring your shoes. And Grace Jackson. So here, before Hi. we before we start, you were at our production meeting yesterday. Mm, yes. And I cannot be there at the beginning of office hours, Friday night at 8 p.m. And I said, maybe you should take the first hour, my hour. And mm -hmm. then I said, maybe Colleen and Liam should host the first hour. Uh, and you said, no, have them do it instead. And Yeah, so, I think they would do an excellent job and they would be much more awake than, than I would <laughs> right. so I at one in the morning. I called them and they can't wait. So this is very exciting. This is a new and improved office hours, Friday night at 8 p.m. We have Colleen Worthman and Liam McEnany hosting, doing my spot at office hours at 8 p.m. Doesn't get any better than office hours without David Feldman, Colleen Worthman and Liam McEnany. Uh, I don't know what they're going to do. I'm sure it will be very funny. So go to my website to sign up for office hours. While you're there, sign up for my newsletter. Uh, it includes an invitation to office hours. My newsletter comes out at 6 p.m. Friday night, Eastern, and then it has the link for office hours, which starts at 8 p.m. 
If you don't want to read my newsletter and you just want to come to office hours, go to my website. You'll see a menu for office hours. Click on that. You get your link. You're in. Grace Jackson, what are we talking about tonight? Uh, just a few brief updates tonight on China and the um, export controls that were imposed by the Biden administration a few days ago in some executive orders. There's a lot of things going on right now in China. Um, and I also want to touch on a couple of things to do with Taiwan as well. So first of all, on Sunday, the 20th Party Congress, which we've all been talking about for a very long time, will open in Beijing and it will last about a week. And I'm very excited because I get to use the word quinquennial. <laughs> I believe he was an action hero in the 50s here in Hollywood. <laughs> quinquennial. Yeah, he's a good friend of mine. Actually. <laughs> um, quinquennial. So what does that mean? What does quinquennial mean? Uh, every five years is what it means. Wow. Um, so this happens every five years. The Party Congress, <laughs> that is. And... <laughs> Quinquennial. Yeah, being a quinquennial event. <laughs> That's a good name for the next generation of kids who are being born right now. They only have five years left to live because of climate change. We should call them quinquennials. <laughs> they're only they only they're only going to live to five unless they grow gills. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, it's all, it's all good. Um, so this. This particular um, party congress is important, as people will know, because Xi Jinping is going to get his third term in two of the three roles that he holds. So he actually is the leader of the party, the Chinese Communist Party. He is also the head of its military commission, and he's the president of the People's Republic of China. So he has three roles uh, which combine to make him supremely powerful. Um, but the presidency actually has nothing to do with the party. That's obviously a state role. So that does not transition at the party congress. That will um, He will be re-elected to that role in March at the National People's Congress, which is the legislature. So... Um, this this party event it's quite important. Uh, it's we're going to get a new Politburo Standing Committee, which is a seven person committee that makes the most important decisions uh, and sits right at the top of the party. Below that is the twenty five person Politburo, and below that is the Central Committee. And all of those uh, bodies basically get reshuffled at the Party Congress. Um, and the party is organized like a pyramid, and it has more than 90 million members, making it the largest political party in the world. 90 million members. Mm, yeah, across China. So this is a fairly momentous occasion. And uh, because of that, for the past three, four, even five or six months, uh, there's been a kind of a tightening of security, not just in Beijing, but across the country, because the stakes are really very high. And this includes um, what we can think of these days as, as biosecurity. So the way that 
China is controlling COVID um, with sort of snap lockdowns whenever there's, you know, more than a few dozen cases in any given city. There have been lots of uh, lockdowns imposed recently and, you know, the rules are very, very tight for people moving domestically within China at the moment. Um, so we kind of expect the next, his third term to be defined by kind of ideological consolidation. I think he's going to extend the party's uh, kind of reach into society even more than it currently does. Um, I think there's going to be a push to make China self-sufficient in technology, especially, um, but also, you know, things like food as well. And figuring out a way to kind of win the hearts and minds of what the PRC would call its Taiwan compatriots across the strait. Uh, so I think those are really the priorities going into the third term, which, um, and touching on self-sufficiency, there was a very good uh, example of why that's important for China in what Biden what the Biden administration just did with export controls. So there were already export controls on certain kinds of sensitive, advanced semiconductor technology that had been kind of ramping up in the past couple of years. But last week, there were some executive orders issued that really kind of stepped that up. And it's, it's quite a big deal. And I'm not sure it's been reported quite as much as it should have been. Um, so these are definitely the most aggressive measures we've seen from the US government attempting to keep advanced semiconductors out of China's hands, basically. Um, and the background to this is that most semiconductors in the world, wherever they're made in the world, are made using US software or equipment. Um, and that means that in these executive orders, basically what, what they've done is said, any chip maker around the world, whether you're in the US or not, if you do use US software to make your chips, then you cannot sell your chips to China. You can't export them to China. Uh, and these are particularly advanced kinds of chips. Um, but even more serious than this, the, the really big move here is actually on personnel. So previously, you know, there were uh, controls targeting technologies, products, chips, software. Um, but now for the first time, they're targeting people. So there is now a rule that prohibits any US person, which means uh, a US citizen, or a permanent resident or a green card holder. So US persons are now prohibited from working with um, providing technical support to any Chinese chip maker that is involved in it, the production of kind of advanced technologies for supercomputing and AI. So this actually means that because there are lots of people with green cards, Chinese Americans, for example, who are working 
for American companies in China providing technical support, um, those people are probably going to have to choose between their citizenship or their green card and their job. And it's going to affect, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of professionals, including executives, engineers, um, basically anyone working in China's chip industry that has kind of U.S. residency. And several U.S. companies have already pulled out their support staff from China in the past few days. Uh, and U.S. semiconductor company stock has also kind of plummeted. So it's it's quite a big deal, really, and it's quite an escalation, um, sort of like another trade war. And mm -hmm. it's certainly a, a step towards kind of complete decoupling, at least in terms of this kind of technology uh, and semiconductors and so on. So I, if I were Xi Jinping, I might mention this in my speech on Sunday, uh, or at least this is certainly going to give him an even more sort of substantial reason to to seek self-sufficiency and um, tell the U.S. to get stuffed. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. Let me peel back. And by the way, if you're in our uh, virtual studio audience and you have any questions or comments, raise your hand. Yeah, I'd love to hear from uh, Professor Ann Lee actually on this. I'm sure she has some some interesting perspective. Well, Professor Ann Lee, read her over at the Daily Co's. Uh, I don't know if she wants to talk right now. She's are, are you there, Professor Anley? Or, or just when you're ready, please raise your hand and, and we'll call on you. What is the problem between the United States and China? It seems kind of manufactured. Oh, that, well, go ahead, Professor Anley, please. Uh, uh, hi, Grace. Hi. hi. David. Hello. Thank you. When you were looking at those executive orders, did it mention um, anything about military applications or? It actually doesn't distinguish between military and consumer facing products, which is really interesting. So basically, it's a blanket ban. I, I, I think it is a response to their initial issues about uh, Chinese software coming in on various uh, consumer products that were being hmm. sold in the United States. But it is ultimately about the software, the kind of software control over it. The other thing that I mentioned in the chat was I do I do think it has something to do with our, our advanced computer capability uh, because yeah. of the race between China and the U.S. in supercomputer development. Yes. So the, I think that's the bigot, one of the bigger implications. And ultimately, with supercomputers, that has to do with advanced chip development, which will ultimately affect both countries' military industrial complexes. So that's really all I wanted to say. I'll let you get back to talking. Thank you. Everybody should read Professor Ann Lee over at the Daily Kos. She writes uh, brilliantly about everything, including a night, she writes a nightly update on the war in Ukraine. Read her. Her handle there is Annie Lee, A-N-N-I-E-L-I. -I. Subscribe to her over at the Daily Kos. Thank you. Uh, and we'll see you later tonight 
for the professors and, and Marianne. We're so convinced, Grace, that China is a totalitarian regime. People don't have any say in their destiny, that it's one party rule. But you also said there are 90 million members of the Communist Party in China. They meet, they vote, they have committees, they discuss. Let's try to make the case for one party rule and how perhaps, perhaps you can have representation that might be more satisfying than the illusion of what two-party rule, but really one-party rule here in the United States. Again, I'm just, as a thought exercise, if there are 90 million members of the Communist Party, she is at the top of the pyramid, but he does have to play to the 90 million party members. Or am I wrong? Oh, he has to play to the whole country. I mean, actually, in a way, countries that do have a one-party system like China, the stakes in terms of public opinion and public sentiment are much, much higher. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of interesting documentation of how the party and the bureaucracy in China monitors public opinion obsessively and very closely. And obviously, they're, they're able to use technology and social media and the internet to do so. Um, but it's certainly not the case that China's government is not responsive to its citizens. Um, it's just that there's only one party, there's only one gig in town. And so, of course, that's why there's 90 million right. members. But it's it there is um there is a dynamic at play. It's not merely top-down rule. It is a kind of careful calibration of public opinion and management of public opinion and discourse. And that's where technology plays such a huge role because really, you know, the Chinese internet is highly, highly uh, censored and, you know, it's becoming more sophisticated. It's becoming very quick and very responsive. Um, but there is an ambivalence there. And I think there is you know, there are arguments that can be made that, you know, Chinese governance is extremely effective and efficient. It delivers, it's able to deliver, for example, an amazingly small number of deaths in terms of COVID-19, um, which I think China can be legitimately proud of, you know, and we shouldn't scoff at that because that's, but, but, that but is a there, real achievement. But, but with that, there's a cost. There's freedom. A huge cost. Yeah, freedom. absolutely. Right. I mean, I have I have friends, I have people I know who've who've uh, traveled to China recently, who've done the ten day quarantine that's required, who've gotten out of that, and within three days, because there's been some cases, have had to go back into centralized quarantine, and it really is, you know, um, it's highly coercive. You're not allowed to leave. And yeah, it's it's a big sacrifice. Um, but I I do take issue with with the idea that, you know, the only thing that's at stake for Xi Jinping with COVID is is propaganda value. I, I think there's a real concern that if the virus were to kind of rip through China, it would actually 
I mean, even a, a death rate of 0.05% or something would be catastrophic, huge numbers of people dying. Um, so I think we should take that seriously. Uh, but when we think of one party rule here in the United States, somebody who's breaking precedent, they're going to change the rules, she's going to get a third term. We, we have been trained to believe that he's a maniacal megalomaniac who we can be convinced that he's a totalitarian. Is he a totalitarian? Um, or try, I, does he have designs on being a totalitarian? I wouldn't use the word totalitarian to describe him. I would say that there are sort of, there are components of totalitarian rule that are present in China. Let me just tell China. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Professor sure. Burgess, we're, we're, we're running 10 minutes behind. I, I don't know if Dan was able to tell you. Uh, is, is that okay? I'm sorry, Grace. That's okay. Professor Burgess? Okay, I think uh, Dan will, will speak to him. Uh, go ahead, I'm, I apologize. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I would use the word totalitarian to describe Chinese society at this point. Um, I would use, you know, authoritarian rule. There is certainly a cult of personality that has been developed around Xi Jinping and continues to develop. Um, but there are, you know, when I think of totalitarianism, I think of a complete kind of shutdown right. of, I guess, civil society and the public sphere and the space for kind of movement within that. And I think, you know, that is that does not describe China currently. Oh. But it could but, be sold to Americans as totalitarianism. Oh, oh, yeah. And you can find plenty of right. kind of, you know, plenty of footage of, of kind of great military parades and gatherings right. that kind of resemble, have a kind of totalitarian aesthetic to them just because Americans have been conditioned to kind of see that. Well, let's wrap this up since it is uh, the, the quinquin. Quinquennial. Quinquennial. We should probably cover this in more detail, maybe twice. Oh, well, I'll ask you, not on the air. I, yeah, I, we can definitely talk about that. I just wanted to mention, um, I did want to have a little, just mention Taiwan. Um, people may have seen that Elon Musk has uh, offered some, some recommendations for Taiwan. Is he Taiwan. buying Taiwan now? Uh, well, I mean, who knows what he's up to, but he probably would if he could and yeah. then try and back out of it. But he uh, <laughs> he did an interview with the Financial Times the other day, and he said that he believed Taiwan should strike a reasonably palatable agreement with China. He said, my recommendation would be to figure out a special administrative zone for Taiwan that is reasonably palatable, probably won't make everybody happy. <laughs> and uh, it's funny, you know, I can't want, I can't think why Elon Musk would be trying to curry favor with, with China right now. Um, nothing to do with the huge factory in Shanghai that makes Tesla's um, so it's funny. Tesla, 
Tesla's kind of rhymes with death traps, don't you think? Mm-hmm. I've got this funny ring to it. Yes. Um, anyway, Taiwanese politicians are having none of this and they've kind of hit back at Elon and hopefully he'll be quiet for a while. Probably right. not, though. Grace Jackson works our China desk. <laughs> I love saying that. It makes it so pompous. And she, uh, you can follow her on Twitter at Grace Jackson, and she co-hosts Literary Hangover. And we kept you up late tonight. Thank you so much, Grace. Maybe we'll see you on Monday. Thank you. And we'll see you at office hours. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Before we bring in Professor Ben Burgess, we are running. I want to alert the affiliates. We're running 10 minutes behind. We go back to England right now to Remington Hall. Not Remington Hall. Yes, Remington Hall, where Royal Watcher Sir Arthur Grebe Streebling is standing by. Hello, Sir Arthur Grebe Streebling. How are you? Good evening, man of the field, Mr. Feldman. How are you? I am a man of the field. I am. Yes. How are you? How I'm are... slightly perplexed. I'm a bit miffed, yes. frankly. Old Chuck has announced he's going to be coronated, crowned, as it were, on the very day, not only of his grandson's birthday, but the very day each year I celebrate the end of the uh, vintage Zeppelin era with the reenactment of the Hindenburg uh, disaster. Oh, so, excuse me. So they've announced that his, I thought his coronation was going to be in June, but it's going to be in May, and it's going to be on the May same, the, the same yeah. day as the Hindenburg exploding? Yes, and each year, each bloody year, and this takes a whole year to prepare. Mm-hmm. So I'm rather miffed. Each bloody year, I complete an exact replica of you, the Hindenburg. You're a, you're a Hindenburg reenactor. I am. You reenact, possible. was it Lake, uh, Lakeville, New Jersey? You go to, you, you go to, to New Jersey? No, no, no. I recreate the entire area in, in my, in my land. And, uh, yes. And they, uh, you see, it's a, it's a bit of a sore point. My my father was heavily invested in the R101, which was the British equivalent, which, which burst into flames only years before. Mm-hmm. And he, 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 he made such a loss. Now we thought, well, if, if, if we aren't going to be leading the Zeppelin era, uh, nobody else will. And America was set with the Hindenburg to do that. So uh, Daddy had some strings pulled and a uh, uh, man with uh, knowledge about fuel uh, had some um, strings pulled and the thing blew up and uh, it was a glorious sight. Beautiful. It was beautiful. It was. Uh, I believe it was Lake Hurst or Lake Worst, New Jersey, where it happened. Yes. And the reenactment, who do you put in the Zeppelin? Willing, and I must add, I, I must emphasize this, willing peasants. You put peasants in, in the Zeppelin, and, and they're dressed like wealthy German tourists, correct? Correct, 
right? Yes. And they are willing. They're, they're not coerced in any way, shape, or form. And they're fa- This is the beauty of the British uh, and their deference to the aristocracy. They're more than willing, doffing cap as and, they mount their seat. Yes. And some of them survive. Yes, well, for a minute or two, then we uh, have to uh, erase the evidence. So, yes. And now you're torn because your friend, King Charles, is being, his coronation is on the yes. same day, and you have to choose between the reenactment of the Hindenburg on your estate or going down to London. Yes. And uh, what do you do? Well, this is the thing. This, the problem is... Can you combine the, can you combine the two events? Well, he usually attends. Yeah. So what I was thinking, instead of me doing it here, maybe there's a way we could actually fly the Hindenburg, get the Hindenburg down to Westminster, and uh, treat everybody. You know, yeah, treat everybody to a beautiful, beautiful. I mean, it would or the, over the ba- How about if you do it over Buckingham Palace when he and the Queen Consort? are on the balcony waving to everybody. I'm, I'm not sure he would go for that somewhere. I, I think he would very much be up for doing it over the House of Parliament. You know, and tether it to uh, the bell tower of Big Ben. Big Ben, of course, being the bell, not the right. tower. Uh, we can tether it to that and uh, set the bloody thing alight and either plaintive cries of peasants falling into the Thames. It would be beautiful. What better way to celebrate a new the king. christening of a monarch? Well, I think we need to get a a, a petition going. Yes. I, I, I'll set up a GoFundMe. No, I've got enough money. No, no, I'll set up a GoFundMe. Right. I'll set up a GoFundMe. We'll stick it in the old uh, jalopy there and uh, we'll run this fucker up the flagpole and see what comes out. Okay. Sir, Sir Arthur Greep Striebling has been joining us from Remington Hall in East right. Anglia, yes. childhood f- friend of King Chuck, King Ch- or as yeah, you call yeah, him, Madge. A tenuous, tenuous friendship now, I must admit, yes. Yes, thank you, Sir yeah. Arthur Greep Striebling. Yes, are we still on? Is this, are we still talking? Is this still going? No, we're, we're running a commercial right now. Oh, oh okay, okay, thank you. So is well, there- uh, to be honest, uh, what what I what I said to Chuck is, um, if we can recreate it and stick one of the uh, royals, like the, the the child on board, mm-hmm. and he, he wouldn't have to attend the birthday party either. So, oh Archie, yes, little Archie, yes, and some un, some maybe some working royals who, yes, he, you know, he does want to trim. He wants to get rid of some of the chaff. Yeah. Yes. Well, anyway. Anyway. Well, as long as but Andrew, out, Andrew would be good in a fire. He doesn't sweat. So he can yes, take the heat. Uh, yes. Okay. Anyway, I've got a feeling he doesn't burn either. Yeah. He seems to be uh, indestructible, that man. Yeah. Anyway, so as, uh, as long as none of this has gone out, David. No, no, no. We're coming out of a commercial. Thank you so just, much. Just between me and you. Thank you, yeah. David. Thank you. And those snow Goodbye. tires are available at Bix. Buy them at Bix. New snow tires. Let's go to Professor Ben Burgess. I apologize for keeping you waiting. Professor Ben Burgess, are you there? 
Professor Burgess. Are you there? Sorry, did did you get a did you hear that we tested. were tested? Tested. Yes, we hear, hear you. Yeah, yeah. I was um I would yeah, I was muted. Uh yeah, I said yes, it was fine earlier. Oh good. Okay, sorry. And and so everybody knows we're running ten minutes behind, so good. And then we'll make it all up uh in about we'll we'll be on time in an hour. Joining us is Professor Ben Burgess. He is a columnist for Jacobin. He writes over at the Daily Beast. I have his book right here. It has the Feldman Guarantee. Christopher Hitchens, what he got right, how he went wrong, and why he still matters. And everybody should go buy this book. It has the Feldman Guarantee. If this book doesn't stimulate you, I will reimburse you. The hearings today. Did you see any of it? Was there anything you saw that I didn't? Uh, I didn't watch the hearings today. I heard just a little bit of them about about the radio, but I'm sure you did much more than I do. Right. And is it important, or do, or can you do you find yourself? What are your friends? What are your students? What do your guests think? Are we overreacting to? Donald Trump or do you well who's who's we right <laughs> so uh I mean I I think the I don't know that the the country as a whole uh is going to uh going to react that much I mean I guess we'll see um but I mean this is also I mean, just just do we like you know we can do the issues of principle and I'm happy to have that discussion well, but or I mean, we like, can talk about marijuana just as a just as a matter of politics, I I don't think it's uh, I I don't think that it's um, I think it's a big risk to make this the big pitch before the uh, before the midterms and not something with a more obvious connection to most people's lives. Right, right. People want more than like they're they're selling us this idea if if we could just get rid of Trump, then everything will be great again. Marijuana. Yeah. yeah. You have a piece over at Jacobin. Joe Biden's marijuana moves are good, but fall short of his campaign promise. He's uh, pardoned a couple thousand people who have minor s- sentences for marijuana possession. Is is any of the in term in terms of right before the midterms, politically speaking? Was yeah, this I mean a politically. Good move? Politically, I think it's probably great because I don't think most people pay attention to the details, and it's an incredibly popular issue. I mean, most um, the something like sixty-eight uh, percent of Americans in a poll that I saw a while ago want to go all the way to full federal legalization of marijuana. Uh, they even there are some there like the range I've seen even for Republicans is like between fifty and fifty-five percent of Republicans. What a f- what full federal legalization? So certainly something like this, uh, I think it sounds good to most people. And anything that Biden could do that uh, that he that like sounds good to most people. I mean now, but now would definitely be the time to do it. But as a on the substance of it, I think if you look into this a little bit more, it's uh, it's pretty underwhelming, and it's not really what he said he would do originally. So what he you know I mean. He used different formulations at different times. There are things he said in the past that fit with what he just did. But like 
there's certainly a bunch of times on the campaign trail where he he said he was going to free everybody who was in federal prison for marijuana. That's how he put it. Uh, everybody was in who was locked up for marijuana in a federal prison. I mean, for possession or dealing. Well, the phrase he used was for marijuana, and um, and so I think a pretty and he had also, in fact, at one debate, he even just said nonviolent crimes, and it was in the context of talking about drugs and marijuana specifically. So I don't think anybody thought he meant like white collar crimes. I think he he meant stuff like this. So I think it was a. I think probably what most people listed thought that he meant was anybody who uh, was nonviolent and in federal prison for absolutely nothing but crimes connected to marijuana would get out. And uh, when he actually implemented it, what he what he interpreted it like he interpreted his own past statements in the narrowest possible way. So it only applies to simple possession. So if you're if you're arrested with more ounces than uh, uh, than prosecutors think that uh, that you intended to consume yourself, uh, then that's a possession with intent to distribute, not simple possession. So this only applies to simple possession, a crime for which zero people were are currently in federal prison. So this this uh, doesn't this doesn't. Um, this doesn't free one single person from prison because there are a few tens of thousands of people in state prisons around the country uh, who are in for simple possession. But of course, Biden doesn't have the authority to free them. And um, and nobody was still in prison, uh, in federal prison for simple possession. It's not completely like it's not a completely vacuous gesture, which is why I, I sort of, you know, the headline says, good but fall short because mm-hmm. it does it does help several thousand people not a huge group but several thousand people it does help who who are already out of prison uh in terms of of everything you know of all sorts of ways in which having uh that on their record uh can um can be bad for them in terms of housing and employment and federal student loans so it's a small group but it does help that group with all of those things which is good as far as it goes but um, but the, there are a few thousand people who are nonviolent offenders who are are in federal prison for um, you know possession with intent to distribute or conspiracy to distribute or anything like that. Which I think it's also worth keeping in mind that when we um, that like when we talk about you know distributed or intended distributed or whatever, like the things that some of these people did, like, like, I mean, be real specific about this. Take a guy I, I interviewed earlier this year, uh, Daniel Musig, who just started a five year, uh, prison, federal prison sentence for, um, uh, for, uh, you know, for conspiracy to distribute marijuana. Uh, he, um, like, this is a guy who was never arrested before, who was never accused of doing anything violent. He never carried a gun. He never messed around with harder drugs. What he did is something that in a bunch of states around the country, you could get a license to do legally now, right. which is set up a dispensary and just sell recreational marijuana. But, uh, but because he did it a little bit too early, uh, he's about to spend five years in federal prison. And this is a guy, by the way, I should say, uh, who who energetically campaigned in Pennsylvania for Joe Biden in 2020 
because, you know, I mean, beyond all of the other reasons that anybody might, he thought, based on what Biden was saying, that uh, that he would be pardoned if uh, if Biden won, because Biden said he would pardon everybody who's going to federal prison for uh, for marijuana. And he was like already awaiting, you know, the, the you know, uh, already awaited sentencing, I guess, when uh, when that happened. And there are thousands of other people in the same situation. And it's it's just again, it's it's a good thing as far as it goes. I think it's telling, by the way, just to go back to the politics for a second, although, you know, I'm really much more interested in like the substance of it. But like just to go back to the politics for a second. It's telling that when Biden did this, the right was pretty quiet about it. Like there was there was not a lot of, uh, oh, look how soft on crime he is stuff. Like Mitch McConnell just ignored it. Kevin well, McCarthy J.D. Just Vance ignored. during the debate against uh, Ryan in Ohio said we have to be hard on crime. And you got to keep in mind, he said that a lot of people smoke a joint and then go bludgeon a grandmother with a gun. <laughs> yeah, that is the usual. Certainly in my experience, every time I smoke a joint, I want to go. I want to go bludgeon a grandmother. I'm just very energetic and violent. <laughs> so angry, angry. That's the that's that's the main effect that it has on me. It, it elevates my anger. Well, what is the problem with marijuana? It doesn't seem like it's a federal unless I'm, I'm I am naive on this subject. I, I would assume most people. How many people are doing years in prison for possession? Yeah, well, that's the thing. Right now, none. In the past, some, right? Like simple possession we're talking about, right? right. The, uh, but, so, but, and how many, do we know how many in state prisons are doing time for possession? Uh, simple possession state prisons, I think, is about 30,000 through the, obviously, that's 50 state prison systems put together. So there uh, are 30,000 Americans doing time for possession with the intent to, they, I'm sure they're saying with the intent to sell. No, no, simple possession. There are 30,000 people doing time for that. Okay, I apologize for not knowing that. But the, uh, that but is federal, shocking. Federal prison, zero people. And, um, and you know, at the state level, there are states where they have pardoned everybody in that situation. And, uh, it, you know, like Illinois, Pritzker expunged everybody's records. Uh, so who had gotten out uh, that is mind-boggling that 30,000 Americans are behind bars for possession of marijuana. I can't believe th this hasn't gone before the Supreme Court to well, bring it up to 100,000 people behind bars for simple <laughs> possession. Yeah, uh, I, I am interested, actually, that debate you mentioned, Vance Ryan. I haven't seen it yet. I, I'm actually going to watch that with... Um, uh, R.M. Brown on my on my YouTube channel tonight. Uh, oh, really? Thursday, yeah, the Thursday night break, debate breakdown. We're going to watch that, uh, and uh, also uh, also anybody who's listening to this later who wants to go back and watch, you know, later, uh, it's going to conflict. I think with the end of this, but the, I'm also talking to Sam Cedar at the beginning of that about the uh, elections. But uh, but yeah. And I, what time is this? Eight. At Eastern. eight p.m. Eastern tonight, you're going to be talking yeah. to Sam Cedar about the elections. And then, yeah, probably talking in for about 20 minutes. And then, and then RM Brown and I will be watching this Vance Ryan debate. So I haven't seen it in advance. I'm not surprised to hear that Vance is one of the few Republicans who's trying to make hay out of this. Um, the only two that I saw really, or three, I guess, were Tom Cotton 
who like tweeted out something incredibly vague about Biden being soft on crime, but he he couldn't even seem to bring himself to use the word marijuana because I think you know even with his base being that alarmist about marijuana it would sound silly. Yeah. Um, Laura Ingram, who did this like sort of half-hearted thing on her show where she was like, "Oh, this is like a slippery slope that'll lead to hard drugs being legalized." She did say that. Yeah, she did. Uh, and, the economist. Uh, the economist. The standard bearer of capitalism in England says we should not only be legalizing marijuana, we should be legalizing cocaine. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I was a, I was a, I lived in Miami for six and a half years. I can get behind that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the thing like the only, and then Ben Shapiro, who said basically what, what, it, what you just quoted Vance is saying that, uh, that, oh, this is actually really dangerous because, uh, well, it was a version of it because he, Shapiro said, because there are people who, there are drug dealers who, you know, plead down to simple possession and you're free of these people. Uh, either Shapiro is unaware that none of the people being helped by the pardon are still in federal prison, or he's just passionate about making sure that nobody who sold a couple of pounds of weed in 2009 uh, can, like, get a federal student loan in 2022. Uh, but, uh, but, but overall, I mean, most of, most of the right has been pretty quiet about it. And it makes sense that they've been pretty quiet about it because I think they know they can't make that much hay about it. In 2022, public opinion is just against them on this. Yeah. Brianna Taylor was shot by cops, uh, because they were breaking in to arrest her boyfriend who they believed was dealing drugs, mailing drugs out of her apartment. It was a doctored uh, charge. Uh, when they went before the, uh, the judge, they made up the evidence. A lot of women who are dating a guy, sitting in a car unwittingly, not knowing that he's a drug dealer, or, or uh, if you're Brianna Taylor, he's not a drug dealer, you get shot or arrested, right, as a co-conspirator on a drug deal. Yeah. There are a lot of women doing time because they were sitting in a car while their boyfriend was delivering drugs to somebody. I, I'm all, I would also just say, like, I, I mean, I guess this is a really basic, obvious point, but I just don't, like, I would really like somebody to make with a straight face the argument about why somebody who actually is, like, selling weed why that's a worse thing to do than like owning or working in a liquor store or a gun store yeah i mean it's certainly i mean i think by any sane standard like it's it's uh yeah i or think working that, for that, purdue i don't think right. the, nobody from the sackler this nobody from the sackler family is going to jail and they get to keep a lot of their money you would think yeah but that's, but that's 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 okay because they're because they're they've been kicked off of the boards of some museums and stuff. Yes, so and you they're, know they're really hurting. You you laugh at that, but have you ever been kicked off the board of a museum? I can't say I have. I'm no longer welcome on the Museum of Earwax. The, the Museum of Earwax in Brooklyn has collected earwax dating back to the 17th century, and I was a proud member of the board. So, libertarians traditionally though, were against the drug war, right? Wasn't, didn't Bill Buckley, didn't 
Yeah, isn't Rand Paul supposedly against the drug well, war? I mean, Rand Paul probably is. I mean, like, I, again, I don't, um, if Rand Paul has, like, reversed himself on this, I haven't seen it. Uh, so Rand Paul probably is, is against it. I mean, there are, I would actually be fascinated to see what would happen in an up or down vote in, um, in the Senate on federal legalization, because this is not, um, you know, there, there are things where that would really matter, I think, because everybody already knows what everyone's position is, but... I think that one would actually be interesting to uh, to to see. I mean, I, I think that like, yeah, but I think libertarians by and large probably are fine with this. I think the fact, you know, I think it makes sense that you say that J.D. Vance would be against it because he's like sort of doing the opposite, at least rhetorically, of being a libertarian. You know, he's, he's like the going back, you know, say, so you know. So what, what would Davos, I always think, what would the people yeah. of Davos say about legalizing cocaine and marijuana? They would make quietly make an argument. It would destroy the economy. That a well, lot of banks. And I'm not trying to be glib here, and I'm not trying to. How, be, how, I'm not so trying I, to give a hot take. I, I don't understand this. How, how would it destroy the economy? That there is an an underground economy that is way more profitable than what gets reported to the IRS and what gets measured by uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics when it comes to employment and the gross domestic product. We are talking about drug dollars that go from Southeast Asia to Latin America to America. And there's a financial infrastructure in place that supports that and you legalize drugs and bring these transactions out of the shadows you're going to disrupt a lot of activity not just uh, for banks and offshore havens but for the military the CIA mm. and uh, a lot of clandestine Activity is used under the cover of smuggling drugs. I don't mm -hmm. think, don't you agree? I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to give a hot take on this. I, I think you're not allowed to, to end the drug war mm -hmm. because it undergirds our economy. Yeah, I don't know that it undergirds the economy exactly, but I mean, certainly I could see the point about... Uh, That's who we're up against. In other words, the ra there's a rational argument to get uh, to legalize cocaine. Uh, but the, the real argument against legalization of cocaine is, what do you think Jamie Dimon and uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, where do you think so much of their profits come from? It's from cleaning that money. Right. Um, yeah. And Deutsche I'm, Bank. Sure. I mean, that could definitely, I could see that. I mean, I think that on marijuana, at least it, it does. Uh, I have a, I guess I have a really hard time imagining it still being even as illegal as it currently is in like 15 years. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I have a hard time right. imagining that. You're, you're, prob uh, you're probably right. Uh, yeah. Interesting. 
but um, but fortunately, there's no big push to legalize cocaine. So I think I think Jamie Dimon and the CIA will be all right. Good. Do you have a? I was reading this piece in The Economist, and what they're saying is obviously it's not good to do cocaine. Obviously. But there are ways to stop people from doing cocaine uh, that are much more efficient than it's against the law. I mean, you make something. See, see I, thought the, I thought the end of that sentence was it's obviously not good to do cocaine. But every now and again, you know, like after a few drinks when you're out with your friends, you know, that's uh, that it's all right. Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't say that uh, in front of people. But uh, there's one part of me. Again, I want marijuana legalized. I do worry that opiates are the opiate of the people. Yeah, I mean, I think that the idea, I think that, um, I mean, even cocaine, I guess I don't quite know what to think about that. Well, uh, I don't, is cocaine an opiate? I don't think so. No, 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 no. It's, it's not. It's the opposite of an opiate. Right. right? The yeah. marijuana but isn't like, an opiate. Marijuana isn't an opiate, but it does make you relaxed and it can make you apathetic and disengaged from, uh, it can Sure. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, I think that like more serious opiates, I think, um, I mean, I don't know that I'd want to live in a society where you could like buy heroin at, uh, you know, at CVS, but, uh, but I, I think, you know, but I think that there, there are points in between, um, there are points in between that and just continuing the drug wars as it exists right now. So I guess, and, in that sense, maybe I agree with the class enemy at, at the Economist, right? I mean that they that I, to a point that um, you know that you can that you can certainly have a much more compassionate uh, approach where you treat it as a medical issue and you you know maybe push people into rehab, but you know right. but you don't you, you don't just lock them up and throw away the key. Right. I suspect you can solve every problem that faces our country uh, if you stop listening to the rich and powerful that every pro the cause of every problem is somebody doesn't want to give up their their billions and their power yeah that's certainly the cause of a whole ton of them most i think most wars uh obesity uh, heart disease cancer mental illness, it could all be fixed, but somebody at the top is making too much money and they don't want to give it up. Somebody has too much power and they don't want to give it up. That, that seems to be the problem. What is your next column for Jacobin about? Effective altruism, which is something that actually it's connects, of course, Whatever I was writing about for Jacobin probably would have connected to what you just said anyway. But uh, uh, in that, in this case, um, the connection is that it's something that sort of has this um, this whiff of uh, of philosophical sophistication. A lot of rich people are really into it now. The idea that the uh, this the way forward, the solution to many. You know, social ills is basically for rich people to target their charity more effectively. And the uh, the point you'll be shocked to hear 
of what I'm writing for Jack, but this is actually going to be the print issue is that, uh, no, right. You know, we don't need, uh, we don't need better, you know, I mean, I guess if rich people are going to, you know, have all this money and they're going to give some of it to charity, I guess it's nice if it's more effectively targeted, but we don't need that. Right. Like we, what we, there's a world of difference between, uh, charity and a, and a big expansive welfare state that, uh, that, uh, charity, uh, puts you at the mercy of the charity giver in a way that, you know, if you have, um, if you have a big expansive, you know, welfare state with universal programs, nobody's empowered to decide whether you get it or not. Everybody just gets it as a right, as a part of repeated society, then, you know, that, uh, that gives you a level of autonomy. You just don't have, if you have to go out with, uh, with your hat in hand to people of means to try to convince them that, you know, right. that you're, uh, that, you know, your cause is better than, you know, than the hundred other causes that are pressing up against them. Right. It's undemocratic. That money, yeah. that money that they're giving to charity is a tax dodge. It belongs to the American people. The, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation cannot uh, dispense of that money better than the government can. There's just as no. much... And, and there yeah. are no hearings, and, and it, we, we should wrap it up. Uh, I mean, you I mean, get I mean, the last at, words. Yeah, I mean, look at the way that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation pushed so-called education reform. Like, they, they get to having this amount of money in private hands means whoever's hands it's in get to set broad social priorities. And look, maybe sometimes they make the decisions you and I would like them to make. A lot of times they don't, but I think the larger question is is the one you raised earlier. Who should have the power to make those decisions? And who should be allowed to act unilaterally without hearings, without transparency? We're talking about billions of dollars uh, being handed over to Africa or here in the United States where Bill Gates is pushing a specific type of seed or grain and a fertilizer and a cure, and he should not be deciding which seed gets to be planted uh, or how we cure drought. There should be hearings and transparency. Ben Burgess is a columnist for, <coughs> for Jacobin, and you can read him over at The Daily Beast and The Nation and watch, give them an argument uh, on YouTube, download it as a podcast, and Coming up in about 45 minutes, he'll be talking with Sam Cedar. So watch that. We will be back. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Professor. All right. Thank you, comedian. We will be back with the Hershenfelds. You're listening to the David Feldman Show. We're running 15 minutes behind. We'll make it up after this. Let's not lie. Sickening. Oh, we we did it. Hang on for one second. I was trying to what? You screwed it up again. I, I screwed it up again. Joining us is Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. Hang on. What am I doing here? Joining us is Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, 
Uh, he is a Freudian psychoanalyst. And also joining us, there we go, is Ethan Hershenfeld, the brilliant comedian, author of, where's the book? There it is. It's on my desk. Today is Now by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. Today is Now. Today is Now. Everybody go by Today is Now by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. If this book doesn't make you laugh hysterically, I will reimburse you. It has the felt. See a doctor. See a doctor. doctor. We were talking. David, could I just say that if Bill Gates were handling your um, video stuff here, he would have probably done a better job. He wouldn't have screwed it up. And I would say that Bill Gates probably had a better handle on COVID and the other epidemics coming down the pike than our government does. So just something to think about. Well, so do we just turn it over to the, we just turn everything over to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation? The technocrats. Oh, wait, is it still called that even though they split up? I think so. I think temporarily. Um, Hello, father. Hello, father. How badly... Let me ask you about that. Hello, David. Hello, Dr. Fauci. Yes. Everything in America gets screwed up. That's the beauty of the system. And Everything big, life gets screwed up. What do you mean in America? Well, the, the government screws up a lot of things. But uh, when, with, the, with the threat of fascism looming... It's, yeah. it's a bit comforting to know that we're we're never going to march in lockstep, that they could never or they could never organize us to. Well, not yet. You know, you ask you like to ask this question when you have nothing else to say. What are you reading? Yes. So I told you a few weeks ago that I was reading something called the Radetzky March by Joseph Roth. And in the Times Literary Supplement, London Times, there was a review of a new biography of Joseph Roth, who was a fascinating character. He lived for about 45 years, wrote a ton of novels, was a major um, journalist journalist in Europe, and, and then drank himself to death, ultimately. Journalist. But, you said there he was, was a journalist. Yeah. There was a great quote from him, from one of his journalist articles, which was that what the would-be autocrats, this was in the early 30s, what the would-be autocrats and dictators have learned is that if you say something that's a lie, people may or may not believe you. But if you yell it, everybody believes you. Hmm. And that's what we're seeing today. So it's so you don't have to keep repeating the lie. Say it once and say it loudly. And Trump is loud. Hitler was loud. Mussolini is loud. Loud. Yeah. Right. So one solution would be to pass out earplugs (laughs) to the whole country. Has lying gotten it's gotten easier to prove somebody is lying unless 
the people want to believe that lie. Right. They don't care. The people who want to believe it just don't care if you prove it. Oh, you see this piece of paper says, so. well, I don't really care. I believe what I believe. I asked you two years ago around this time, how frightened are you for this country? The midterms are fewer than a month away, right? Less than a month away. How how frightened are you? How different will it be? How devastating will our Thanksgiving show be if the Democrats lose the House? Are we meeting on Thanksgiving? What else am I going to do? Is it on a Thursday this year? <laughs> Let me check my calendar, but I think... Yeah, check that. So... Um, I, I heard Thanksgiving's early this year, actually. <laughs> it, what are we going to do? How are we going to feel if, as, as much as we crap on the Democrats here on this show, most of my friends loathe the Democrats, but think about how devastating it's going to be for some if... We lose the House of Representatives. I assume a lot of people who listen to this show, including me, will say the Democrats deserve it because they do no, deserve no, no, no. it. No, I, I think that that's all. It's all misguided. And again, like to make the the perfect the enemy of the good. It's it's an absurd approach. And you st we still have a month, and everyone just needs to do everything they can to help uh, these people get elected uh, instead of uh, worrying about how horrible it's going to be. It's going to be a massive disaster. It's going to be, no, it'll be a massive disaster if if oh, we lose. Yeah, yeah. If we I'm lose, sure. I'm not so sure it should be a massive disaster. If we lose both houses of Congress, that would be a gigantic and uh, maybe a fatal disaster for our democracy. But uh, let's not worry about it. Let's just do what we can to uh, prevent that. Like crack jokes about them. <clears throat> Dr. Hershenfeld, give me your catastrophize. Isn't, th isn't that helpful to catastrophize, to think it out? Well, you can think of that in different ways. Somebody wrote a book recently that Churchill, who saved the West and democracy, and Lincoln, who saved the Union, they were both severe depressives their entire lives. You mean I can save the, I could save the world? <laughs> and 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 they didn't go for the um, oh everything's coming up roses and oh look I have a piece of paper from Mr. Hitler uh, pieces right. say they thought that was utter bullshit and they doubled down their efforts so that undue optimism, uh, which many, most people are probably prone to, but it's, it's, it's not a good way, it's not a good plan to lead the country. Ethan, before you step on a stage, do you expect to yes, kill? Sir. Do you expect to kill? Do you expect to bomb? Or do you just expect to be? Um... No, I go. I, I tend to go out confident, and then let let that be disproven if it if it must be. But uh, no, I go. I generally am am uh, confident and excited. And Not I, always, but I, yeah. And I it's, always expect the. I'm being serious. I say, 
expect the worst, expect to get zero laughs. Any laughs you do get is gravy. And and don't expect anything good to happen. You'll just be disappointed. I, that's probably a... Well, it depends on what your act is like. Yeah, that's how I approach uh, sex. <laughs> Everything. Is this is going to be... I just, watched, I just watched a clip of Judy Tenuto uh-huh. on... Uh, on the um, Joan Rivers talk show in 1990. And that sort of comedian who's just zany and 110% energy the whole time and like chewing on the furniture and like grabbing the set and with the accordion. Like if you're that kind of comedian, I I assume at least it looks like that. They're going in with 100% confidence. Right. But maybe not. Who knows? You you open with hello, pigs. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't matter. She had an... She was an great. incredible. She had an incredible joke that apparently Joan Rivers in this clip. You should watch it. It's 1990 on YouTube. Uh, uh, Joan Rivers was going over various moments when she got into feuds with people. So she got into big trouble for a joke she made about Yoko Ono. <laughs> First, she made fun of how she sang. She impersonated her singing Kiss, 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 Kiss Me Love or Now, whatever that right. song is. And then she's, the joke that got her in big trouble was she said, if that Chapman had only aimed two Ooh. inches to the right, he would have been a hero. Oh, wow. Joan Rivers said that? No, Judy Tenuta oh, said Oh, Judy Tenuta said that on the Joan Rivers show? Yeah. Wow. I know. Yeah, if, if he'd only aimed two inches to the right, he would have been a hero. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. And Joan Rivers was in Stitches. It was really great. So jokes like that... Yeah, like that. I love those jokes, but you're not allowed yeah. to tell those jokes. Yeah, well, and the, the audience was almost—you could see it was a time when people weren't maybe doing jokes that were that that harsh. Now on Twitter, I guess everybody does that well, all the time. Uh, 1990, I was yeah. a road comic. Yeah, we were doing jokes like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, we right. were. We were doing. Yeah. It was like we were. It was. We were trying to test how far we could go in terms of taste. Yeah. And, uh, but that's yeah. always been a part of comedy. Buddy Hackett was doing that in the 60s. Yeah, but it, it, in terms of mocking uh, tragedy, did, were people, I don't think Buddy Hackett trivialized tragedy. Like, I don't think he would have gone up after 9-11 and made even a reference to it. But that's where a lot of comics go fishing there now. I don't think they did back then. Right. It's almost expected now to some degree. But I think going back to expecting the worst, I think that's a good way to live your life. I'm not saying to be depressed, Dr. Hershenfeld, but I think... But how do you manage that? How do you expect the worst and not be depressed about it or not be de-energized by it? Because, you know, I, I look at um, generations of Americans. My grandparents were happier and more grateful than I was. Because they came from shit. Right. And, and, and anything in America 
was better than what they were coming from. And, you know, I used to say to them, yeah, it's, that's good for you because you're a peasant. You're peasants. What do you know? You know, you came over here in steerage and, and begged to be taken in. You're peasants. I'm, I'm above you. I'm better but than you. I expect more from this kind. They didn't think that was fun. Oh, they would laugh. Of course they. But uh, there were plenty of people who came over like that and remained bitter and critical of everything. And they couldn't acknowledge or enjoy the, their altered circumstances. So part of that is who you are. It doesn't change. That doesn't change who you are. The trip, the trip to the country. I was reading about Meyer Lansky, and he came from some shtetl in, in yeah. Russia. He comes to America. No gratitude. Oh, land of opportunity. I'm just going to steal what's mine. That was the opportunity. Yeah. And he would have done the same thing in Russia, but they probably would have shot him first. You yeah. never would have had a chance. Go ahead, Ethan. I, I was oh, I was just going to say on the subject of grandparents and like they put up with your joke about them being peasants. I was thinking uh, earlier about how low the bar is. At least it was with like um, my my maternal grandmother. She would you could eat lunch and then she would say something like, "You are such a good eater." <laughs> I mean, the bar was so low to impress a doting grandmother. You are your your respiration. You really know how to breathe. No one that you oxygenate your blood like a real mammal. You're like a real biped. You walk on your your feet. Your knuckles are so far from the earth. My grandson, he's a great. The way you ate that salmon sandwich. Ah. What an eater. Like, Jesus, talk about like, I don't think that's good for a kid's motivation. Yeah, I'm pretty impressive. Look at me. Look at this. I ate the whole sandwich and the chips. Time for a nap. Just terrible, terrible for the motivation. I think a little bit of criticism or the I have, I have a friend who has a, who had just a very mean grandfather. Nothing was good enough, and he was always telling him how, how he was sinning, and he wasn't doing the following the laws correctly. So, mm -hmm. happy medium. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Doctor, you were going to say, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> can you? Do, oh, oh, such. Do, do we have a hard out? Can we? Can we do ten more minutes, or, or do you have ten? No, we're doing fourteen more. Can you, uh, I mean, fourteen our, more minutes. We're getting our full. At, at double, double time. I, 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 I understand. I understand. Okay. Can I do a, an interstitial plug, like yes. right in the middle? Can I plug yes. something? So I'm, I'm inviting all of your fans and listeners. Okay, today is now. Get the book. Live the lifestyle. But um, today on audible.com, uh, I'm, I'm in this, uh, this drama that's called, it's called The Method. And it stars Zachary Quinto, who's Spock in all of the new, um, wow, all the new uh, Star Trek things. So Zachary Quinto and Judith Light, who's terrific, is in this thing. And I'm in this thing. I'm in four out of the eight episodes, and wow. I play. It's a fun. It's a fun story. It's called The Method. It's about an actor who gets deep into into a particular method acting school, and then it starts to screw with his life. And I play. I have a very fun role. My character's name is Jacob, and he's an ex 
uh, Israeli ex-commando who's hired as the fight coordinator and like stunt coordinator on the TV show that this actor is shooting. Wow. So it's a fun, uh, it's a fun, sh- it's a fun show. I listened to it today. Um, if you have audible.com, it's called the method. Oh, thanks, Dan. Dan just posted the link. I recommend it. It's a, it's a lot of fun. So I'm really happy how that came out. We sh- we recorded it a year ago and it's audio. It's just audio. It's like, it's an audio drama, like in the old days. Yeah. It's great. That's fantastic. Yeah. Israeli commandos. I met a guy named Isaac who <clears throat> was one of the commandos on the raid on Antebe. Mm-hmm. Wow. He told me a story. He was 17 years old. And for those of you who don't remember Entebbe, it was a plane with Jews that was hijacked and flown to Uganda. And, and if you think Jews on planes complain under normal circumstances, <laughs> Jesus, there was no AC. They're on the tarmac in Kinshasa or whatever the city is in Uganda. It's, it was, it's a mess. Yeah. It was a mess. Yeah. And so it was, it looked like everybody was going to die on the plane. Um, and they stopped negotiating was it Benjamin Netanyahu's brother who? Yeah, who, who, yeah. Yoni. Yoni Netanyahu was a member of that uh, that group of, of paratroopers. Yeah. And, and he died in that. He did. He was the one guy who died. And it happened <laughs> like in 75 or 76. I can't remember. But uh, they got the hostages out and they flew them home. And Isaac was a 17-year-old. <clears throat> commando, Israeli commando, who stormed the the plane. And he said, he said, this is what it's like to be a hero in Israel. He said, so we're flying the hostages home in the dark of night. And on the plane, we're the only ones who know that we got them out safely. And he says, as I'm flying, I know that when we land... Israel's going to explode. Explode! It's going to be a joyous day. The world, or parts of the world, uh, will will just celebrate. He touches down, goes to his locker, changes, showers, and now he's got to get a ride to uh, Tel Aviv back home because he lives with his parents, and he's hitching a ride. And on the other side of the road, everybody's honking their horns and they're waving flags. And, uh, and his next door neighbor, he's hitching a ride home. And his next door neighbor in Tel Aviv stops on the other side of the road and says, have you heard? Have you heard? They freed the hostages. And Isaac says, I did it. And they go, that's right, you're a commando, and this is the, oh, that's unbelievable. You were, you're a hero, you're a hero. And Isaac says, can you give me a ride back to mom and dad's? And the neighbor goes, oh, we're going the other way. (laughs) (laughs) And he drives off. And he says to me, that's what it means to be a hero in Israel. (laughs) I'm going the other way. What can I tell you? That's my... I love that story so much. <laughs> Can't be a hero. It's impossible to be a hero. So what are you reading, Ethan? Um, 
I'm still reading that stone, that stone raft by Saramago, the stone raft by Jose Saramago, that Portuguese novel. It's a weird novel. The Pyrenees become this sort of fault line. And then the the Iberian Peninsula sort of floats off uh, towards the Azores. But it, it's 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 slow going at this point. I did just pick up a copy of Gary Steingart's latest novel, Our Country Friends. I'm a fan of that guy, so okay. um, I might switch. I might switch horses. And in terms of catastrophizing, Doctor Hershenfeld, yes, the the Democrats lose the House. They're probably going to keep the Senate, although I'm usually wrong. Uh, does that frighten you as much as it frightened you two years ago, the thought of Donald Trump getting reelected? Because you were spooked two years ago. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm being overly optimistic. I can't imagine Trump himself could win again. And... Um, but there are a lot of Trumpers out there who are running. I do think the women in this country may pull it off because of uh, Roe v. Wade being overturned. That gives me a little optimism. Also, we're in a war. And very often, the president during a war gets extra support. You're referring to the war on Christmas? That one and the other war in in, in Europe right now. Yes. So I think, you know, like Yogi Berra said, predictions are really hard, especially about the future. (laughs) Do you want to be... uh, Quizzed by the quiz master because we we've scheduled the, the the quiz master. Do you do you have time to be Why not? to be Why humiliated? Not? Okay, uh, I don't I don't humiliate easily because I I know my and accept my limitations. Well, this oh, can I before we do that? Can I do one other plug? Yes, um, people, uh, citizens of of Feldmanistan, please. Go to IMDb and look me up. I really would appreciate it. Apparently, that's how that thing works. It's an algorithm. Just go to IMDb and search for me and see what I've been up to. I haven't had an audition in 12 days, which is a first for me in a long time. I don't know what's going on. Um, my algorithm is 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 a little flaccid at the moment. So I need some <laughs> help fluffing my algorithm. Please. <laughs> FeldmanWatchesFluffMyAlgorithm.com Everybody who's watching now. Go to IMDb and search Ethan Hershenfeld. I beg you. Thank you, Professor Lee. Let's put that link in the chat rooms, shall we? Thank you. Everybody. And I'll put the link in the description of this show so people can click on it and look at your resume. I will click on it, but I will not look at your resume. Okay. Don't click. It's too much for me to handle. It's private. It's private. But also, uh, someone asks, do I have to do anything? You know, click around a little bit if you can, or just search for it. I don't know how it works. I don't even know what an algorithm is. Uh, but but apparently, this helps. Anyway, enough plugs. Thank you. This is the bean counters controlling us. 
This is yes. these are agents and managers and casting agents and producers. You mean the Jews? Yes. Well, I didn't. I wanted. To, goes without saying. Listen, they, Ethan's very smart nephew, who at one time was reading twenty different news sources from the far right to the far left, just so he would figure out what's going on in this country. In his opinion, the downfall of this country is that news programs get advertising bucks based on the clicks. So the more outrageous and right-wing or left-wing they can be, the more they can charge for advertising. You know, I was trying to be responsible in September. I thought, you know, I want to report, I, I, I want to do an opening, like the first hour, have it be real news. Uh, but I, and, and that's what I, I just don't think there's a huge, I think like what Amy Goodman attempts to do, there's a limited audience for the, for the absolute truth mm -hmm. for what's going on in yeah. the world. The real truth uh, that, that can be substantiated, that, that can be backed up. Uh, people, unfortunately, uh, they want a, the story to continue. Like January 6th, is a story that we sink our teeth into and it has a beginning and a middle and an end. And, you know, it's like the perils of Pauline. Well, they're going to get them now. They're going to get mm -hmm. Trump now. They pick up on that over at MSNBC and CNN. Yeah. And, and just to, yeah, they want something. We can, Are we going to get quizzed or not? Come on. Okay. Time okay. now for the quiz master. Please welcome Dan Frankenberger. So for today's quiz, we have uh, to improve the then unsatisfactory methods of instructing midshipmen. George Bancroft, historian, educator, and secretary of the Navy, founded the U.S. Naval Academy on this day in 1845. Today's quiz is on the U.S. Navy. The U.S. Navy. We have six questions. That's not that's not the Navy. That's, the Navy. that's not the Navy. Uh, hang on. Is this the Navy? No. In one of these questions, it is. Okay, good. Go ahead. <laughs> Uh, are you going to put any money in the kitty? Oh, let me put some money in the kitty here. All right. We're playing for some money here. We have, we have six questions, and the order is going to go uh, uh, Dr. Hershenfeld, then Ethan, and then David. Okay, so I'm winning, by the way. I have five points just for that. Question number one. Who's, uh, doctor, who's up you, first? Doctor. Doctor. Who said I have not yet begun to fight? My was first, it, my first wife, and my second it, wife. And John my Paul Jones. Was it Admiral David Glasgow Farragut? 
Captain John Paul Jones. I, that's what I just said, John Paul Jones. Captain James Lawrence. Doesn't or, he hear me? Or Rabbi Saul Rosenberg. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Let me give you some advice. Since yeah. you since you knew the answer, I'm yeah. going to agree with you. Okay, good. I, I, I'm going to agree with him also. Yeah. You have no choice. Okay. Are all three of you saying the same answer? Yeah. Paul Paul Jones? Jones? The correct Paul. answer is Captain John Paul Jones. That is correct. Right, so. See, so we all get one point. That's how it works. So I'm winning six. Six to one to one. Yeah. Okay. Ethan. Yes, sir. Th this ship was where the treaty ending World War II was. The Lusitania. You're not supposed to do that because. Oh, okay. It, 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 the circle line. <laughs> <laughs> its hull number is BB-63 and its nickname is Mighty Mo. What is this famous ship's real name? Is it the U.S. Montana, the USS Oklahoma, the USS Missouri, or the USS Schmighty Mo. I'm going to go with B, whatever the second one was. Uh, Ethan says the USS Oklahoma. What was David? the question again? Where they signed the peace treaty, World War II. I happen to know that. Me too. So Ethan said the USS Oklahoma. Okay, I'm going to switch. It was the Missouri. I agree. <clears throat> yeah, Ethan. the Missouri. Correct. The correct answer is the Missouri. <laughs> All right, seven to two to two. David, you're up. Okay. <clears throat> David. It, yes, sir. Where is Shipwreck U? Is it Annapolis, Maryland, Baltimore, Maryland, Charleston, South Carolina, or Anchorage? <laughs> uh, wow, somebody uh, was up all night writing this. Anchorage. Uh, I'm going to say uh, Annapolis. Doctor. That's, yeah. I'm going to say, what was the third one? The third one was Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston. I'm going for Charleston. No, it's Annapolis because that's the Naval Academy. I was there once. I sang it might be there. a trick question. The correct answer is Annapolis. <laughs> Dr. Hershenfeld falling behind. Thank you. So, so, so it's three to three to one, or if you want to cheat, it's eight to three to one. Yeah. I mean, to two. Eight to three to two. And, and you're going to do two. some numerology in it after this. Okay. Yes. Question number four. Uh, Dr. Philip, you are first. An incident involving this warship led to declaration of war. What type of ship was the main? Was it a battleship, a submarine, a light cruiser, or a romantic relay shunship? Give me, it was a canoe. Oh, oh, hang on for one second. Am I up? Nope, doctor. No, I'm up. Oh, do you remember the main? No, even though we were commanded to. Um, give me my choices again. It was a battleship, yeah. a submarine, a light cruiser, or a, or a Roman tick relay shunship. I'm going to go for a battleship. Ethan. Um... Battle, what were the choices again? Battleship, submarine, light cruiser, 
or Roman tick relay shunship. It was a light cruiser. Oh boy. I'm going to go with battleship. The correct answer is a battleship. Wow. So I get one point. Dr. Hirschfeld gets one point. Dr. and I are tied. Yes. And I'm, I'm in the lead. Wow. By one or by six, if you like. By one or by six. Question number five, Ethan is first. I'm very was, competitive, by the way. Yes, sir. That's why I got the answers before the show started. But Who was the father of nuclear propulsion in the U.S. Navy? Was it Admiral Hopper, Admiral Halsey, Admiral Rickover, or Admiral Bang Bang Zoom? It was Admiral Hopper. David. Uh, oh, give, give me the choice. One of them is Jewish, by the way, I think. Uh, the choices are Admiral Hopper, Admiral Halsey, Admiral Rickover, or Admiral Bang Bang Zoom. I'm going to go with switching. It was Halsey. It was Halsey. I'm going to say Rickover. I think I, if I think I think he was like Jimmy Carter was his protege. I think. You're right. It was definitely Rickover. The correct answer is Rickover. <laughs> and and was he Jewish? Yes. And he was... Uh, he was a nuclear um, physicist. And he and he was an admiral in the Navy. He was. I've just fallen behind, so now it's David, Phil, Ethan. Yes. So I, served, the... I served under Rick Mover. Really? You served? Maybe... No, you didn't serve. It's an under-over... David, question number six. The final question. How long did the Nimitz-class aircraft carrier go between its launch and its first refueling? Was it 26 years, two years, five years, or seven inches? So it's a nuclear submarine. It needs refueling. Give me the... Give me the uh... Here's the question again. How long did the Nimitz-class aircraft carrier go between its launch and its first refueling? 26 years, 2 years, 5 years, or 7 inches? Wow. Well, we don't know if it's a nuclear... It's not nuclear-powered, right? And we're not going to tell you because we're trying to... Knock you out. I'm going to say two years. Dr. Phillip? 26 years. Um, I'm going to go with uh, the doctor. The correct answer is 26 years. My strategy on that question was to listen neither to the question nor the answers. <laughs> So are we tied now? It worked. Yeah, we're all tied up. Oh, is that it? Let's end it there. We don't need a tiebreaker. No, I'm very competitive. In the spirit of comedy. I'm very competitive. Well, there's no more questions. So let me tell you you a story. Okay. I was playing. Last half full, you're all a bunch of winners. I was playing table tennis the other day with a friend and we decided not to compete. We simply rallied for the whole hour. 
and we had much better rallies and a much better workout, and it was much more fun. And who won? I leave you with that who thought. Who won? Everyone was a winner. What was the score? We all scored infinity. Ah, okay. Thank you, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. Great Can job. I give you a piece of advice? <laughs> yes, finally, yes. If you keep running down rich people, yes. people are going to start to think you're a socialist. Okay? Just think about that. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Cryptic Zen koan to finish. Well, we wouldn't want that. Thank you, Dr. Okay. Now I know why everybody thinks I'm a socialist. There you go. Thank you. Oh, last thing I want to say. Go to Movement Voter Project, MVP, movement.vote. Make a donation. Let's uh, do what we can in the next four weeks to not see this democracy crash and burn. Movement.vote. And, like and who are year. you supporting? Just the good guys. Ra Raphael Warnock, right? Yeah, Warnock. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, there, Kelly. there is, I mean, there, it is conceivable that we could really take, take the Senate. There are some yeah, exactly. duds. Yeah. yeah, let's do what we can do. Movement.vote. That's my suggestion. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so Bye. much. Thank you. That Toodles. was great. Thank you. God you're, bless. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Thank you, Dan Frankenberger. Office hours this Friday at 8 p.m. And very, very special announcement. I will not be there for the first hour when I usually host. And Colleen Worthman and Leah McEnany will. They are taking my time slot from eight till nine, you get to talk to Colleen Worthman and Liam McEnany. How exciting is that? We will be back with the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, but first, some music from Professor Mike Steinel. The song is dedicated to Nadine, who turns 100 today. Well, that isn't happening, is it? No, it is not. What happened? What happened there? Okay, uh, let's try. Why isn't, let me just see something. I was, don't panic. How great was that, Dan, when I told Rusty Schweikert not to panic? That was like the highlight. <laughs> that was amazing. That was like the highlight of my life. I, I was he, like, uh, I could feel the pride in yourself. Uh -huh, I got to tell Rusty <laughs> Schweikert, don't panic. Uh, my food is here and I want to eat it because I'm running out of steam. So let me, why am I not? What's going on here? Right, let's try this. I'm a poor scene gourmand of the art of romance. I'm a maestro of the boudoir when I take off my pants. All of this is true, all of the above. I wouldn't lie to you. I'm a pig for love. 
Appetite's rapacious, but my capacity is dim. I seem so audacious, some call me Gentleman Jim. When all is said and done, and push comes to shove, I'm second to none, cause I'm a pig for love. Others won't come close Cause they think I'm suspicious Please pardon me If I'm somewhat repetitious Like a hand in a glove I'm a pig for love Yeah, I'm a pig for love He's a pig What you here for? We heard about your song. We think it's seditious. I said, can we talk later? I'm doing the dishes. I said, what's the problem? What's the fuss? They said, we're the FBI. Don't you mess with us. We can lock you up. We can put you away. We can make it so you never see the light of day. I said, Thelma made me do it. Thelma made me do it. The failure made me do it, and that's all there is to it. Got a text this morning from a former student. It said we heard you on the show. You were not prudent. You said the upper professor, is that true? We really expected much better from you. I said, Thelma made me do it. Thelma made me do it. Thelma made me do it. And that's all there is to it. Amazon called it was customer service. They said we need to cut it out. You're beginning to hurt us. You made fun of our boss. You better stop now. If you don't, he'll ship you off to Minden now. I said, Thelma made me do it. Thelma made me do it. Thelma made me do it. And that's all there is to it. I got a letter from
from the lawyer from no evil food Just said we don't like your song or your attitude It's time now, professor, to cease and desist The folks I represent are really pissed I said, Feldman made me do it Feldman made me do it Feldman made me do it And that's all there is to it That's right. I do it, I do it, I do it, I do it. Welcome back. You're listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. I'm eating. I was having hunger pangs, so I um, ordered some seamless. I'm embarrassed to tell you. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn joins us. I got really hungry. Usually I can wait till the, the show is over, Reverend. Why didn't you wait tonight? I got really hungry. What, so you you eat when you're hungry instead of eating three square meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner at a respectable time like 5.30 or 6.30 Eastern. Yes, Reverend. Yes. I've been bad. How are you, how are uh, you feeling? Um, I still uh, am feeling under the weather. I, I did test negative yesterday for COVID, but I had uh, all those days since last week when I was still positive. And, you know, it doesn't go away right away. You you feel kind of punk. And I don't mean that in a musical sense. You just feel bad for days afterwards. Oh. So, but I'm back I, you know, I was I was glad to listen to the Hershenfelds, but I was hoping Emil would be on right before me so I could challenge him. And if Dan's still with us, I would like to do a quiz next week about Asian cinema. Do you think I could do that? Well, you're not supposed to be quizzed on what you know. What? Well, it's supposed no. to be no, but that—that's not the no, 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 no. Well, why don't you that, write a quiz? That's the point. I'm going to write a quiz, but I'd like Emil, who is uh, of Asian background, I'd like him to participate, and you and anybody else can participate. How's that? I think we should ask Doctor Philip Hershenfeld. He's a Freudian psychoanalyst. Right. Emil is on at ten thirty. I miss right. I missed Emil at seven thirty, so I got hungry. I wanted a meal, huh. and I'm having yeah. a meal. I, th- <laughs> I think my hunger pangs, and I'm actually eating something that he told me about. I'm eating 
there's a fast food Chinese restaurant who now makes <laughs> orange chicken <laughs> that's vegan. Yep. I, I ordered it, and it's pretty good. Good. Tell me about your good. COVID. Well, it's... Um, I have a terrible sore throat, and I'm just exhausted. I mean, normally I don't... I. I don't even wake up now till 9 or 10 in the morning. And I'm totally exhausted until I have a cup of coffee. Sound like me. Well, do you, do you tell me you don't get up till 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning? I get up, depending, <clears throat> anywhere between 7 and 9. Okay. Lately, because I gave up coffee. Huh. Wait a minute. You gave up coffee. So when you wake up at 8 o'clock, you don't go and make a cup of coffee. Is that what you're trying to convince us of? No, I have coffee in the morning. Well, I don't well, I don't drink coffee after the morning. Are you I No, drink- I don't drink I don't drink coffee after about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, but um you know, I Anyway, that's my story. All right. That's my story. And um, I was supposed to MC a folk music concert back in Washington on Saturday night. And unfortunately, of course, I couldn't go. So they had to tape some of my introductory comments about the two really terrific women singer-songwriters who were on the program, both of whom I know, which is why... I was asked to introduce them. Well, should, let's talk about the hearings. Did you watch tonight's? Yes, I, I watched every minute of it. And how did how did they do? I think they did extraordinarily well. I think if you watched all of the previous uh, hearings, that you might have said there was too much repetition, but. I don't buy that criticism because I think one of the things that they did this afternoon very effectively was to build on statements that had been made by other witnesses showing new excerpts from their either in-person or in-private communications with the committee. And I thought it was very, very powerful. You have to... If this is going to be successful, what has to happen is you have to show that Donald Trump knew some things that he doesn't like to talk about. You have to – he has to be disproven when he says, for example, he didn't watch anything on television for the first two hours of the uh, insurrection. And today there was lots of evidence that lots of people saw him watching. He was sitting in the dining hall at the uh, White House, and he was watching television all the time, and multiple witnesses said that. So he can't say, gee, I just didn't realize how serious all this was, because he was seeing it right before his own eyes. And... That's very important because you have to demonstrate that he somehow knew something was going on in order to get to the next stage, which is did he have any obligation to do anything about it? 
The other really persuasive thing today was just showing the weight of the evidence that he had long before election night, he had developed the way to... um, Developed the way to uh, announce that he was going to say he won under any circumstance. And I mean, we've heard those rumors, but I think there was much more evidence presented today that he knew exactly what he was doing and that he knew in advance that he was never going to accept the verdict. And at one point, he even says... I, I, I mean, it's allegedly says that um, that he uh, strangling myself here. He said he didn't um, he didn't know that there was any pre-planning for this, and there clearly was. And uh, he he just there's nothing left for him to deny if all of these people are called at trial. Some of the people that testified today had initially said they didn't want their names mentioned, including someone who works for Twitter and who um, did now divulge, and there there was even a photograph of her today, where she talked about the enormous an amount of hateful comments that were coming in to Twitter within 10 minutes of him tweeting out uh, his first of two tweets that day. I mean, it's just, it's overwhelming. It's, it's overwhelming evidence. The question is, does it matter to anyone at this point? stage of the game and i'm afraid i'm afraid that the polling data which i don't trust but i mainly don't trust it if it says democrats are going to win um they look it looks disastrous in wisconsin with that idiot ron johnson who should never have been elected in the first place never re-elected certainly is still a defender of the stealing the vote philosophy he's now in the poll from today six points ahead of mandela barnes six points that's that's almost impossible to overcome and i think what mandela barnes although now he says you know he supports the police and all that they did he he made a lot of comments months ago about defunding the police and johnson's people have gone back very strong saying this is not this is what the guy really believes and i think since we've had a couple of days of polling i i think that's going to really hurt him and he he would this he and fetterman and fetterman by the way there's an appalling you know, I hate Morning Joe. I, I just, I hate that show. I never watch it. But I do watch excerpts from it occasionally. And he had uh, Chris Matthews on yesterday on the Scarborough show. When, and Matthews was um, claiming that Fetterman's vocal problems were very serious. Now, it's, <laughs> you know, I had the same thing years ago that Fetterman had. 
that kind of stroke, and I didn't have uh, the diff. I didn't have to use notes. I didn't have to use a teleprompter, which he apparently does use. But this is an accommodation for someone who has at least a temporary disability. But if you listen to Chris Matthews, you'd think it was a no-brainer that Fetterman shouldn't be elected to the United States. Yeah, it's not a moral issue. Uh, It's an issue really of he's not he's got to vote properly in the Senate. Is his is his heart in the right place? He may be having heart. Correct. Does he have some heart issues? Yes, uh, probably. But is he going to vote for the people of Pennsylvania? Yes. Is Dr. Oz going to vote for the people of Pennsylvania? No. <laughs> no. And and we should celebrate somebody who's, I mean, I'm not happy he's had a stroke, no. but we should celebrate people with disability and his courage to keep going. That's right. And he's going to get better. It's, uh, you know, Franklin Roosevelt had a stroke and had polio people get through it of course they do and and strom thurmond the last couple of years that he was in the senate he was so debilitated that when he would chair a committee like a armed services committee he would have to ask someone next to him a staff member who he should call on because he could no longer remember the other names of colleagues on the committee and nobody nobody said i mean people noticed it it was impossible not to see it if you were watching a hearing but the idea that he um that he should leave or that there was something terribly wrong no democrat no republicans even mentioned it so you obviously don't have the covid Mm -hmm. brain fog that's that's apparent going back i don't think i do going back to the hearings yes one of the things listening to you talk i think it's fair to say that donald trump isn't the worst president this country has ever had but he's the most corrupt. I think that's that's totally fair. And and that being a bad president isn't necessarily criminal. It should be yeah. if you're George W. Bush yeah. and right. you, that's criminal to lie your way of course into it a is. war. Of course it is. People can be bad presidents. But the problem with Trump is... It's just a con job from start to finish. It was just one violation of the emoluments clause after another. Right. Constitutionally incapable of telling the truth. That's right. And brought out the worst in everybody he came in contact with. Was the the. COVID. Well, what what about COVID? Does he get all the blame for COVID? Is that fair to blame him for for COVID? Well, yes, it is, because he knew exactly how easy it was to transmit uh, within a week of when the epidemic started. And uh, he he kept saying it'll go away. He knew it wouldn't go away. He knew what was causing this. And he lied to the American people about it. He 
I said at the time, after about six months, that if you're going to look at the greatest mass killers in elected office, you would have to go to Pol Pot, Stalin, Hitler, and Donald Trump. Okay, just to play this out, let me just make, okay. let me make, obviously I agree with you, but when you look at other countries and their response to COVID mm-hmm. and the backlash they got, except in China where they do what they're told, mm-hmm. could you have locked down this country? You couldn't lock down Italy or Spain or France or Germany or, or Sweden or Great Britain. There was pushback. There were. Yeah. So, I mean, what would have happened had the one thing about Obama mm-hmm. with monkeypox, uh, Ebola. Ebola, yeah. He was competent. But he didn't have to deal with this. Do you think he could have locked down this country and stopped COVID in in its tracks without the Republicans calling this a a socialist takeover of our economy? Could he have been able to do it? Barack Obama had some limitations, uh, and I, I never thought he was completely honest about so many things. But, yes, I think he could have done a much better job because he would not have stood before the American people day after day. Remember, he used to be on television every afternoon right. t- spouting about some theory he had or some new drug that he claimed would be working. Right. And I miss, uh, I miss Barack that. Obama that would fun. not do it. Yeah, it was funny. And you'd see in the corner of the television screen the number of people that had died that day and i'm sure you got a chuckle out of that too mm-hmm. yeah but it's um i i think obama would have done a much much better job on explaining what this was how serious it was and why we needed to make some strategic decisions so that we didn't lose as many people in that first year of over a half a million people. Yeah, I, I think Barack Obama would have been able to do it. I don't think he would have cared what the Republicans said. And I don't think he would have the sycophants that Trump had acting as medical advisors and coming out and either saying nothing or uh, kind of affirming that, yes, maybe this drug would work, maybe it would, uh, we should try it. Because Peter Navarro and uh, everybody but Anthony Fauci, who was ever there with Trump, was basically saying, I've got we've, we've, we've got no problems. The president has an answer. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have an answer. And he just makes stuff up. And then it gets multiplied by Fox News. And, you know, there's... There's a, I suspect, uh, I'm not sure there is a hell, but if there is one, I would think that uh, Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram are two of the people who would be most likely to be led through those three, the three-headed dog Cerberus (laughs) that is sitting on the gate to get into hell. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn 
is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. He is also an ordained lawyer. He is a member of the Supreme Court Bar. He ran uh, Americans United for separation of church and state. He's been fighting the far right and the religious zealots in this country practically all your adult life. And uh, we thank you for that. And uh, there have been some prayers of, are they called prayers of imprecation? What, what are they called? Imp- imprecatory prayers. Imprecatory uh, prayers. Yes, and there, there are many to be found, particularly in what Christians call the Old Testament, um, where you're praying for the death or serious illness of someone uh, that you don't like. And you've been on the receiving end of several By- imprecatory prayers. This is true, uh, too. Uh, One by Pastor Wiley Drake in California, and another from a Christian football coach in Ohio. So maybe they're just, maybe it's, you know, they're getting, maybe they're getting somewhere. I I got my double boosted booster. The bivalve? the bi, the I don't know if it's the bivalve, it's but it's, they, they gave yeah, what, me an oyster to swallow and said, "Did they really? Yeah. yeah, they don't trust that." Oh, okay. Um, and oysters, you probably, you, you, you know, oysters are living things, and you don't, you don't eat chicken, you don't eat fish, you don't eat meat. You shouldn't be eating oysters. Oh, now you tell me. <sighs> yeah, he well, can, and he can't eat chicken if you're no. if you're a vegan. Well, no, you're not, you're not supposed to be eating they got chicken. Those little tiny. Br- I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, I've, I've, See, I found I something, that. Reverend. Yeah. Tell I, me. I found a, a hit mm. from the past that you've always talked about, and I thought I would play it for you, and you could tell us who this is and how it turned out. All right. And the wind and the waves obeyed him. Now, Lord, in the name of Jesus, we come against this hurricane Gloria and we command those wind storms to be still in the name of Jesus. And we command that that storm would continue to go farther to the north and the east and go harmlessly out into the Atlantic Ocean without any damage to life and property in the name of Jesus. I played it. In his name, we forbid you to come into this area. I played a, a In Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Thank you. And amen. All right. Yep. Do you remember the, there was that great, uh, there was that great, the great uh, video of the preacher and they added the farting sound in the 90s and it got spread. This is before YouTube. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what was that? <laughs> well, this was his effort. There was a hurricane heading for Virginia Beach, his whole compound, his university, a couple of his cathedrals, and he prayed that it would move. Now, what he says in that clip is that he prays that it goes north and then east out to sea. What it did was it hit parts of New England and caused several fatalities, I think, in Connecticut as well as here in Massachusetts. So he he was, um, but he was really good at this. He he would make these predictions. He would say these things that were unbelievable that anyone would 
possibly consider these to be taken seriously. But he would say them with the, the profundity that you just saw if people are watching instead of just listening to this. And, you know, he... The number of things that man said that were not true. Once he, he said that he, he didn't think women were as good as men, as smart as men, because there was no master chess champion who was a woman. Hmm. And that was a lie. There were three at the time. There have been a couple since. But he would just make this stuff up. A, kind of a precursor to Donald Trump just making up anything. And he um, he was a... Um, people found it surprising. I did once hear... Robertson, Pat Robertson, give a sermon about poverty in the Philippines, of all things. And it was brilliant. I mean, he when he gets himself excited and he's actually telling something that's true, he can be a pretty powerful communicator. But, of course, mainly he was communicating total lies. Right. Should total we lies. Should we continue uh, talking about... The January 6th committee, or would you like me to play some clips of some religious nuts? Um, well, I would like, at some point, I'd like to talk about Judge Roy Moore in Alabama. Who, because Tommy, who had, who had who, to, Tommy Tuberville's old job. Who, 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 no, no. Who no, no, ran for Tommy a, Tuberville. He ran... And he lost. He lost. And he lost in the primary to Tuberville, but he he lost to Doug Jones, right? Uh, earlier right. than that. So there is a little bit of news about him. But you know, the the question I have is who watches like the some of us do and watch intently and take notes about what the committee members are saying and what the witnesses are saying does anybody who's still thinking about voting for ron johnson or voting for um, herschel walker or voting for dr oz do they do they care i think they don't care about anything that's happening and i tuned for about three minutes to Fox News. I was watching this on CNN and I turned on and they, they had somebody, one of their second tier hosts on talking about how, well, it is just no evidence that the president was directing people to commit criminal acts. Really? That is nonsense. But if you hear that enough time, it's kind of like, I think, uh, psychologists call it the big lie. If you repeat something endlessly over and over again, then some other media picks it up. Then you've heard it from two places. I just saw this on Fox News and it was on the Drudge Report. Right. And therefore it must be true. Right. And, but, but those, I, I think. It is safe to say that Fox News only covers these hearings when they're on in the afternoon, that they don't get they don't run them in the evening because they don't want America to lose a chance to hear what Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram. Right. Right. So is Trump going to testify? 
No. And would it Here's be a good I... idea for for the Democrats to bring him before the committee? Could they control him? Yeah, I think they could control him. Here's what I think. I'll bet that he's sitting around now going and yelling about, I'm going to testify. Right. They didn't. He already sent out a tweet saying, if they wanted me to testify, why'd they wait till the last minute? Right. No, I think cooler heads will prevail. Most of his lawyers who had any sense at all, of course, are no longer representing him. So he will find some people. He will Maybe he'll call the pillow guy and say, what do you think? Should I testify? And then Mike Lindell will say, he, 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 you should definitely testify. <laughs> I would testify because that's but I don't believe it's going to happen. I think he's going to listen to them, and then cooler heads will recognize that this man is uncontrollable, that he says whatever he wants, that he he will make a jackass out of himself. This will not be Hillary explaining Benghazi. This will not be uh, Cecile Richards explaining money to Planned Parenthood. Those were effective, very, very long hearings where people... People didn't make a mistake. Donald Trump goes. If he goes, he'll make a mistake in the first words uttered from Absolutely. his mouth. Absolutely. But he's been doing that since we first met him, mm -hmm. and he still hasn't been locked up. Could he go before <laughs> the January 6th committee and lie? Because he can't help himself. And right. would, would they do anything about it? Well, I mean... Uh, <laughs> If he depends what he lies about, but you know, we're, if we're really talking about the only thing that he's done wrong is to perjure himself in the unlikely event that he actually shows up and testifies, uh, that's not saying much about the effectiveness of the prosecution of Donald Trump. There are plenty of other things he did. The evidence is mounting. Toward the end of the hearing, before they announced and did that vote to show that they were all in sync to have him uh, subpoenaed to testify, they weren't going to ask him. They were going to go directly to subpoenaing him. And, um, you know, within 30 minutes, he's up on his um, his little uh, alternative to Twitter, talking about how they should have asked him earlier. He he's in he is incapable of telling the truth. He's utterly incapable. I I don't think I've ever seen a politician in all the years I spent in Washington. I don't think I ever saw a politician who could as bold-facedly lie as Donald J. Trump. Never. Let me, let me, and I knew some doozies. Yeah. Let me, can I tell you a personal story? Of course. So I had to take a train for a job. Hmm. And trains are expensive. And I was told hmm. I was going to be reimbursed. And I was working for somebody who has money company that has money and I send a copy of my credit card statement <laughs> and I get an email back saying well we need a receipt we need the actual <laughs> receipt and I politely say can I can I I've done this before 
where, you know, to get reimbursed, I just do a snapshot of my credit card statement. You see that I put it on my bill. I obviously bought this ticket on Amtrak and I get an email back. No, the accountant, it has to be a receipt. And now I got to go. I can't find the receipt. And I said, so I write back. Can I? Uh, I can't find the receipt. Why would you think I would be? And they check with the accountant and the accountant says, no, we need a specific type of receipt. And I, I, I write back. It's, it was done through an app, an Amtrak app. There was no paper receipt. I didn't keep it. And I didn't send the email that I wanted to send. I I'm just because I just want to get reimbursed because Amtrak is expensive. Of course. What I wrote and then cooler heads prevailed is this is an example of of why we can't lock up Trump. Hmm. Because if I were powerful, if I was somebody who was more powerful in your accountant's eyes, the, the money would arrive. His rules yep. or her rules only apply to the powerless. That's what yep. I wrote. I didn't yeah. send it, but I said, "Yeah, the, the, you, you, it's our system it, it dictates we have to do." And I, I, I wanted to get on the phone and just, who the f do you think you're talking to? That your system it has to be this. <laughs> what do you, what do you think? I just, I'm 21 years old, and I think the whole system breaks down if you don't have paper receipts. Nobody has paper receipts, you know. And I thought this is. The rules only apply to the powerless. If you are perceived as powerful, you get to do whatever you want in this country, including murder. You know, you get to murder people and get away with it. Gee, David, you think? I know. I know. I know. Everybody knows this already. But you you, I, I feel like a fool uh, watching those hearings because I always take the bait. We got him this time. We got him now. Right? He's dead to rights now. Yeah, he is. He's not going to prison. And I think there's a disservice eventually that we all do. I think MSNBC and CNN do a disservice by keeping this story going because... Why isn't he in prison already? Right. You know, Mueller, the second part of the Mueller report specifically said you can try him for obstruction of justice. Correct. Correct. Forget forget his crimes. We know he's a criminal. We need to hold hearings into why we just can't seem to put him in. I spent a night in jail yeah. and I'm innocent, but I, of course, but, but I spent a night in jail in Washington, D.C. Yeah. This MFer <laughs> can't spend one. Are you effing kidding me? Are you kidding me? That's the hearing we, right? It's, it's kind of a fool's oh. errand to think <clears throat> to, to keep this sh- charade going. <laughs> 
Well, here's the problem. Did I say charade? You said charade. We have British listeners. Okay. okay. But I didn't understand what the word meant. So, <laughs> uh, and I, uh, But I, was, I, I went to uh, Boxing Day once, at, and I went to Harrods. It's a very, very Harrods silly is nice. place. Yeah, it's nice. Very expensive. More expensive than Amtrak. Um, here's why. What are the Democrats going to talk about this late in the game? If they took you up on that and, and they just had a, a brief hearing, they said, we're doing whatever is necessary. Uh, we're not making any recommendations. I don't think they will make any recommendations for prosecution. But then what are what is a Fetterman going to talk about? What is Mandela Barnes going to talk about? And I mean, it's, Socialize, a, it's a thin, How about socialized medicine? How about something? Yeah, well, well yeah. We, yeah, but yeah, they're not going to talk about that. They're lucky to talk about Medicare for all. And even that, you know, I've just had another, I, you know, I, I love Medicare in theory, but every time I try to use it, like imagine I, I was in a Medicare program in Washington. Now I'm living in Massachusetts. I can't even get my Medicare transferred because the the Kaiser Permanente system that's very active in parts of the West Coast and in Washington, D.C., but they don't have any facilities up here. So I'm just trying to get... I Three days ago, I started the application process to change my Medicare. I'm still waiting here on Thursday night. Right. It, well, have you tried not getting auto- sick? Yes, I did try. I thought real hard about it, and I even considered calling Pat Robertson and asking for some healing, but then I gave up because, I have a feeling he's praying for you, but not for healing. No, I don't think he's praying for healing, but uh, he was... The imprecatory. I don't know if he does imprecatory prayers. Quite possibly that he does. But uh, he... No, he's just... uh, He's a... But Robertson is a terrible person. Jerry Falwell is a terrible, was a terrible person. But Jerry was just stupid, in addition to being a horrible per- person. I think Robertson actually is a pretty smart. He could put together coalitions. He could act politically. And he could get away with an enormous amount of nonsense. He once, since we're coming up to Halloween... He he did a show once where he had someone who talked about how witches were getting together and they were going to poison Halloween candy. That's what's going on now with the fentanyl. <laughs> that that it is because it rainbow fentanyl, of course. It, uh, why I don't quite understand why the rainbow color is making fentanyl so much more uh, beloved by so many people in New York and elsewhere. But no, the the poisoned candy thing, I I was actually with, (laughs) when I used to do this radio show on my own, I had uh, some Wiccans on uh, to comment on this uh, extraordinary statement from Pat Robertson about the poison candy. And it's, um, it's just, 
but he believed it. He did mm-hmm. believe it. Falwell believed, I think, almost all of the stupid things he said. People would always say, well, did Jerry Falwell really believe that? And, and I go, yeah, I think he does really, really believe that. Well, now, these other scammers that you're going to play in a minute probably uh, don't necessarily believe it. But Jerry, I think, did. Yeah. That's one of the urban myths about poison candy. Of course. There was never any, there were reports of poison candy, but they never found any. Now, again, for Halloween, if you're a parent, check your kid's candy. You never know. Or here's a better idea. Don't have your kids uh, eat candy. (laughs) When I was a kid, we would raise money for UNICEF. Yep. Trick or treat for UNICEF. And then we keep the money, but at least we weren't getting cavities. Yeah, I was going to say, gee, I I think you were the guy that beat me up to take my money for UNICEF. Yeah, you must have been a younger person then. But But um, we used to raise, I wasn't allowed to eat sugar. So, you know, we raised money for you. In all seriousness, we raised money for UNICEF. Absolutely. Absolutely. And people would come to the, the door and give you pennies. Hmm? And you had a what? What happened to UNICEF? What happened to that? I don't know. I haven't heard from them about them in years. But do, do kids? The kids do not raise money for UNICEF. Anymore. I don't think so. Who decided to stop that? I don't know. But they ought to be. That would make an punished. interesting. Some, yeah. that would make an interesting story. Exactly. How yes, did that would. end? Yes, it Does would. anybody know what year they decided, no, 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 just candy. <laughs> just, just, How no. about apples? Yeah. You know, but, people would give you apples, and that was, it wasn't that they were poisoning the apples, but they were hiding razor blades in the apples. That was the other big urban myth. My mother, God bless her, because <laughs> somebody has to, my mother was, I wasn't allowed to eat sugar growing up. So the minute I left, you know, I, I went right to alcohol. I didn't even stop for, I just, I just drank pure sugar. I was so starved for sugar. She wouldn't give out candy on Halloween. And I said, Ma, you have to, get, it's dangerous. The name, this is like kids are, it's trick or yeah. Yeah. treat. You got to give them, I'm not, a, I don't approve of this. This is disgusting Mm -hmm. it's gonna kill you kids i'm giving i swear to you she one year she (laughs) gave and the stains are still on the house she gave out apples and i said to her you're out of your effing mind she said no i'm giving out apples i said they they're gonna be right they think you put razor blades in them i swear to you she said, why would I give out razor blades? The police know who I am. If, if I'm the only person giving out razor, uh, giving out or giving out apples, they'll know it's me. So, how you know, why would I do that? It doesn't matter. Nobody's going to eat apples. And I watch we're playing. We used to play street hockey. Yeah. And my friends and I were down the street playing hockey and we would wait to watch the kids Go to the door. My mother would give them an apple and they she would shut the door. You know, she'd go, you'll thank me. You'll thank yeah. me. I swear to you, Reverend, 
<laughs> the end of the night, the house was just covered. In, <laughs> we could have made apple cider <laughs> off the aluminum cider. Just yeah. we could have scraped the house and, and made. Mm. made uh, it was unbelievable. And the stains yeah. are still there on the house. Really? Yeah. You know what else I did on Halloween? What? Um, I must have been like 14. And my mother said, you're, you're going to answer the door. And I said, no, I'm not. I got studying to do. She says, you're answering the door. I hate trick or treat. So I'm not doing this. So I said, all right, I have an idea. And I put an empty basket out with a sign. And it said, uh, we're not here, but we left plenty of Hostess ho-hos for everybody. Now, that, to give out, oh, that's like that's the, a lot. The north side of where I grew up, that you could get like Drakes mm -hmm. and Hostess Entenmans, sure. and they were giving out some nice shit. Not, but not where I grew up. So I just put out a sign that said, "There's plenty of Hostess ho-hos for everybody. Please take one." One. But it was empty. <laughs> and I sat by the door and my mother and I laughed for about three hours. These stupid kids. Oh, that's horrible. They oh took all I wanted. <laughs> my mother said, you are so evil. She says, you are so... I go, where do you think I learned it from? It's one of the happiest memories I have just sitting by the door, listening to kids. Go, we could have had hostess mm -hmm. ho-hos if people knew how to share and we're share. such pigs. Yeah, well, maybe if you were collecting for UNICEF, I would have gotten you a real hostess ho-ho. Yeah. Stories. Yeah, um, it's um, stories story. of true stories. Who do you want to start so, with? Metaxas? Uh, yeah, let, let's let's do him. But just at the very end, I got to talk about Roy Moore. Okay. Because we sued him twice. Okay. Uh, Metaxas, by the way, graduate <laughs> of Yale. Yep. And yes, he, he is. Here he is talking to Doug Mastriano. Mm -hmm. uh, here we go. Am I doing this right? <laughs> oh, no, I got to do it like this. Sorry. Choose file. Oh, don't do this to me. Mm. No, I'll do it this way. This may crash the whole system, but uh, here we go. People like Josh Shapiro, you know, I will say it, you can't, but he's a villain. He, he's focusing on things that are monstrous. This is not, well, we differ. This is evil, ladies and gentlemen, and you have a vote. And if you don't tell everyone you know in the state of Pennsylvania to vote for... Uh, Doug Mastriano uh, and against Josh Shapiro, you are aiding and abetting a horror story. People are being murdered. If you ever meet someone who has had a loved one murdered, this is it, it doesn't get worse when the government cannot protect us from from violent crime. That's as basic as it gets violent crime. And not only is Josh Shapiro, Doug Mastriano's opponent, not protecting the people of Pennsylvania from violent crime. His policies have aided and abetted it. It's the sort of thing, it's like out of a comic book. This is villainy. Uh, this is evil. And the only thing that has to happen is, folks, you need to get into that voting booth and you need to tell everyone you know because this is li literally lives are at stake. Uh, if a year from now a relative of yours is murdered and you didn't vote... 
you're going you're gonna to think, well, you know, maybe I should have voted. And that is courtesy of Right Wing Watch, Norman Lear's organization. Your thoughts? He does sound, John Hayes in the virtual studio, and he says, sounds like Feldman. Yeah, so that's something I would say. Yeah. Um, Mastriano is one of the few people, I think, who literally does not have a chance. He will not become the governor of Pennsylvania. Josh Josh will. But... um, he, did he ever let Mastriano actually respond, <laughs> or did he? Did, did you just edit this, or did, uh, he, what, did he continue? Did he say, "Well, let, let, let me see"? Yeah, I don't know. People like Josh Shapiro, you know, I will say it: a relative of yours is murdered. You're going to think, "Well, you know, maybe I should have voted." No. No, that's it. That's all. That's all we have in yeah. the clip. Well, Mastriano, of course, really wouldn't have anything to say. I think that's a safe governor uh, race. I think uh, it's kind of like Maryland. The governor, uh, the Democrat running there, is almost certain to win and flip that seat back to where it belongs in Democratic Party hands. But um, well, Mastriano, I mean, he. Every time, every time he speaks, every time he's constantly being reminded of his anti-Semitism, and the fact that he's he's actually bought time. I don't know that he's buying any more, but from a, a kind of neo-Nazi uh, who was. Uh, promoting some of his ads on uh, social media. I mean, Mastriano is literally has nothing to contribute to the body politic. I mean, he has nothing to contribute like Herschel Walker has nothing to contribute. It's not just do you want a Democrat or a Republican? Do you want somebody who has a basic understanding of how to make the country a better place? Mastriano has no ideas. What is he going to do? What, how's he going to stop crime in Pennsylvania? He has no plan. How is Herschel Walker going to make decisions about nuclear policy for the United States? He has nothing to contribute. So it isn't just a difference of opinion. It's some Democrats have opinions and these Republicans have no opinions. They're against everything. And that's not the basis for a vote. In the United States, you have to know what the hell you're talking about. You have to have some plan. You can criticize plans of somebody else, but then come up with a better one. That's what Donald Trump tried to do, claimed to try to do for four years. He didn't want Medicare for all. He didn't even want Medicare. He had a plan and he never, ever came up with one. Those are, those are the kinds of messages that um, to go back to a few minutes ago that maybe Democrats could, should campaign on. The fact that their opponents have no plans at all. Inflation, yes, it's higher. What's going to happen to make it go down? What is their answer? I've never seen anybody that besieged with ads in New England here for... Uh, New Hampshire senator, the Massachusetts governor, the Republicans ha- never have anything 
to say about what it is they will do if the people elect them. And that's the first thing you ought to know. What is someone going to do differently or better if you're running for the United States Senate? They're running on contempt of government. It's I, I try to get inside their shriveled minds, and I think, huh. what do I hate? I hate health insurance companies. Yep. And if I wanted to destroy a health insurance company and I had some backing from people, they would say, why don't we make David Feldman the head of Aetna? And I'll present myself, mm. uh, let me run Aetna into the ground, but I'm not going to tell you that. Right. And I'd be doing the, the, I'd have my dark supporters who nobody knows about, and I'll say, we're going to try to provide, Aetna is going to grow and we're going to provide, but I would secretly be destroying it from within because I hate Aetna. I hate all health insurance companies. I would, and I would be, I would have moral certitude that this is the right thing to do to deceive everybody into thinking, no, I really want to, you know, I think I can do some good running Aetna. That's who these people are. Yep. They want to destroy government from within. They truly believe government is evil. That's right. Is, um, you know, uh, who was the guy who said, uh, I don't like government. I just want it small enough that I can drown it in the bathtub. Grover Norquist. Grover Norquist. And you know what? You need water. <laughs> to, to, where are you going to get the water to drown that government, Grover? Exactly. Yeah. And he had no problem. He has no problem being a lobbyist and taking money no. uh, to lobby this government. But... Uh, Okay. He takes. I think he also took some PPP money. Yes, he didn't did. He? Yes, he yes, did. Yes, he did. Yeah. So, well, you know, consistency. Remember that guy, um, Peter King, who was a congressman in upstate New York. Yeah, from Republican. Long Island. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he would. I I have a lot of trouble with government's giving money to people to do social programs and for a while in baltimore maryland their a nation of islam was taking over security and being paid by the federal government and i remember king and i were on one one late night show together and uh then, of course, George Bush decides to create this thing called a faith-based initiative. And I'm at a party with King, and I go up to him and I say, Hey, Congressman, I guess you're going to join with me in saying that's a bad idea, too. And he looked at me and he said, uh, Oh, we don't have to be consistent. <laughs> right. Yep. He didn't. All right. Mm -hmm. uh, here is a guy... Who I relate to. Uh, okay. he's, he's reprehensible. That's partly why I, <laughs> I relate to him. I love his name, Dalton Clodfelter. <laughs> this is a name you would, if you were going to write a character like this, you would call him Dalton Clodfelter. He's a white nationalist Christian mm -hmm. fascist who uh, said this. Mm. If I were to fight for anybody, it would be Vladimir Putin, who is the only open nationalist standing against the globalist regime. 
the only one in the world really right now. Of course, the people that we commonly think of as evil, Saudi Arabia, Iran, China, right? These people, they're supporting Vladimir Putin. Now, who, who's really evil? What country represents Sodom and Gomorrah, really? The country that glorifies gay sex, gambling, a porn addiction, addiction to drugs and alcohol? Probably that country. A country that is completely lost on God? I mean, who's really evil in America? Or who is really evil in this conflict? I would say that it is the United States. I would say that the United States is the great Satan. It is the global homo, and they are pushing a global homo agenda. You know, we had global homo. That is pretty good. I know. It is. That is you know, you got to give the guy credit. Yeah, and, you know. I mean, I, I'm telling you. I again, <laughs> I could if if I were his age, I would pro- I could see myself, you know, out of options doing this and my father coming to visit and saying, okay, I get it. I get it. But where are we going with this? Like, where do you, what's the next step on the journey? So we had Professor Juan Cole on the show referring to the theocrats. Mm-hmm. He was on, I think, three weeks ago. And he said something with Professor Adnan Hussein that blew me away. He said the far right in this country, the theocrats, are rooting uh, for the the religious police in Iran. And the more, you know, once you hear something like that and you just start seeing these clips, he's calling America, America the great Satan. I mean, the Ayatollah Khomeini used to say that. What's going on here? What is this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this guy, I, I saw that clip uh, before now, and I thought... People are not even going to believe this is a real clip because the guy is so crazy. But I think they do. I don't know this uh, Claude Felter fellow, um, but he. Um, when you listen to the kinds of things that are said, even on Fox News, when now that they've allegedly become a little more moderate, which is. Laughable. But they listen what, to Tucker, this Tucker Carlson is a moderate? No, they, they, but no, they, I think there's a perception that the Fox News Channel, because of all the goofy other cable outlets. Oh, right. I mean, right. But, I mean you watch those. I mean, you can't even believe they're speaking to you from this planet. That's where I play all my clips from. I yeah, love them. That's, like yeah, like o- great. Own and Newsmax. They're amazing. <laughs> I, know, I know. They're great. They're wonderful. Yeah. There. So, um, but you start – somebody that hears Claude Felter and then the, that same day happens to tune into Laura Ingram or tunes into Tucker Carlson and they're, they're, they're not saying it as bluntly as this – as Claude Felter, but they're kind of saying there's something to be respected in the power of Vladimir Putin. They've been saying that for months since the war with Ukraine started, and they never change their tune. You don't ever go to Fox News at 10 o'clock at night and say, I wonder what sh- what they're going to show about the devastation that uh, Russia is uh, p- 
pounding the Ukrainian cities with, look at look at these dead people. You don't ever see that. You never see it. There, the more the the more clips I play of crazy right wingers, the more I'm discovering their adulation, their idolatry when it comes to Putin. They see yeah. him. I, I think it was Professor Adnan Hussein who explained probably when the invasion first happened that a lot of people see Putin as the the great white Christian hope. Yeah. And, yes, and, and, I think and, they do. And so they're rooting. They're actually rooting for Putin. You have this. Is it Krill, the the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, who's completely? Yeah, hey, he's a, he's as bad as Jerry Falwell. He's worse. He's worse. Telling people, Jerry. telling kids, go off and die. It's for a good cause. I mean, yeah, I, that's exactly right. That's what he says. That's what the man says. I'm starting to think you may be right about this whole separation of church and state thing. Yeah, well, don't go, don't go too far in that direction until after the election. Okay. <laughs> I just, I just, the, the um, I, what can you say? What? The, 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 um. Okay, I'm going to talk about Roy Moore next let, week. Let, let, hang on, we we have let's play one more clip. Okay, then you'll talk okay. about Roy Moore. Okay, this is Candace Keller. Who is Candace Keller? Oh, I don't remember what she does now. I don't. Okay, I would just see her comments. Uh, it's too and, bad, Candace. Um, maybe all right. I was going to do a Helen Keller joke, but. We don't do that. We don't do Helen Keller. No, you don't do that here. Here's Candace Keller, who we wish was Helen Keller. Always be mockers. And I stand before you as a person. I don't really like to call it persecution because it doesn't mean anything to me. Nobody likes to be made fun of and nobody likes to be talked bad about. But right now, there are two parties in this country. The party of Trump, and the other party is called We Hate God. Well, that's true. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> I mean, that she's good. got nails, busted. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah we're, we're, <laughs> she's on to us. <laughs> it's, it's just, it is, you know, part of this problem, and we've talked about this before, You, it is very difficult, like the, the president of the United Church of Christ is a very articulate, very progressive leader. Have you ever seen him on television? Have you ever seen the, the president of the Universalist uh, Unitarian Universalist Association on television? No, they don't. You see occasionally some of the African-American activists who are doing a great job and who are certainly as Christian, not just in what they say, but in what they do, but you never see them on television. My friend who used to run the Sex Information and Education Council of the United States, SECUS, became a Unitarian minister. And she told me once they never booked her anymore. She used to be on every show. But then when she became a minister in the Unitarian community, they stopped ever asking her to be on. So they create the perception that all Christian leaders 
are batshit crazy when in fact yes, that's, that's not true. That is absolutely correct. I mean, it used when when uh, Robertson would say some of these stupid things, and I would be I would be on CNN or MSNBC, and 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 I would I would always say something like, "It's important that people understand. You don't have to be religious, but if you are, you don't have to be like Pat Robertson. Pat Robertson's." programming was so ubiquitous it was on satellites in every country in the world and the average person thinks geez that's what american religion is about this guy pat robertson that's the only opportunity they ever saw to hear the preachments prognostications and stupidity of pat robertson hey i i before you go i want to ask you about judge roy moore but you should be taking Professor Hussein's class on the Crusades. It's every Saturday at 930. You would love this. I think I would. I, I you know, I'm, I, I was right now. I'm I'm lucky if I wake up at 10 o'clock. But uh, he's got I, a class that he's teaching yeah. about the, the history of the Crusades. In fact, it's going to start kicking in this week where he actually talks about the Crusades. Mm. Uh, the past two weeks, he's just been talking mm. about a pair of shoes that he bought, and he thinks he overpaid. And should I reach? No, I'm kidding. That's that's no. me. No, he he gave, he gave the the background that led up to the Crusades and the history of the Mediterranean. You would love this class. It's it's Saturday mornings at nine thirty, and it's ninety minutes. It's the the greatest way to start your weekend. Go to adnanhussein.org to sign up. You should do this. All right. And, you, you know, I do it. I, I, I just I keep my camera off and my microphone off and I, I watch it in bed. Mm -hmm. I drink my coffee and listen. It is the greatest way to start your weekend. Go to adnanhussein.org, A-D-N-A-N-H-U-S-A-I-N.org. Uh, and I expect to see you there, Reverend, with the doctor. I think you'll love this. I do. We were going to invite you. We were going to invite you for lunch on Sunday, but we didn't want to catch whatever it is you're. My COVID. Yeah. 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 Well, cooties. Yeah. Professor Annalise yeah, says they, with cooties. I, I know that she said that. Did what is she spying on me? <laughs> she is so funny. She's, she's, she must be spying on me. I have an itch on my head, and it, it might be cooties. What are uh, cooties? When I was a kid, well, everybody said... No, cootie was a, a game where you got plastic pieces, and you spin on a little dial, and if it if it's points to leg, then you get to put a leg onto your cootie or a head no, or a proboscis. No, cooties were like headlines uh, or something. Oh, well, they were, but they. most people, when you say cootie, they think about this game, which is still sold. I, I play it with my granddaughters. They like getting a little, you know, get the proboscis, get the antenna and put together your cootie. And when you get all the parts together, you win. Oh, okay. Tell us about uh, Judge Roy Moore. Well, okay. But now I, I, I don't want to run in. Let, let me save this for next week. I'll talk about John, Judge Roy Moore. Okay. 
health talk there, about there, it. Uh, you, you, for somebody who is deep into COVID, thank, thank <laughs> you for doing this. Absolutely. Uh, you sound pretty great. Pretty amazing. Well, good. Well, I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> we, we were talking. Uh, uh, anyway, there, is, there seems to be an area in New England where we can all meet. So I'm looking forward to yeah, it. Are you going to do a, a Feldo Fest? Uh, Feldo Khan. Oh, Feldo Khan, yes. That's the religion. It's a Khan. Yeah, it, yeah that's, yeah. That's what we're trying Right. Yeah, I'm. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'll I'll be there. Okay. So Thank don't make you. it too far away, and don't don't make it breakfast. M- make it lunch. Okay. We love okay. you, Reverend. We do. Thank We're glad you. you're feeling better. <laughs> okay. And uh, give my best to your uh, your wife, the good doctor. I shall. And I shall. How many grandkids? Three up here. And yeah. who, who's the cutest? Um, uh, let me think about that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'll give you a report. You next are the week. O- uh, you're the only one <laughs> who was willing to have a competition. I've asked everyone who has grandkids to bring their grandkids on the show, and we'd have a pageant to see who has the cutest grandkid. Yeah. And you're the only one who said, "Let me run it by. <laughs> let me run it by my kids to see if." <laughs> Yeah, well, I did, and uh, the answer was no. So okay, thank you. All right, stay out of trouble. Stay out of trouble. Only good trouble. Well, bye bye. Thank you, so great, and thank you for doing that. Sure. Uh, uh, Who was the guy on you mentioned on the Dick Cavett show who died? Uh, That was uh, Rodale, James Rodale, who died on the Dick. Yeah, died on the Dick Cavett show. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I died on the Tonight Show. Uh, <laughs> oh man. All right. Okay. Thank you, thank the you, Reverend Barry W. Lind. Well, it's time for the professors and Marianne. But first, I have to go to Norway, where Joe is standing by. What do you got evening, there? What are you, what are you torturing us with? Well, I'll be making two dishes, a condiment and a a main dish that uh, meat eaters and tofu haters can unite around. It's called uh, mapo tofu. So I'll be uh, sticking with Grace's Chinese theme earlier. I'll make uh, another Chinese dish. This is a quite famous uh, Sichuanese uh, braised tofu dish. And traditionally, it's made with ground beef. And tofu, but this time I'll be using uh, mushrooms instead. And I'll also be making a, a chili oil, infused chili oil. Great. And I'm looking at your, I went shopping for food yesterday. I could not believe what? how expensive food the is. prices. Could mm-hmm. not believe it. And that's why everybody, if you have some money, should go to rahima.org, R A H I M A. Dot org Rahima.org is a food pantry in the San Francisco Bay Area for refugees. It was set up by Professor Adnan Hussein's family. Uh, the best way to thank us for this show and the knowledge is by going to Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org, and take a look at the type of food that they provide for refugees 
and uh, you will approve of it. It's healthy food. It's not garbage. Rahima.org. Next time you're, I went, I could not believe what it cost. Uh, Prices are going through the roof. Yeah, for food. And Mm -hmm. uh, think of the people. Food stamps, I talked about this. It's something like $160 a month now that you get in, in food stamps. And that's fine. But I want to see Chris Christie live on $160 a month on food stamps. Let, let the politicians, let all these conservatives. Tommy Tuberville was talking last weekend about how Biden has doubled the number of food stamps. Go live on $160 a month. See what it gets you. Family of five, I think, gets $600 a month now. Go feed a family of five on that kind of money. You MFers. You MFers. How dare you? How dare you? Okay. Sorry. The Professor and Marianne join us. Professor Adnan Hussein. Professor Marianne Cummings. Professor Jonathan Bick. Let's first go to Professor Ann Lee, who... Every night at midnight covers the Ukrainian war for Massachusetts, but she's still co- <laughs> she's still covering it. Uh, and read her over at the Daily Kos. Uh, her handle is Annie Lee. How are things in Ukraine today? Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. We can. Oh, good. good. All right. Yes. Uh, the uh, apparently. Uh, there's even more disinformation, but uh, I think the thing that I'm going to uh, putting in a, a piece about tonight is the uh, the general failure of uh, certain things about refugees that uh, the apparently the Russians are still kidnapping children and actually uh, re-adopting them, telling them telling kids that their parents have died or don't want them anymore. And uh, I don't, the numbers are unclear. I'd, I'd like to see more about the numbers. I know there are several thousand, but it's probably a lot more than that. Is this true or disinformation? No, it's true. There's reporting on this. There's an AP story that just came out today about that. Incredibly... Uh, strange and disturbing, I guess, as uh, one might call it. Uh, otherwise, the uh, the stories continue and the, the brutality continues. Uh, there's a story about uh, uh, a drone-on-drone uh, uh, drone activity. Uh, there, uh, Iran has sold a ton of drones of, Irani- uh, of its drones to Russia, and the Russians are using it to attack. It's, it's sort of um, munitions on the cheap because uh, an Iranian drone is only a fraction of the cost of one of the uh, uh, larger uh, ballistic ballistic missiles that uh, Russia is using, and it it does show that there's uh, certain failures in uh, 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 what the Russians are doing. It still shows they're losing in that sense that they don't have enough missiles to launch. Interesting. Nothing, uh, no peace talks. 
there's talk of peace talks and there's interpretation of the current uh, escalation in warfare that suggests that there might be peace talks. And so there's a lot of meta interpretation of whether there is or isn't. And of course, there's uh, NATO has discussed that. And then there's the U.N. vote uh, to, you know, to condemn uh, a Russia. And it, you know, it, it could get there. But it, I, I think we're not going to we're not there. No, we're not really there for another couple of months, unfortunately. I think weather is going to actually affect that. And the Ukrainians have a disadvantage during the winter because their tanks and trucks are more susceptible. No, well, there, uh, it, there is uh, actually the Russians have logistical problems. That they had the problems when they were trying to take Kiev, right. and that's not going to be any different. And the Ukrainians are going to be ready for them. Uh, the problem is, of course, you have a mud period before the ground freezes solid, and then you have another period of mud. So essentially, there's this little weird period that the original invasion was supposed to work in when the ground was solid. And I think that's going to be the critical point if we get that far. One hopes, of course, that there's going to be negotiations before then. Right. Uh, any questions for Professor Ann Lee about Ukraine or statements or comments? Well, I think it's just very interesting that um, finally there are at least some muted uh, talks about potential talks uh, that are starting to take place. It's about time. I think the recent escalations and the missile strikes and the nuclear language, uh, you know, that's being used um, has uh, caused some people to at least start thinking about the real danger here of this spiraling out of control and um, the fact that a lot of the steps, steps and, you know, moves and counter moves in the geopolitical and military strategic game seem to be starting to play out. Uh, up to this point, um, you know, despite a lot of the rhetoric and characterization of the brutality of the Russian invasion, which, of course, there are a lot of people being killed. This is a terrible thing. We should not minimize it. There were expressions of somewhat, you know, some shock and surprise that the Russians weren't taking some of the steps that uh, you know, U.S. military strategy would have thought you would take that they certainly implemented when uh, they were invading Iraq, for example, you know, taking out power plants and, you know, water refinement, uh, you know, all of the infrastructure. And the Russians weren't completely devastating and bombarding those kinds of targets. Now they are. Yeah. OK, now clearly they've been pushed, you know, with this uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive fueled by tactical and military support from the U.S. and other NATO allies. And so then it is causing the tit for tat counter moves. It's escalating the situation further and further. And now finally, that is starting to alarm some people in the geopolitical foreign affairs establishment to focus the mind that maybe there ought to be some escape routes. Now we're at least talking about that. Whereas before, 
There was no escape route that would be possible because we're talking about a war criminal who has to be brought before the Hague. Now, that's not offering any escape route from going fully to the end of the situation, which could be right. disastrous. So I was reading some of the reports by the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, who are kind of the leaders, you might say, in providing some sort of a counter strategic uh, analysis. And there's one figure who said that he has run 30 different war game and geopolitical strategic scenarios, um, you know, analyzing all the different possible options at each stage and how you get different pathways. And unfortunately, 28 of them led to nuclear war. Wow. 28 of the 30 war game scenarios. He could only find two scenarios where we don't end up heading there. So when people think that we're exaggerating, you know, and hyperventilating about the risks, um, you know, this is the kind of thing that we warned about and said was a dangerous game at the outset of the war. <clears throat> and for a while, it looked like maybe things were going to be contained um, in a kind of stasis or Russia would like slowly take over, you know, the southern coast and create the land bridge. And then maybe then we would get a stalemate that might lead to a peace agreement of some kind. Now that's not really looking possible unless we're actively engaged in peacemaking and diplomacy, because now we've gone to the situation of ratcheting up the pressure and getting the counter responses. We're on a dangerous path. So that's what I would say is my out and my conclusion of the talks about peace talks is that's only happening because there has been serious escalation recently that is very dangerous. And yeah, but, it's not being helped by the Western leadership at all. I mean, Leon Panetta was putting out tweets today, you know, basically talking about how the probability of Russia losing a nuclear Russia Russia launching and launching a nuclear attack has gone up from 5% to 25%. Right. Now these ghouls, I always assume that whatever they're accusing somebody else of somebody of doing, they're the ones thinking of doing it. You know, like Russia has said nothing. I read over that statement of Putin's from about was it going on 2 weeks ago and Putin said absolutely nothing that any nuclear power has stated you know they will not use first strike they will only use nuclear weapons when you know the exit when the country's very existence is at stake and so people have taken what was usually well everybody knew i, I mean people have known for uh, for years what russia's doctrine was on the use of nuclear wars it's it's even in our someplace in our state department you can as a link to it Nobody has been alarmed by that. Suddenly, people are taking what they've known to be Russia's policy, which is the U.S. policy, which is which is the U.K. policy of nuclear weapons. And they're somehow trying to read into it an imminent threat of nuclear war. By the way. Oh, hang on. So I'm, uh, I'm a little confused because what? Professor Hussein was saying he thinks, unless I'm misunderstanding, that there were war games played out and... Every one of them resulted in the use of nuclear weapons, right? Yeah, 28 out of 30 By, uh, and scenarios run. 
by this uh, is the and by who this is the Quincy um, Quincy Inst- was one of the major analysts. I'm forgetting his yeah. name. I'm trying to look it up, but one of the major analysts at the Quincy Institute for Responsible State. And, and who I would assume it would be Putin who would be using the nuclear weapons in this game. Uh, I think so, but it may not be. Uh, you know, uh, but I think. Well, I mean, when you say. Putin would be using you're maybe you're asking who would use first because the point is is when one person one actor uses a nuclear weapon it's almost doctrine that you get a counter response but, we, that's but equivalent. haven't we said I, I believe we've said that we would not we would take out the Black Sea fleet and cause some serious damage or try to at least but that we would not respond in kind I think that was well, I, I I hope that that uh, is a firm principle that is being made widely, uh, you know, broadcast. Right. I because, think I think yeah. that was how. But Professor Marianne, you're saying no. What I was going to say is that you know everybody is assuming that you know you need nukes to wipe out a country. You don't. I mean, once upon a time, yes. You know, nuclear weapons and even tactical nuclear weapons were so much more powerful than these than than the strongest conventional weapons. That's just not the case anymore. He doesn't need that, that. You know, let's just put that. We don't need or Certainly Russia doesn't need, especially with its hypersonic missile uh, system, which it hasn't, you know, really. That's the other thing. I've been reading all this stuff. With this based on zero evidence, one of them is this just, you know, constant drone that Russia's run out of missiles, Russia's run out of missiles. That's why they're not taking over the country. And everybody's got this mindset. Um, However, way back in in April, I pointed out an article in Time magazine that was pointing out that Russia wasn't targeting civilian areas. Russia was taking on some casualties themselves because they weren't. Russia was starting this war thinking that if it would have a show of strength, it could get Ukraine to the negotiating table. And in fact, so it was cut. That was the counter narrative. This was leaks, leaks. In other words, this were these were official leaks from the Defense Department that were kind of countering the narrative coming out of the State Department at the time, Time magazine in April. And in fact, we now know because uh, Katja, uh, Katja, Kachanovsky, Ivan Kachanovsky, who you had on the show last week. And mm-hmm. wow, I how do you get that guy on your show? I mean, he's a substantial guy. But, you know. How do I get you was, on the show? How do I get Ann Lee on the show? So, but anyway. Compromise. The, the answer is compromise. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. Anyway, um, but the point is, is that the Russian, as, as uh, Professor Adnan has pointed out, Russia isn't conducting war the way we have conducted wars in the last couple of decades. I mean, Russia is in there with a specific goal. That is to bring to have a negotiated settlement and have its national security concerns addressed. It's not giving up. The, it's it's not giving up uh, Crimea. And anyone who had studied anything about Russian history would know that it would never give up Crimea. Um, it is not, it, it, it wants Ukraine to never be part of NATO. And 
it wants to go back to the Minsk Accords regarding the breakaway provinces in the Donbass. That was way back in, what March. was it, a, a end, of, a, end of March, beginning yeah. of April, and apparently, uh, you know, they, those talks were interrupted. And, and they were going to allow, apparently, they were going to mm-hmm. allow Ukraine to join the EU. Yeah, Russia never really cared about the EU. In fact, the EU, even before, um, you know, the the coup in 2014, the EU was behaving in a very belligerent manner because they were, Yanukovych was making overtures to join the EU. The EU was, EU was demanding that it cut off all economic ties to Russia, something that both uh, Stephen Cohen had and uh, Noam Chomsky had been talking about to uh, on democracy now they discussed this they go what are, and, and they were kind of wondering why is the eu so belligerent if they want a peaceful settlement if they want a stable europe why are they making these you know kind of outrageous demands on ukraine considering that russia at that point was ukraine's biggest trading partner if they were to substantially cut off at that point you know, economics ties to Russia, they'd be damaging their own economy to a great extent. Obviously, the European Union, that was of no concern to the European Union. I mean, there have just been so many, um, so many bad policies, so much bad leadership that has brought us to this point. And I think part of it is that there was a certain I don't know, arrogance on the part of the policymakers in the EU that it would never come to this point. Uh, I don't know. But, uh, you know, Russia has been pretty consistent. I mean, you don't have to like Russia. You don't have to like any country to know that it has legitimate national security concerns. And any country that has serious diplomacy, which is any serious country on this planet, understands that. I mean, even John Kerry, and as I said, you know, uh, I put this on Obama's feet, too. I don't think Obama really wanted or anticipated what came out of the coup in 2014. I think he made a mistake allowing the undersecretary of state at the time to publicly undermine her boss, John Kerry, when John Kerry and Lavrov, the foreign minister, Lavrov, who is still the foreign minister, were in serious news start talks about uh, nuclear nonproliferation issues. And John Kerry had publicly assured Russia and Lavrov at that point that they would not be demanding Crimea back. And he gave a very thoughtful answer. We understand that historically Crimea has been part of Russia. It is the, it's a strategic uh, a military base and we would not be making that demand. And Victoria Newland, of course, was saying the exact opposite. I mean, how do you have a, a, a how do you have a serious uh, State Department when you know two principles like that are are you know contradicting each other publicly? It, it was just a bad scene all around. All right. And unfortunately, you know, it's it it's going to. I mean, Raytheon is going to make out well. I mean, these are. The defense industry is going to make out well. Everyone else is suffering, including Europe and including us, not so much as the Europeans, which are facing a very dicey winter. Boy, they sure get that narrative out, Professor Ann Lee, about the shortage of weapons now. That, that, oh. that, 
right? They, they launched a whole bunch of different weapons all at once. But let me let me go to the to some other uh, sort of peripheral. On the one hand, peripheral issues, but on the other hand, there, and I agree with with Marianne. There's a lot of players in this problem. It is very complex. Like for example, uh, there's a uh, a set of documents related to the the, um, the slightly less redacted Mueller Mueller report that this is the Andrew Weissman version that talks about the Manafort Klimnik uh, uh, Klimnik uh, 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 conversation and that some of it got more uh, less redacted. And you saw that one of the things that Manafort and uh, Kalimnik were who were was talking, Kalimnik again? Uh, Kalimnik is the he's a GRU operative who is a partner of Manafort. He's he's kind of Manafort's guy in Ukraine, and he's but, but been, GRU uh, is GRU GRU is the old the, the military. It's no, it's Russian military intelligence. You see the old KGB, uh, right? Well, there's the KGB, which which actually does deeper stuff, and then there's uh, the GRU, which is more tied to the to the, the military establishment. Okay, and they they work in parallel. Um, GRU are the ones who did the uh, the hacking, um, the earlier hacking, the the fancy bear, etc. Hacking, um, but anyway, point being is that Kalimnik, who is hiding in Russia right now, uh, so it, eventually somebody maybe will get him. But the issue was that un- the underlying agreement that that had to do with the first first impeachment involved a deal where. Um, and and part of this was almost realized in the Ukraine invasion that Yanukovych was going to come in and be the the new uh, head of uh, uh, Ukraine if they had seized Kiev. The the point being is that it, in the the Mueller report that is slightly more <laughs> unredacted, it it includes an agreement. This is a, a communication. I'll I'll throw up the. Uh, the, the link later on, it's in a document cloud thing for for the, the Mueller report, that there was an agreement with Putin or an understanding that Yanukovych, that Eastern U- U- Ukraine would have autonomy and Yanukovych would be in charge of Eastern Ukraine. Now, I know that this is, you know, not a current, currently operative. We're now looking at, at information that's four years old. But I think that there's a lot more moving parts here. Because we know that Yanukovych was was in Belarus waiting to walk in after the after the the initial assault in February, and I know a lot of people would prefer to see Yanukovych, and even though the, he's a Ukrainian oligarch with pro uh, pro Russian sentiment, but the reality, of course, is that he was going to be Putin's guy. He's going to be Putin's uh, uh, puppet. So I think there's a lot of moving parts in here. Similarly, um, when we see Poroshenko talking about peace on CNN, he has his own set of agendas, and he also has his own militia, which is he has his own territorial uh, battle group, you know, a uh, battalion. This is like warlord wacky 
that there's so much other stories going on here that make the entire sort of matrix of these things really complicated. So even when Zelensky comes out and says something and blah, 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 and I'm going to give up medals and stuff, there's still a lot more going on. Uh, uh, We're not getting that we're not we're just not getting here. We don't get the whole story. You know, five Iranian drones get shot down. But, you know, I'm not sure I would trade five Iranian drones against an SU-24, which is what happened. They shot the drones down, but there was so much debris in the air, it it actually brought down a fighter fighter jet. So it it when you look at it from an asset point of view, it wasn't really a good deal. With all due respect, well, you, a fighter jet I mean, for the, for the Russian Ukrainian fired uh, fighter jet came down. Uh, I mean, in one case, now this is the reports are still a little fuzzy, but at least one pilot, one was a fighter bomber, had two guys in it, but one guy died. Uh, the other guy ejected and and lived, and that's who, who's getting the medal. But you know, medals don't mean anything when stuff is flying right. all around. The story we're hearing, you had talked about it on Monday, that these anti-ballistic missiles that we're providing Ukraine are working, that they're shooting down about half of yes. the incoming. Uh, it, it hasn't been um, sort of uh, verified by the U.S. Uh, I, I'm waiting to hear a U.S. Uh, DOD assessment of this, but the Ukrainians and and uh, new overall news reporting is is suggesting that fifty percent of them. Got and it's down. not necessarily American weaponry. It's Sweden. Oh, no, no, it's, it's not, not the it's not the famous Patriot missiles. These are this is these are Swedish anti ballistic missiles. Well, we got Swedish, German, uh, Russian, even Russian uh, uh, material is is being used. There, these are. It's a really a hodgepodge of of all these kinds of weapons. So, uh, so it's conceivable that Raytheon isn't making the killing. You'll pardon the pun. That we <laughs> think that it's Saab. I mean, who's who else is out there making these well, missiles? Well, it's it's all it's a big it's a nice global military industrial complex. Oh, that's the sweet. new, uh, you know, uh, Raytheon does participate in some of these things, but the Swedes Saab makes some of the electronics that the Americans use. So some of the F-35 electronics are Swedish. Right. And the Israelis uh, have been criticized for not supplying Iron Dome. uh, But Iron Dome is used for uh, rockets that come from the Gaza Strip, which are like fireworks, right? Right. They're they're much smaller and more like uh, a field field artillery. Right. They're they're not... Right. And and both sides are starting to use smart munitions, although the American smart munitions are probably much better. Uh, I mean, smart munitions in terms of tube artillery. In other words, you have instead of just a sort of dumb shelf, you know, bullet uh, uh, round flying at you, it actually has a little computer in it, which is like really, on the one hand, cool. On the other hand, incredibly problematic i mean just from an, all kinds of points of view more people are going to die because of this these precision uh weapons well we should uh, we have 25 minutes left we can keep professor bick do you want to comment or do, do you want to talk about something new um well I, i'm just wondering you know 
it, it seems like there are so many uh, uh, complicated situations in Ukraine uh, that, you know, I'm thinking of like um, Afghanistan when the United States was successful in uh, defeating the Soviet invasion there. Uh, if people remember what happened to Afghanistan after the Soviets were expelled, um, the country broke down into uh, conflicting uh, warlords and it was basically destroyed as a country. Everything was destroyed, all infrastructure. Um, and this created the vacuum where the Taliban could arise as a preferable option to complete anarchy and warlords fighting one another. So, you know, when you, when you get involved in a situation like this, um, you, you do have no idea what the outcome is going to be. Let's say Ukraine is successful in tossing the Russians out of the country entirely. I wonder what the eastern regions are going to be like. What kind of um, human rights violations will be going on there with the ethnic Russians and Russian-speaking population? Do you think they'll be treated fairly uh, by the Ukrainians that retake control of that area? Maybe that's of no consequence. I don't know. Um, you know, maybe we'll have a success like we did in Libya. <laughs> you know, where we had warlords fighting one another and slavery uh, uh, rampant in that country. And, and the battle toll is a half a million people. Uh, an incredible amount of casualties in Libya. Half a million. Well, that's one estimate. It's uh, I think that there was a, a a lot more bombardment that's that's not been accounted for relative to NATO bombardment. Aside from the uh, internecine uh, uh, warfare. Yeah, now that would be that would be Hillary's war, correct? <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. And and remember that Hillary Hillary was talking positively about using the current conflict in Ukraine as another Afghanistan to weaken the Russians uh, by getting them involved and defeated there. So, um, you know, this is in the mind of the uh, foreign policy blob in in uh, Washington. And, and former members of it. Um, I'd also like to point out that the U.S. very likely appears to be responsible for stopping negotiations that could have averted this war. Uh, you had the Ukrainian professor on who confirmed this. Um, well, he, he was saying it was Boris Johnson. Yeah, well, I mean, Boris Johnson doesn't do things like this without the OK of the United States. You know, UK, you know, um, apologies, but it's essentially the lapdog of the United States yeah. when it comes to foreign policy. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of British people. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I, I think that's you do well it. We, you do what we tell you to do. Go ahead. Yeah. So... Um, 
Yeah. You know, um, th- there could have been a negotiated settlement um, to, avort, to avert the war, possibly have ended it early. Uh, but I don't, you know, it doesn't seem like Washington is uh, really all that interested. I mean, there, as we said, there are uh, economic gains, there's corporate gains that are going on here from the military-industrial complex in several nations, but especially in the United States. Um, and there are geostrategic uh, possibilities that you know that are dancing around in the heads of these people in Washington. And they're they're sitting there and they're saying, "Oh yes, the chances of nuclear confrontation are going up." But let's keep doing what we're doing. Hello? Permanent war. We are in a state of permanent war. Earlier on in the show, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld said something like, well, we're in, we're in a war right now. And I was thinking, really? We're in a war? I, oh, yeah, Ukraine. I'd forgotten that technic- not, technically we're not in a war, but I guess we are. Uh, our economy certainly is. We are in a permanent state of war now. We have options to do something else. Yeah. Right. We we there is a tremendous need to have state directed large outlays of uh, technological and in uh, uh, the building of an infrastructure in order to deal with global warming. That could take the place of military spending. We're choosing not to. You know, we're rushing toward the nuclear confrontation option while we're allowing climate catastrophe to go unimpeded. And it really is America. It really is our fault. Not to beat up on my country, but it, 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 we could change the whole trajectory of uh, the world economy by switching to renewable energy and away from war. And we're not doing that. I mean, this is what you have when you have uh, corporations that are able to call the shots in Washington. Yeah. The people that are in power now, I mean, the people who are benefiting from the current economic status quo have all the reasons in the world to want to keep it going the way it is. No matter if we're heading straight towards destruction, they want to keep it going. They don't want to risk switching uh, you know, our priorities to uh, address the climate crisis. You know, I, I have been feeling dissatisfied. Most people I know feel dissatisfied. And it's because of this. It's it's like a slow motion car crash. We see the wall coming at us and we think we're bummed out because the music on the radio is depressing. But we see this brick wall that we're about to crash into. And <laughs> Well, can we change the channel? Is it happier, more upbeat music? Should we get the seats in the car reupholstered? Um, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. That, that's why I'm miserable. It's the, right. you know, it's the, it's the interior, the car's interior. Yeah. Uh, I just, I just wanted to tell people that the article I was talking about is by Harry Katsianis, and it's called "Talking Is Not Appeasement; It's Avoiding a Nuclear Armageddon," and he's the one who talks about those scenarios that he's run. You can find it at the Quincy Institute. I posted the link in the chat, but for listeners, they should look for that. And I guess just the last little coda on this is is we're starting uh, the gear up for exactly the same kind of scenario uh, with China over Taiwan. We're pushing towards confrontation. We're going to try and provoke China into some military uh, intervention there. We're developing all of the same sort of techniques of arm changing Taiwan's status slowly but surely, you know, um, undermining the one China policy that has held for 50 years. I saw a really good re- discussion of this with Vijay Prashad and uh, Noam Chomsky on Democracy Now! recently. And I think there's also a really good piece also at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft by a former guest on our sh- on the show here, Michael Clare. Um, uh, he's saying the world's other, his article is the world's other nuclear flashpoint. And he talks about while the media attention has turned to Europe, these tensions with Taiwan are rising and the U.S. and China are coming much closer to confrontation. And there's a lot we could do to stop that. Let's not allow the same replay uh, because that's actually an even more dangerous uh, situation potentially. Yes. Well, let's ask uh, Professor Bick, uh, what did you want to talk about? We have uh, 11 minutes all right, I'll try to squeeze this in. Uh, yeah, I've been asked to uh, talk about this issue, and I've been avoiding it because it's a bit overwhelming. Long-term, None, long-term life insurance. No, no, no. <laughs> I can talk about that sometime, too. But, um, so uh, Maine recently became the first state to ban the practice of spreading PFAFs contaminated sewage sludge as fertilizer. Let me read that again because it's pretty hard to grasp the first time here. Maine recently became the first state, first one, to ban the practice of spreading PFAFs, contaminated sewage sludge as fertilizer. The new law also prohibits sludge from being composted with other organic material. A recent report estimates that about 20 million acres of cropland across the United States may be contaminated. Most states are only beginning to look at the problem, uh, and some are increasing the amount of sludge they spread on farm fields, despite the substance being universally contaminated with PFAS. And I'll get, I'll define that in a second, and is documented to be destroying. Uh, livelihoods in Maine. And and the reason why that those livelihoods are being destroyed is because Maine is the one of the few states that have actually looked into this problem. Mo, uh, PFAFs or per and polyfluoral alkyl substances are a class of chemicals used across dozens of industries to make products resistant to water, 
stains, and heat. Though the compounds are highly effective, they are also linked to cancer, kidney disease, birth defects, decreased immunity, liver problems, and a range of other serious diseases. The EPA recently found that no level of exposure to some kinds of PFAS in water is safe. Um, PFAS are estimated to be contaminating drinking water for over 200 million people in the United States and have been found at alarming levels in meat, fish, dairy, crops, and processed foods. They are, they are also in a range of everyday consumer products like nonstick cookware, food packaging, waterproof clothing, and stain guards like Scotch Guard, and even some dental floss. In the early 2000s, a book was published called Toxic Sludge is Good for You, Lies, Damn Lies, and the Public Relations Industry. <laughs> I, I use this book in, in one of my political science classes. I'm going to use that line, by the way. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, yeah. So in the book, they talk about this specific issue as one example of how the public relations industry conducted a successful campaign to get governments to allow sewer sludge. That's all the crap and other chemicals that are poured into sewers to be used as fertilizer for crops. Sewer sludge is a semi-solid mix of human excrement and industrial waste that water treatment plants pull from the nation's sewer system. It's expensive to dispose of, and about 60% of it is now lightly treated and sold or given away as biosolid fertilizer because it is high in plant nutrients. Maine and Michigan are the only two states that are routinely checking sludge and farms for PFAS, and both are finding contamination on farms to be widespread. Maine's legislature banned the practice of spreading sludge as fertilizer in April after environmental officials discovered astronomical levels of PFAS in water, crops, cattle, and soil on farms where sludge had been spread. And high PFAS levels have been detected in a farmer's blood. Toxic PFAS chemicals were detected in every umbilical cord blood sample across 40 studies con conducted over the last five years. A new review of scientific literature from around the world has found. The studies collectively examined nearly 30,000 samples and many linked fetal PFAS exposure to health complications in unborn babies, young children, and later in life. The study's findings are disturbing, uh, according to an environmental health science fellow with the Environmental Working Group, which analyzed uh, the peer-reviewed study's data. The studies linked fetal exposure to higher total cholesterol and triglycerides in babies, and changes in their body's bile acids, 
which can lead to a higher risk of cardiovascular problems later in life. Some studies also associated cord blood exposure with disruptions to thyroid glands and microbial cells in the colon. PFAFs can remain in the body for years or even decades, and some studies link fetal exposure to effects throughout childhood and adulthood, including on cognitive function, reproductive function, changes in weight, eczema, and altered glucose balance. These are bad chemicals, right? And, and a civilized country uh, would ban these things outright. Who is the company that, DuPont, who makes these things? I, there are multiple companies, uh, yeah. Um, I don't know if it's DuPont, I would assume. I'm, I'm not certain, but uh, there are a number of them, yeah. And, and they're, they're widespread, you know, they're used in all sorts of different products um okay uh thank you for that (laughs) let let me just say you know on the federal level uh despite overwhelming evidence that pfas that have been studied are persistent in the environment and are toxic the fda and epa have so far resisted banning non-essential non-essential uses of the chemicals The EPA last year rolled out a broad plan designed to rein in the chemicals use and limit exposures, but public health advocates say it falls far short of what the situation demands. It also largely focuses on four out of 12,000 PFAF compounds. Hmm. And now we go to Joe in Norway. Um, <laughs> well, we have a delightful bowl of some sludge-like uh, substance. <laughs> we have six minutes left. Oh, Let me, dare you. Why don't we, uh, <laughs> Professor Marianne and Professor Adnan Hussein? why don't we, I know you both have something you wanted to talk about tonight. So why don't we give a preview of, hopefully you'll be back Monday, if you can, of what you'd want to talk about. Why don't I give... Uh, Professor Marianne, three minutes to talk about what she wants to talk about, and then Professor Adan Hussein. And well, okay, the- I was just going to talk for a little bit, and I can talk more on Monday. By the but, way, you know what you is and striking Rus- me? You and Rusty Schweikert, that should be. I have ideas. That should be like a, that was fun. That should be a segment. Like that a, guy. Yeah, yeah I would ahead. love to talk about. I'm going to write an email over the weekend you know, if he would come on once a month with you and go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. No, but what is striking me just kind of surveying, uh, just going through foreign policy magazine articles and things like that uh, in in the wake of this uh, new assault from uh, Russia on Ukraine. It is just striking me how incredibly racist. I mean, I never read. How incredibly racist the, uh, you know, the the wise men of foreign policy magazine, the European Union and our State Department is when they are talking about South America and and Africa. I was reading an article today. um, Let's see. I don't know if I can pull it up. It's a foreign policy magazine. It was yesterday. And they are concerned that what? 
Russia propaganda seems to be working in Africa. How can we get PR firms in there? I'm going, uh, PR maybe firms. the Africans having had experience with both the West and China in Russia are looking at China and Russia and Asia just in general and thinking, you know what? And they're building, they're building high-speed rail here. Yeah, we've got trade deals here. You, we keep getting permanent war here. That maybe their rational choice is to go with Asia and away from the United States and West Europe. No, they have to have been propagandized. Amazing. I mean, the arrogance and the condescending attitude of this is just breathtaking. And I saw it today. So the. Um, so the I want to. I want to be. Uh, respectful to everybody's time. Uh, right. So. so I just wanted to talk about that. And also what I could talk about further is this the comments uh, at the there was a U European Union diploma uh, school of diplomacy by the foreign affairs head of the European Union, which was just breathtaking in it. I mean, this is, sounds like something like some old fart would have said about 120 years ago about Europe is a garden and the rest of the world is a jungle and the rest of the world, the jungle is coming into our garden. Wow. It, it has to be read at least portion of it in its entirety to get the full. I'm going, OK, these are the people. Could you send are, me that, please? Yes. Um, and by the way, this was also uh, I'm putting it in the chat right now. Okay. Yes, yeah, so this came out of a discussion I was having yesterday with uh, Professor Kachanovsky and uh, some other people on Twitter. And it was just, he says, oh, you'll love to read this. <laughs> I, like, I okay. did. I said, yeah. Okay. Amazing. But anyway, well, let's talk uh, about I think it. If we could talk about that on Monday, that would be great. Yes. Professor. But, you know, I said, it's a mess. And by God, give peace a chance. I mean, I'll vote for John Kerry for president in 2024. Is he under the age of 100? I think so. <laughs> he can run. What about Bernie? Professor Adnan Hussein? Well, I guess maybe on Monday I'll talk more about this um, new law in Turkey, since I think it connects very well with the topic here about propaganda, disinformation. Uh, there's a new law about disinformation outlawing disinformation, making it a criminal offense in Turkey. And it's very controversial. And there are many aspects to discuss about it, I think. Is um, it, of course, uh, it's, who do they, who do they, who determines what the truth is? The Turkish government. I mean, so this is why it's uh, seen as very dangerous because it's the government uh, intervening in media, controlling the media. It's seen as a new law that's designed to help ensure that the currently unpopular government of Erdogan will do well in the upcoming elections next year. And this is the way it's all being framed. But there are some very other, you know, some other interesting dimensions of this that I think uh, will be interesting to talk about um, on Monday. Okay. Thank you. Thank and you. I see that Alan is here, by the way, and I will want to thank him for bringing on the meeting. Uh, Michelle Vallejo, is that how you pronounce her last name? What a great candidate running yes. in Texas 15th yes. with no yes. help from the Democratic Party. No. no, our guest this upcoming week has even less help from the Democratic Party. 
And that's, oh. and, and she does say Angelica, but Angelica, if you like. Dwayne Us are running against incumbent New Democrat Tony Cardenas in California 29th District. Probably about as underfunded as any candidate who is on the November ballot anywhere in the country. Um, and I mean, at least it's among competitive candidates. She got over 40%, but she is just an absolutely no holds barred lefty pro Bernie. We had her on um, the show. She's fantastic. Bring her, bring her on. See if she wants to come yeah. on Monday. Um, I'll ask her. Howie, Howie Klein brought her on. She's great. Oh, well, Howie and I, we're like voices in the wilderness. I've pitched her to all the other organizations that sort of claim to be on the left wing of the Democratic Party in the electoral realm. Just turned their back on, on Angelica. We'll bring her on. Let's raise some money for her. Let me thank great. Professor Adnan Hussein. Uh, who's on the Mudgeless and who's on Guerrilla History? Well, on the Mudge List coming up in just a few days, uh, I've already recorded um, a discussion with uh, Professor Jean Rees Bajalan uh, about his uh, article in the Jacobin about how the Kurdish question is crucial to understanding the protests in Iran. Um, and so people should check out that article. And we also go into greater depth uh, about the Kurdish uh, situation. Um, and on guerrilla history as part of our Sanctions as War series, we just had Sanctions as Siege War by uh, Manu Karuka of Barnard College. And um, tomorrow, um, the history of sanctions in Iran uh, with Professor Mohammed Sahimi of USC. So do check out those two recent episodes uh, on guerrilla history about the sanctions regime and these two case studies uh, for understanding how they work and operate. Fantastic. Read Professor Ann Lee over at the Daily Kos. Annie Lee, A-N-N-I-E-L-I. Thank you, Professor Ann Lee. Follow Professor Marianne Cummings on Twitter. Her handle is Razor Girl. And Professor Jonathan Bick from Bick's Automotive will be... <laughs> <laughs> will uh, be teaching us the Twilight Zone and Star Trek. How are you feeling since you're double sh you got the, the new shot, right? Yes. Now I'm fully recovered now. Good. Took and, a day or so. And uh, Go ahead. But uh, I wanted to say uh, for the Twilight Zone, we're going to have Russell Johnson uh, traveling back in time, trying to right a wrong. Russell Johnson, of course, probably most famous for portraying the professor on Gilligan's Island. Oh! And he, he had quite an acting career besides Gilligan's Island, but that's what well, everyone knows. That's about. exciting. <laughs> yeah. All it's right. a good one. Thank you so much. Let's go to Joe in Norway. Tell yeah. us. So this, uh, this braised sludge I have here will, will make... Uh, <laughs> Even meat eaters love tofu. Mm. It's a braised tofu dish from Sichuan province called mapo tofu. Wow. Which, which means a pockmarked old woman tofu. The originator uh, had smallpox, and she was known for uh, coming up with this dish. But the signature thing about this dish is the use of the Sichuan peppercorn, which has a, a numbing sensation. So you toast it, grind it, and it's infused in the dish. So you, similar to how MSG imparts umami, 
the citron peppercorn imparts a numbing sensation. So it's another dimension of flavor. And it's uh, this one in, is the vegetarian version with uh, mushrooms. And I use walnuts to also mimic the gristle of the, the beef that you're supposed to use. So, uh, yeah. Fantastic. And you do know that office hours, my spot at 8 p.m. Friday night, will be taken by the great Colleen Worthman and Liam McEnany. I will be unable to be at office hours this Friday at 8 p.m. starts, and I host the first hour. And we thought, why not have Liam McEnany and uh, Colleen Worthman take my spot? What a great idea. Thank you, Joe, in Norway. Welcome. We'll see you this week. Thank you. Before we bring in Professor Harvey J.K., let me bring in Dave and P.A. to find out what he'll be making for us as we do the ASMR for the eyeballs. Uh, Dave and P.A., are you there? Come in. I'm trying. Uh, I have my video going. It won't let me. Hang on. Asked to start video. I'm wearing pants this time, David. Oh, good. That makes one of us. So you can you can my video on. Uh, uh, this is a chest. This is a chest lid, and and I, I routed this uh, little cove and nose on it, and I just have to cut this in with a chisel to to make it look like a miter. Uh, if you can see, it's rounded. So what what are you making? Yeah, you know, that's rounded there. I'm gonna I'm gonna use the chisel to cut that in square. Sorry. So what are you making? This is a uh, blanket chest lid. Somebody had an antique blanket chest, and they sent me a template of the shape. And I had some old maple with wormholes in it and everything. And uh, I made a lid to match it. And I just have to carve that, that corner in. Wow. And get paid. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we'll watch. Where's Chad? Oh, he was a little chill tonight. I think he's a little self-conscious, but but he's yeah, he's glad you asked for him. There, there he is. goes. He's got he's that when he out. was in prison, he got a few tattooed on his chest. Yeah. Well he's still thinking of your mom. Lieutenant Governor of Wisconsin, Democrat Mandela Barnes, went up against Republican Senator and incumbent Ron Johnson in a debate tonight. During the debate, they were asked, say something nice about each other. Here was, uh, let me see if I can do this. Oh, come on. Here we go. Here was what uh, Ron Johnson, how he answered it. Come on. No? Been successful in life. You have 30 seconds here been successful in life. You have 30 seconds here. Mr. Barnes, you go first. What do you find admirable about your opponent? Well, no, no, seriously, I, I do think, you know, the senator has proven to be a family man, and I think that's, that's admirable. Um, you know, that's absolutely to be respected. He, he speaks about his family. He's uh, done a lot to provide for them. I absolutely respect that. Mr. Johnson. I mean, likewise, I appreciate the fact that uh, Lieutenant Governor Barnes had loving parents, a school teacher, Father worked third shift, so he had, you know, good upbringing. 
I guess what puzzles me about that is with that upbringing, why is he turned against America? I mean, why, why, why does he find the right. America awful? Right. It's, it's, Somehow, we, it puzzles we me. did not. I said, Please we argue. said something admirable, so, and it is now. Been successful in life. You have 30 seconds here. Mr. Barnes, you go first. All what right. do you find admirable? Professor Harvey J.K. Were you able to hear that? I heard it. I heard it. What am I supposed to say? I mean, Ron Johnson is Ron Johnson. The shame is that Barnes lost his lead a couple of weeks, a few weeks ago, and it doesn't even matter what they say tonight. I have little, I, I'm starting to believe, however much I may tweet otherwise, that Johnson has this campaign. Really? Because he's yeah. look, I mean, I I shouldn't talk about it yet because the election's not over. I have too much to say about the election campaign. I I can't do it right now. Okay, can't Alan Minsky, your thoughts on seeing something like that? And that's pretty bad. Right there, we go. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Well, I was more interested in their thoughts on Emmanuel Wallerstein's take on the development of capitalism versus Robert <laughs> Brenner's theories. And that was in a previous part of the debate. Um, so, um, yeah, I've got a clip of that in a second. Yeah. So um, um, we're going to talk about the transition to capitalism. So yeah. you want to get right to it? Should we get right to it? Well, can I just say this, that um, um, I hope that Harvey's wrong. And, you know, a big part of our campaigning for PDA, PDA's campaigning related to these midterms, is to try to lift uh, and get progressives to vote for milquetoast Democratic candidates in swing districts in the House. We hadn't thought Mandela Barnes was really going to be something we had to do a big lift on in that regard. But I think that that strategy really needs to be deployed there. And even in the clip we saw, you know, part of the thing that people respond to in candidates is forthrightness, a sense of like um, affirmation and strength. And, you know, Johnson and DeSantis, they have this and people respond to it. You know, Democrats have to be aware that um, like Bernie Sanders, direct and mean it, you know, yeah. and be pointed and strong. Yeah. And um, and then on policies, Barnes hasn't been doing that. I think he's just been consulted to death by the Democratic political consultancy class. This is a cry and shame. Sherry Beasley, for what it's worth in North Carolina, is actually running a more strong and solid campaign in that regard. Against and Bud. I think that, yeah, against, yeah. Ted, Ted Bud. You got to have Republican candidates named Ted Bud with three Ds in their name. And um, so, yeah, um, we're, we're putting our efforts into both North Carolina and Wisconsin. And now on to. Harvey J.K., Professor Harvey J.K.'s new book is The British Marxist Historians. And we last week we had sound problems go by the British Marxist historians. Chapter two, I believe, is entitled the Tran I don't have the book in front of me. The transition, the transition to right. capitalism, the transition to capitalism. We always think about the transition from capitalism to Marxism. But there was a transition to capitalism from feudalism, and yet you say there's some kind of debate among Marxist historians well, because they th yeah. they think capitalism, some people say capitalism 
is as old as the scriptures, that it goes back to ancient Egypt. And then there are some Marxist historians who can pinpoint the actual time that capitalism was defined. What is the definition in your estimation of capitalism? Who defined it properly? And when was it defined? When did we transition from feudalism to capitalism or mercantilism to capitalism? Yeah. Well, feudalism to capitalism. Mercantilism is is a is a set of for like state policies governing trade and business activity. It's not a mode of production. Okay, right. and that's a, that's really what the whole debate on the actually not even just specifically among among Marxists, but across the histor historical and social sciences for many years was the question of how, keeping in mind, this goes back to the 19th century, how was it that this totally new kind of political, economic, and social order emerges out of antiquity and then the feudal age? Where, how does it happen? And so, for example, for, for a long time in American social science, which was dominated by the thought of Max Weber, there was a presumption that somehow capitalism was a specific attitude about business, a kind, if you like, an entrepreneurial spirit, okay? And, uh, and, they, and people wonder, where did that entrepreneurial spirit come from? And there was the Belgian historian Henri Perrin, who basically saw that as a consequence of long-distance trade, say, from northern to southern Europe across the Mediterranean, that this somehow was the, the makings of capitalism, as if the market itself, okay, was the the force and the activity of the trader and the merchant were the forces that brought an end to feudalism and gave way to capitalism. Um, it's also interesting as a sidebar, most uh, American social scientists ignored the fact that Weber himself had serious doubts about what he was saying. And he then tried to define a whole array of capitalisms, military capitalism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The thing is that if you go to Marx, okay, and you remember th that what really, I think, makes Marx, Marx is the line out of Communist Manifesto that the history of all hitherto existing societies is the history of class struggle. And if you're trying to make sense of the making of history, one has to look to, to the question of class struggle. And by the way, as a sidebar, I, I would just correct something you said at the beginning. You said that... You thought the question was, when does capitalism become Marxism? Marxism is a set of ideas or propositions. Or communism. Okay. Or, so, well, socialism is, was the presumption that that, was, that would be the makings of, a, of, a, of, of eventually maybe some kind of communist order, which, you know, for, for Marx, it's as close as you can get to really utopianism, the, the idea of communism. Socialism was the, the, the sort of the goal historically. Um, for, uh, that the class struggle might lead to. Anyhow, so um, the the theories about capitalism, which were either based on the spirit of capitalism idea or the idea of commerce and trade, one or the other, and in some cases, you know, a merger of those two ideas, was challenged very seriously, standing on Marx's shoulders by the, the British, the English political economist, uh, Maurice Dobb, who was at Cambridge University. And that was an incredible milieu, probably, to be in that economics 
program economic department at at Cambridge because you had the likes of Keynes and you had Dobb and and then eventually you even had the Italian exile economist Piero Sraffa who by the way was very important in sustaining Antonio Gramsci's time in prison by enabling him to buy right. books I mean this incredible kind of milieu Dobb himself who was a member of the Communist Party made the argument basically that the that the capitalism develops as a consequence of class struggles and changes that really are sort of built in around the 16th and 17th century the 17th century in particular in England which was a time of upheaval revolution as far as the left was concerned um there's always been a contest between british historians when was the rebe- when was the revolution if there was a revolution for the Marxists, it's in the 1640s, the sort of middle-of-the-road centrist uh, predominant historical arguments generally dismissed the 1640s and focused on the 1680s in the, re- the rebellion that occurred and uh, essentially turning the monarchy into all the more constitutional monarchy. But for Marxists, it's in the 1640s when, indeed, there was a rebellion which and became a revolution. There was the overthrow of the monarchy and beheading of a king. And it unleashed a whole array of forces of a really fascinating political and cultural sort. Now, so Dabba had argued that it was not, it was not a, a spirit of capitalism or trade. It was a question of class struggle and the re- reformation of, of England's class structure that, that resulted. Um, so here's the point. Um, um, Marxist, and this goes from Dobb to the likes of the Communist Party Historians Group to really, I, to my mind, the finest set of arguments around the work, as uh, Alan pointed out, an American who taught for many, many years, um, a friend of Alan's, actually, Robert Brenner, I would say he was a friend of mine, but I haven't had that much contact with him in, in decades, actually. His name was Robert Brenner. And basically... If you're going to to explore the question of capitalism, if you're going to explore the question of any kind of social order in the past, one ought to begin around the relations of surplus extraction. Okay, more broadly conceived, it's usually you know framed in American minds as property relations. For Marx, it was the social relations of production, and Brenner was right to describe it or to define it or terminate, to give it the term surplus extraction relations. Another way of looking at it is who does the work, who derives the benefits and the material um, products of them. So in, 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 in the ancient world of the European, uh, what we think of as the origins of modern Europe, it was slavery viewed as the primary surplus extraction mode. Not the only, but it was indeed a primary source. Then in what we think of as the medieval period, the feudal age, it was between peasant and lord, okay? And indeed for capitalism would be between the propertyless worker, okay, who is compelled to work at at the enterprises which we think of as owned by capitalists and the surplus extraction or transfer of wealth based on the labor of the worker was from worker to capitalist. Now, capitalism becomes a far more complex political, economic, and social order, but at the heart of capitalism would be this question of the surplus extraction, the exploitation 
of labor and the oppression that accompanies it. The wage relationship, as Dobb and others would say, that's capitalism. At its heart for Brenner are changes in the relationship of the British peasant class to the plots of land that they were working under feudalism away from that in a way that basically charged or put us under the direction of the social relations that that uh, Harvey is describing. Yeah, I mean, Brenner was fascinating because he really looks closely at this at the development of tenancy that which is different than feudal tenancy where you get a, a stratum of if you like a stratum of agricultural land holders not owners, okay, who are renting the land from the more classical sort of aristocratic class, for lack of a better way of putting it, a noble class. And then they are hiring these displaced peasants. And so you get the pressure on the part of the rent to be paid so, so that the tenant farmer himself is having to exploit the work of the now former peasant, now agricultural worker. But this also affords opportunities for innovation or propels innovation, you might say. Um, it's a, I mean, it was... I'm, Brenner's work, it's very interesting. Bob Brenner secured tenure and success internationally because he took that debate and literally mastered it, both as, as a historian and as an analytical thinker. It, it really was. And it got known as, became known as the Brenner debate. So from the course of, say, the late 40s and 50s, when the question of the transition begins as a really significant political debate among these left historians. Then you have Brenner, who's writing, I guess, in the, we're thinking 1980s. That's a, over the course of 30 years or more, this debate was underway. And I came into, into history and social science really in, in, in the middle of, of all of that. And my to me, the question was, what was going on in Latin America? At what point do we actually see capitalist relations developing in contrast to a, a more what I call seniorial set of social relations? And by the way, the question you raised at the beginning is actually driving this whole question of the transition from feudalism to capitalism, because these were these were communists, these were Marxists, and 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 folks who were decidedly Marxist, even if they were no longer in the Communist Party in, in any particular country, whether it was Japan, the United States, France or anywhere else, and they wanted to know what might the transition to socialism entail, okay? What might it entail? Interesting. I also, I also think that this is, um, if anybody really wants to understand the world we're living in, I think it's a fundamental question to ask because the rate of change in terms of humanity's relationship to its environment and the way that we live uh, over the last 300 years since this took off largely in North Central, Northwestern England, and it spread like a virus across the world. And um, uh, again, the way we live now, the way people lived in 1650, going back millennia has a lot more in common with the way that we lived in 1850 to 1900, 1900 to 1950, 1950 to 1975, and through to today with these little god-awful devices we live inside of all the time. Mm -hmm. And all of it propelled by um, the, this motivating, aggravating <laughs> set of class relationships out of England. 
And on top of that, if we're going to then try to unravel capitalism and try to consider moving in some way to a better set of uh, more agreeable set of social relations for the planet and for people, understanding its roots is exceptionally important. Yeah. And, and you know, taking off from what Alan was just saying, we really have to appreciate that Marx was not defending a, an older social order that was being lost. OK, if you read, I mean, if one reads the manifesto, which admittedly is just a pamphlet, but if one reads the manifesto, to my mind, still the, the, the crucial work, if one wants to understand Marx, Marx's own thinking and, and Engels, but Marx in particular, it's the fact that Marx saw capitalism as the great liberator of humanity. OK, because capitalism in its in its, if you like, its its economic drive and the fact that it would not it, his argument was it wouldn't tolerate it would literally explode all the old ideas that hampered human imagination and human achievement okay but that capitalism itself was a historical mode of exploitation and oppression and it itself had within it the very force the dialectic you might say that would bring an end to capitalism itself. And that was, if you like, the propulsion of the workers seeking to bring an end to their exploitation by capitalism, by capital, by by these capitalists. Okay. Amazing. You know, I actually can say, and I, I think if one looks closely at all that, and this has always been the driving force in my thought, is that really when you got down to it, that it was the the propulsion out of capitalism towards democracy, which came to be defined as socialism because it would, because socialism was itself meant to be the, a, a democratic order in which workers themselves controlled, okay, and were not controlled the means of production, controlled the social order that that developed around them, and they were not subject. To that, to that authority, that exploitation, and that oppression by capitalists. To me, the alternative to capitalism was always the, the drive to democracy. In, fact, in the Communist Manifesto, Marx ends uh, at least one of the major sections of it with a beautiful peroration on the necessity of always supporting democracy as part of what the socialists and communists yeah. are about. I mean, Marx himself, his, his first really political act when he was the editor of, I don't speak German, so I couldn't begin to pronounce the name of the newspaper. But when he was the editor of this newspaper and they were calling for the defense or at least for the recognition of the rights of his, what, Silesian peasants and artisans against probably the Junker class or something along those lines. I mean, I mean, it was rights and liberty and democracy that first motivated Marx. And then he came to see it on a grander scale of, of what kind of political economy prevailed in the imperative of enabling workers to bring an end to, to, to that exploitation. Now, that's a word that social sciences generally don't, don't use, exploitation. It's generally assumed in everyday parlance to mean you take advantage of someone. But it, it has a significant political economic meaning, meaning in Marxist thought. 
Finally, they, this is in this third to last paragraph, Communist Manifesto, finally they labor everywhere for the union, this is communists and socialists, they labor everywhere for the union and agreement of the democratic parties of all countries. Yeah. Let's do this next week. Everybody, is it already 9.30? Yes, it is. <laughs> Everybody go by the British Marxist historians. It's written by Professor Harvey J.K., Let's continue this next week. We'll do chapter three. What is chapter three? I don't have the book in well, front chapter of me. Well, chapter three has to do with feudalism and the peasantry. I'll just give everyone a taste. So even feudalism is something that has been variably defined, okay, and, and, and peasants. And by the way, for what it's worth, the, the, the academic, the tutor, the lecturer, the guy who ran the seminar at the University of London that really led me to question much of what I thought of in terms of history was a guy who asked me to better define Latin American rural workers. Were they workers or were they peasants? By set, he set this as like my winter assignment when I had, in, in England in the winter, you get three weeks off from university. He said, go home answer this question. He said, you know more about Latin America than our British students do, but you're not asking the critical questions. And I went home and worked on this and everything just started to, to click. So it's this question of what, of who the peasantry were, were the peasants a class, did they make any difference in history, that kind of thing. Okay. Next week, chapter three, follow Professor Harvey J.K., on Twitter at Harvey JK, pick up the British Marxist historians. It's published by Zero Books. Alan Minsky is executive director of the wait, Progressive. Wait, time out. Before you dismiss me, sorry. Before you dismiss me, I know you're moving. Um, I just want to tell if anyone is listening to this who is in the greater Green Bay area, whether it's you know even down to towards Central Wisconsin, up in the UP of Michigan. And if they're at all interested, I have Marianne Williamson coming to visit me on Monday and Tuesday, and she's going to speak at UW-Green Bay on Tuesday evening on the question, America, where are we today? Well, why don't we plug that one more time? Okay, so this Tuesday evening at University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, Marianne Williamson at 7 p.m. in the Widener Center, the f one of the halls in the Widener Center, mm -hmm. she will speak on America, where are we today? Okay, and it should be really good. I can tell people that she's one of the most underestimated political and intellectual figures, and, I, and, and I've read her most important political book, and whatever reservations I might have are... <laughs> More importantly, she's to be. We should take her very seriously. Howie Klein loves her, always with, can, with good reason. I, I can, I've, I've known Marion for years. I was always trying to get her to do a show on KPFK, but she was always too busy. Um, and um, I've known her for years. I know this about Marion that if um, the Democrats hold on to the House and they hold on to the Senate, there's probably going to be a cacophony that nobody challenged Joe Biden. My sense is that Marion Williamson will be one person who'll be brave enough to challenge Joe Biden. I and I can I can tell you that I think Alan's definitely on to something there. Absolutely. Very good. Thank you all. And even today, 
I believe she she called for our 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights on Twitter. Hmm. Yep. Thank you, David. Thank you, Alan. Thank Th you, David. Thank you, Professor Harvey J.K. So great. This is why I do the show for this, exactly this. Uh, thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Please support all the guests on this show. Well, Emil Guillermo is a columnist for the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. The January 6th hearings have wrapped up tonight. Here is one of the highlights I know he wants to talk about. This is video, never before seen video, of Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, being told that Donald Trump wants to march with the deplorables to the Capitol. What this is all about. Secret Service said they have dissuaded him from coming to Capitol Hill. They told him they don't have the resources to protect him here. So at the moment, he is not coming, but that could change. I would come, I'm going to punch him out. I oh, I would pay to see that. waiting for this, for trespassing on the Capitol grounds. I'm going to punch him out, and I'm going to go to jail, and I'm going to be happy. And that's what this is all about. Secret Service said they have dissuaded him from coming to Capitol. Joining us uh, is Emil Guillermo. She was my congresswoman for a, a long time. Okay. You want to hear my response to that? Okay, what's your response? Well, my response... Oh, uh my yeah. response is, she says she's going to go to jail. She should see what the jail is like over at the Capitol. She should take a look and see what a COVID cesspool, what an unventilated cesspool that jail is. When, when AOC uh, gets arrested, she doesn't go to jail. They go off underneath a tree. They get their picture taken. They don't go to the jail that the powerless go to. And you're speaking from experience now, right? I may or may not have been inside the Capitol Hill jail. Uh, and, her, I, and, and she was playing to the cameras. I'm going to punch him out. No, you're not. I, I wondered that also. I she wondered actually, how she didn't, I mean, what is that? We're supposed to celebrate toxic masculinity coming from Nancy Pelosi? Well, she's look, been waiting to I, punch him out. But, but the, the important thing is just the juxtaposition between, you know, the, the cutting of the, the look, I think what I, from what I understand, much of this footage was done by her. By her daughter, Alexandra. So A wonderful person. Yes. So what is I'm she saying, the one who's going to take the seat or is it the other one? I, I don't know if that if you know what what the uh, the line of succession is, but all I know. <laughs> oh, that's what it is. Right. Hey, look, all I know, you is, know what is it is. It, I'll tell you what it is. Right. Go ahead. It sickening. Oh. <laughs> look, I. You know, it's too bad, uh, Harvey and uh, and uh, you know your previous guests 
have left because I wanted to join in on the Marianne Williamson Love Fest also because she has saved my life. I, I love Marianne Williamson, and I, I, I saw her a couple weeks ago. And what I learned from her a couple weeks ago, I would like to say unto you as you try to pick apart uh, poor Nancy Pelosi and her, you know. With her $100 million while her husband's well, trading. I'm just saying that what, what I learned from Marianne Williamson is that uh, we need to love everyone. We don't necessarily have to like everyone. And so the way you can be critical and but if we're going to get out of this mire or this threat to our democracy that we're in, we're going to have to get out of it together. And I I just think one of the things that Marianne Williamson said, because I, I think she's going to give a, a version of that speech when she goes see, to see Harvey. We all got to pitch in. We all got to speak our to sing our note, sing our tune. And it's it's going to be this it's going to be this unity, but a kind of cacophonous unity because it's democracy. But we're all going to do it together. And but it starts from this this perspective of love and not from a a tear down. Uh, I don't I resent her. I, you know, look, there are aspects of of. Nancy Pelosi that I didn't like from particular issues that I follow as an Asian American, but I I saw that film today uh, or the bits that they showed during the hearing, and I thought those were the commanders in chief there: uh, Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, uh, Schumer, trying to figure out what the heck's going on, how to get people uh, to to down to the Capitol to pull senators out of the out of the safe areas they were in and to try to make sure the government was running. Meanwhile, you know where the real commander-in-chief was. He was in the White House, you know, admiring the 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 the, the firestorm that he just uh, set off. And I think given that, I, I think you have to show a little, a little bit of respect and I think you, you, you have to thank Nancy Pelosi for for something, you know, for for wanting to move us forward in the way we should be moving as a country. Well, she's better than she's better than anything the Republicans have to offer. I, I know, I know that's thin gruel, but no, it no, no, is. considering the threat this country is under, that says a lot. And I'll, I'll give her credit for something else. Michael Fanone, the Capitol mm. Hill police officer, has a new book out. Describes a meeting with Lindsey Graham. After January 6th. And he said, why don't you just fire your your weapons? Why don't you fire your weapons? The, the reason they didn't fire their weapons was because if he if you follow the Stuart Rhodes trial that's going on, they yeah. were waiting. The insurrectionists were waiting. They had stockpiled Weapons to feed the insurrectionists, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. And all the Capitol Hill police officers had to do was fire their weapons. And it was game on. You, you got to give whoever was in charge that day credit mm. for not discharging their weapons, except for Ashley Babbitt. And look how they've turned her into horse vessel. Yeah. So, uh, well, 
I, it would I have been the, the issue if anybody other, you know, they did kill Ashley Babbitt, but mm-hmm. had they fired their weapons, we'd be holding hearings on the massacre. Did the yeah. police, Capitol Police overreact? And it speaks to the virtue of not necessarily passive resistance. I'm not saying the Capitol Hill police were like Gandhi or or Martin well, Luther King. This wasn't Selma, but in a way it was Selma in a they, different They were country. outnumbered. They were outnumbered. It, it, I think it would have been... I think some of them knew that the, some, you know, that these men, the insurrectionists, were armed. I mean, they they knew what kind of what kind of violence they were capable of. I think, I think it was a choice to to, to hold back until more reinforcements came. Um, I, I just I just think you're right uh, that we would have a totally different situation if they fired. It, it would have been a massacre. We would there would be more death. And we wouldn't be talking about an attempted coup, which January 6th was. We'd be yeah. talking about a bloodbath and how the Democrats, Nancy Pelosi, overreacted. Right, and led the bloodbath, yeah. So I think, you know, I talked about this at the top of the show, mm-hmm. how Enrique Terrio, the head of the Proud Boys, was an FBI asset. He was providing security to Roger Stone yeah. So the FBI, low level, low level apparatchiks inside the FBI and the Secret Service knew what they were up against that day. We will never know the full story. But again, there were dots to be connected. Mm-hmm. The Secret Service was in contact with the Oath Keepers. I'm not saying the Secret Service. Some. Some. Some members of the Secret Service were in contact with the Oath Keepers. Some members of the FBI were handling and monitoring Enrique Terrio, the uh, FBI informant who also runs the Proud Boys. And don't forget the Capitol Cops, a lot of them. I mean, and the Capitol Cops. Marguerite Fanon's, all the articles that he's uh, been interviewed in, he said, look, uh, a lot of us were were for them, with them, and with whom? Well, they were they were on they were politically with the insurrectionists. Absolutely, yeah. And was he? I don't think he was. No, he from wasn't. The, from the things that I, I I've written, I mean, or not I've written, but I, I've written some things about him. But I've read some things like the one that uh, was in you know talked about that day and his kids and. His situation, living with his mother and his, he had, I, my interest in him is that as he's got these Asian American kids, he's kind of diversified, you know, the story for, you know, ethnic journalists who are looking at it from the perspective of, you know, how, how, I mean, everyone, every Asian American, American should be concerned about this, but, you know, Michael Fanone was uh, the father. Yeah. Want to talk about the LA city council racism scandal? Yeah, you know, I think it's unfortunate that that story is sort of being being over overcome by all this other stuff out there. I mean, it's a big story on the West Coast. Tell us what the story is. Well, there was some kind of uh, recording that was made, and it was 
Latino, Hispanic uh, politicos who are on the L.A. City Council. Uh, Gil Cedillo. Uh, De Leon. Uh, De Leon and Nuri Martinez, who is the president of the city council, a female president. She's been and, there. And she was the real, from what I understand, she was the nastiest of the two. Yeah. Well, the Cedillo and De Leon said nothing um, racist, but when in describing situations, look, they're there to discuss redistricting. They're there to discuss how to draw up the lines so that there could be more Hispanic representation on the L.A. City Council at the expense of African-Americans. And and so they were critical of this one standing city councilman who is gay, who has an adopted black child. And they called the black child something an accessory. They called him. Well, first it started off. Somebody said he's an accessory of the way that. The, the congressman just yeah. flaunts him. And then uh, what, what what's the city council president? What's her name again? Uh, Nuri Martinez. Martinez yeah. came up with, uh, said something that got Roseanne fired. Same kind yeah. of area that got Roseanne fired from ABC. Yeah, something, yeah, something indicating a, you know, a, a pejorative toward black people. Right. And then she said a pejorative toward Oaxacan uh, people, indigenous people, uh, in Mexico. And mind you, this is all kind of casual conversation about how to draw up the district lines for the L.A. City Council so that they can get more Hispanic representation. And Nuri Martinez led the way with the, the, the racist talk. Cedillo, who was a former assemblyman in the state, uh, De Leon, who ran for boxer's seat, I believe, um, he's a former assembly leader. Uh, he ran were, for Senate. Yeah, he ran for and, and and this is the way it is in California politics. You you know, they have term limits, so you get termed out of one office and you bounce back and you find some other spot. So you see that um, among the higher echelon politicians, uh, once they got termed out as a legislator, they find a job back home as a city council person or maybe as a state treasurer or as a state, you know, comptroller or whatever. I mean, this is California politics. But for L.A., because it's, a, it's such a large Hispanic population, it's like the way the pecking order in L.A. goes. It's Latino or it's Hispanics, whites or whites, Hispanic then Asian, and then African-Americans. And African-Americans, they were going after cutting out African-Americans for districts. And this is why I think the, the reaction was so strong. The community reaction was so strong because they were going after the power. And Cedillo and De Leon didn't say anything, didn't say boo to Martinez. Martinez was found out she left her position as president last week and she thought that would be enough. Then she said she was just going to be a councilwoman. This week she resigned from the entire council. And now community groups are asking that or demanding that Cedillo and uh, De, De Leon, that they lose their jobs on the city council saying you know, you're representing the people. We don't want any of this racism, you know, in our in our uh, local governments. You guys should be out, too. I don't know if they're going to. Uh, it just depends on how much pressure. 
I mean, it's and amazing it, that she thought giving up being president of the council was good enough, that she thought she could keep her job. As, she thought a, that she had the power, right? I mean, she she was uh, native... Uh, native uh, Angelino, she uh, was representing her area. She was the president. She thought, I'll, I'll give up some power and I'll stay. Wasn't good enough. And then finally, the pressure was on. She had to leave. And now the pressure is on these two other guys. And if that happens, and they're the three key Hispanics who have had such power in the Democratic Party for, for decades statewide and citywide, if they go, that can just change the equation in, I think L.A. is America's biggest city. I think it's bigger than New York. It certainly is. I don't think so. Is it? Is, is New York still bigger? It, it's the biggest city on the West Coast, certainly. And um, and one of the most. I mean, diverse. if you add, I think if you add in the suburbs it's enormous yeah but I, that's I right la proper is not as big as though well, that's one of the problems when you consider uh the, the suburbs because the suburbs of la they have their own city councils their own you know governments and we're talking about hardcore la i know you're a former resident or maybe right. there's still... la county which is i think bigger than the city of la it's kind of cryptic yeah, I mean, this is the thing. I'm a Northern California guy, and I have a uh, I have this chauvinism against L.A. as a Nor Northern California, San Francisco guy. Part of me uh, has that Schadenfreude kind of look at oh, this is what's happening in L.A. But from I got an news Asian for you, I got news for you. Yeah. L.A. doesn't care what San Francisco thinks of it. Look, I understand that. I understand that. But, you know, this is... The, I, w this I moved from San Francisco to L.A. They don't care. They're not impressed by San Francisco. Believe me, I know that. I, I only mention it because as a native San Franciscan, this is the way people in Northern California think. They think, okay... They think the state is already divided, Sanford, you know, between NorCal and SoCal. And what happens down in Southern California is sort of like, eh, you know, interesting. But when you start looking at the entire state, uh, you got to consider L.A. And frankly, um, over the last 10 years, I become become more more for L.A. friendly. I mean, L.A. LA is, is a way more inclusive city, despite yeah. show business. Yeah, it, it is a more inclusive city politically than San Francisco. You, well, San Francisco, you, yeah, San you wouldn't get a Pelosi dynasty down in in Los Angeles. Well, look, this you is have Brahmin, you have Brahmins in yeah. San yeah, Francisco who own yeah. who own that town, and everybody else is just passing through. Everybody else is visitors. There's no American dream. In San well, Francisco. this is David. You're, you're right in a sense. It's San Francisco, from tradition, right? From Philip Burton when he ran Congress, that Burton machine, the Democratic machine, and you can see its its legacy. Uh, you know, Feinstein, Newsom, they're all part of that Democratic machine. Willie Brown, right? That that that's San Francisco. L.A. is a different thing, and th when you consider. The city council with Martinez, Cedillo, and with De Leon, they were trying to form. This was an Hispanic machine. They're they're trying to use the redistricting um, lines, and 
and because of what they were doing, the attorney general of the state, who is a Filipino American, this guy, Rob Bonta, who I've talked about, uh, he and he's done a lot of things that's getting attention, like he's going after um, the fentanyl drug dealers. He's going after drug dealers. He's he's for preserving the the uh, uh, the assault weapons ban in California. Rob Bonta says he's going to look into what was going on in that, you know, recorded in, in that meeting that was being held. And he's trying to see if there were any laws broken and he's going to look into the redistricting process. So this isn't over. But as I said, from as an Asian American, what's interesting to me as blacks have lost some standing in in Southern California, just population wise, Asians have risen, it's become more diverse. And the big threat to Hispanics have been the Asian population. Koreans, uh, Chinese, uh, to a degree Filipino, although Filipinos are in some of their own little suburbs uh, there. And so I, I saw, I'm, I'm privy to a lot, of, a lot of things from Asian American groups in L.A. And the AAPI Victory, uh, uh, I think it's AAPI Victory Fund, maybe not the fund, but the, the group, uh, they have called for the resignation of Cedillo and the resignation of De Leon to make it a clean sweep of everyone who is involved in, the, in, that, in that recording. And so we'll see what kind of fight De Leon and Cedillo put up. But it'll show either the might of Asian Americans in this new racial equation or the coalition between Asians and Blacks against Latinos, against the Hispanics. And we'll show that some Hispanics, the older guard that was trying to create some kind of, you know, maybe a, an Hispanic machine, maybe they've lost a step and some younger folks are coming in to replace them. So interesting in terms of diversity politics in the most diverse state in the union, California, the largest city of course, in California, L.A., which is why, you know, even though I'm a San Franciscan, I pay attention to L.A. It's important. Let's talk about DACA. What is DACA? A deferred action for childhood arrivals. You know, the the yeah. the, the Fifth Circuit Court last week said uh, it's illegal. They kicked it back to Texas. Uh, it was this is an executive panel. order under the Obama administration. Right. An executive order under under Obama administration 2010, I believe, it came out. And and so it's been up for, you know, since it, was the, it, Are you sure? I thought it was 2013. Is it 2013? I, I think it's, I think 2012 and 20, it, it was, it's been up for about 10 he, years. He couldn't pass legislation. Yeah. So he issued an ex- executive order giving a, a, a pathway to citizenship to children who weren't born in America, who were brought here at an early age by right. their parents. Through no fault of their own. Now, get this. You, when when uh, Obama did that executive order, he also did, he did had DACA and he had a thing called DAPA, which is deferred action of parents of, you know, and so it, it was the whole family that was taken care of. But then that didn't fly, and they had to get rid of DAPA, and now it's just DACA, and DACA's been kicked around like this political football. 
and it continues to be kicked around by various states in the court level. The, the Supreme Court uh, ruled on a Texas case, but it was more on a procedural thing. They kicked it back to Texas, and then uh, Texas, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they kept fighting legally, went to the Fifth Circuit, and now the Fifth Circuit says it's illegal. I talked to activists, and they told me that if you're a DACA recipient, and there's something like, what, 600 600,000 DACA recipients, I mean, the, the, the number um, uh, is, is huge. Uh, the, the, suggest, or the, the advice is, you know, there's time. Uh, don't sweat this if you're, if you're covered. Uh, it's no way to live. It's torture. It's no my, way, my, no, it's my no children, way to live. My children saw yeah. suicide because Oh, yeah. This. It's, it's you're a non-person. You can't make plans. Everyone it's, it's, around you, you're a non-person in America. But but you you get to work. You and you get to, you know. I tell people who I know who are DACA recipients that you get to work. You are legal enough to work and pay taxes and to show that you are a good citizen and show that you care. All right, I know that doesn't cut it enough with some people. But you've got to do your best to go out there and get people who know you and love you to register and vote because the only way you're going to solve anything on, an, on the immigration front is to have a Congress that is ready to act on immigration in a comprehensive way. Yep. And this is why October is a key date because in 1965, Hart-Seller Act, the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965, you know, it was passed and it was bipartisan. It was huge. It changed America. Changed changed restaurants forever. Changed, but look, look just from, from a Filipino perspective, Filipinos were held down to less than a, you know, a few hundred immigrants every year. And then 1965, and it went up to 20,000. And that's, that was the way it is. That, that's the way it was with uh, other Asian groups. You, do not, you did not have or you do not have an Asian America without the 65 Immigration Act. So I mean, look at old pictures of, of the signing of that 65 Immigration Act uh, with the Statue of Liberty. And look at the, the kind of bipartisanship that existed. You can't get that kind of bipartisanship in Congress on anything. You know, not even for naming of a post office, not today. But we need to get people to vote. If you, I tell DACA recipients, if, if you know people who aren't registered, get them to register, get them to vote, because the only way that this will change is if Congress has the, the balls to, to address immigration and overhaul it. And this is not the time to beat up on the Democrats. I did a little... But there'll be plenty of time to beat up on the Democrats. But right can now, I, right now, we have to keep the House. Can I beat up on Joe Biden for a second, though? Jill or Joe? J Joe. Uh -oh. Because there was, a court case. Go ahead. there was a well, there was a court case before the Supreme Court. It was on California's Prop 12, which was the animal cruelty uh, law. And Joe Biden, it it's really pits the pork producers against people who want who prefer their meat moral. They want the pigs in larger cages. They want the pigs treated treated humanely. And Joe Biden sides with the pork producers. 
So, all right, that's my beef with Joe Biden. It's on pork because he's with the pork producers. But this is an important case, the the Prop 12 case that the Supreme Court heard, because it could affect more than just pork. And this is a law that Californians passed. And the pork producers say, look, we can't we can't abide by this law in California. It's going to bankrupt us. And that's why the corporatists have come on and they're, they're suing and they, they brought this case to the Supreme Court. It's got to be defeated in terms of, I mean, it's got the California's Prop 12 has to be upheld just from the standpoint of what it means for uh, for the for the animals. But Katanji Brown Jackson, I want to bring it up because she had a good line here. She says, couldn't the pork producers in California just segregate the pork? Because most of the pork produced in California, it's a, it's an it's a very small amount. Most comes from the Midwest and the South and they bring it in. And she said, wouldn't it be nice if we just labeled all the bad pork as this pork produced immorally in the Midwest or produced immorally in the Carolinas, which I thought was her a nice way of her saying that California's law was good and that the pork producers should just live with it. And we'll see what happens. They had the hearing uh, this week. I hope uh, that California's Prop 12 is upheld and not seen as unconstitutional because that's what it is. They're saying that it's unconstitutional to be kind and compassionate to pigs, to right. piglets. I'll end with pig for love tonight. Pig, pig for love. Hey, hey I, but, yeah. uh, so you had mentioned a fast food Chinese restaurant that is serving orange chicken using Beyond Meat. Yeah, yeah, yes. I did. Guess what I ate? I got really hungry right at your usual spot at 7.30. Yeah. And I, yeah. I I was having, like, I couldn't stand it. And I just went on Seamless and ordered from that restaurant. And? Was it good? Yeah. <laughs> and my son had it last night. And it was good. Well, at least it's it's beyond, right? I mean, I mean, in terms of something decadent that you want to get at a fast food restaurant that right. feels kind of plasticky and sweet and sour and salty and yeah, gives yeah. you all the stuff that is feels decadent. It, it yeah. to me, it checked all the boxes. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad I. I'm actually going, going back on my uh, f- uh, more fruit and veggies, and I'm, I'm really cutting back on fake meat. Uh, the only fake meat I use is a kind of a uh, yeah. a soy-based curl they make. This There's this family. It's in not satisfying. The problem with the fake meat is it ju- it fills you up temporarily, and then you're hungry again. No, no that's not the problem. The, the real problem is the amount of fat. Right. That's in fake meat. You're not. I mean, you might, uh, you know, eliminate cruelty from from your diet, but the fat remains. The fat right. from right. from eating. Farrow. Uh, Leslie makes farrow and beans. And, oh yeah. And beans. I, every time I, I bite into these beans, it's a different taste. You mix up. I love the I love those beans that you're talking. You know, I bought some of those beans you were talking about. In They're the amazing, show. and they each yeah, one I, I, tastes different. And then you throw in a carrot, and 
it explodes in your mouth. And it's yeah, a complete, you know, we have to wrap right. it up, though. We have to wrap it okay. up. Okay. Um, all right. So, David, you know, I'm in this play. And yes. that's why I was late. It's a theater for the new city.net. It's called The Conductor. And if you want to know how California politics works and the, uh, the recall election of the school board members, and uh, it's written by Ishmael Reed, who's a, he's a, he's a MacArthur genius. Uh, by the way, did you get one of those grants this week? Were you one of the 25? They, oh, I didn't get it? No, yeah. I, 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 I like the MacArthur. I, I like the MacArthur Genius Grants because you don't have to apply for them. So they cut out the bureaucracy. It just comes at you? They they just give you 800000 over five years, you know, if you're... Genius. I held out for more. I, I thought... I, I, maybe- they called me and they said, we want to give you 800000 I said, really? You're not going to round it up to a million? I, what kind of yeah. sick... Who's getting the 200000 I, I don't see. I think somebody's it's get, somebody. I guarantee you, yeah. somebody, some bureaucrat over at the MacArthur Genius Grant shop factory. I think it's a factory. It's a fa- they keep the two hundred thousand. They must dude, for with overhead. inflation. They can't make it a million. I, how, how much money did MacArthur it, have when it, it he, puzzles me? Now, is this the same MacArthur who like fell into the ocean when he went back to Leyte, the Leyte landing in World War II? Because I think I disqualify myself for making fun of General MacArthur when he fell into the soup in the Leyte yeah, landing. Yeah. No history, history folks. I shall return again. He and he he did it twice. Once for yeah. the camera, right? Bad, I think he, bad guy MacArthur. I, I, yeah, I'm not. I'm not crazy about MacArthur. Not, not crazy about MacArthur. No. Anyway, David, uh, so nice to see you. Nice to and see you. I, I mean this. I, Marianne Williamson saved my life. She said, "I, I look." She told me. She said, "Next time." Well, she didn't really tell me directly, but she said, "Next time you look at David Feldman's face on the Zoom, see love, see love." Some you you know what? That's what she says. Yeah, uh, there are. Some bad people out there. I believe in unconditional love, mm-hmm. and I believe in forgiveness, but I don't believe in being a a patsy or a scapegoat. Well, and I think there are some really bad, bad people who manipulate the willing into doing bad things. There, I don't have to tolerate. The intolerant. I don't have to win them over. I have to protect myself from them and make sure they're powerless and yeah. remain so. Well, this is, uh, I'm not saying any of this is easy. I'm just saying that, like I, like I said, her, 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 her line is, hey, uh, you know, you can love someone, but you don't have to like them. You can love them. Yeah. Or how about you just ignore them? At no, best. you can't ignore them. They're there. They're there. Then lock They're... them up. Well, you know, you can't. Uh, you can't well, lock yeah, we can lock them up. We we somehow we found uh, cells for two point five million Americans, and well, most yeah. of them don't. Most of them never had a trial. They don't well, belong there. But there are two point five million Americans deserving of those jail cells. Yeah. Well, I think what New York Review of Books just came out with something. Um, just presenting the debate. Maybe we should abolish all prisons, which may not be no, a bad idea. No. Well, it may not be a bad idea if you replace them with something that might do something that might do some good. There are real crimes being committed. 
I, I like know. Like the but... Sackler family. Oh, yeah. Well, definitely. Corporate executives who pollute. There are the plenty Sacklers of people. The dr- there are plenty the of people. T- yeah. Trust me. 2.5 million. We're, I'm being generous. The, the Sacklers we, are the biggest, the biggest drug dealers in America. There are 2.5 million criminals who belong behind bars. We're just not locking them up. Well, we just allow them to go to their penthouses at night. Yes. yes. David. So, so I love nice you, Emil. Nice to see you. And, and I, I love you even at this late, at this late time. I, 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 We're going to wrap it up. Okay. Read Emil over at ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Listen to the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. If you're a dog breeder, yeah, you you don't think dog breeders? We got to teach. Should we love dog breeders? Well, no, we have to love them so we can teach them new things. Suppose uh, they can't be learned any new tricks. Suppose well, you can't I, learn them anything. We have to like sort of like redirect them into using their uh, their. I mean, it's an overpopulation problem. You know, maybe we can get them into spaying and neutering. Maybe you know, we should can, spay and neuter dog breeders. Well, that wouldn't have been that wouldn't be a bad idea. But you know, it is America. I, I'm not so sure on this love thing. Uh, love, uh, it's the beginning. It, it doesn't. It doesn't take away the hard work you have to do after love, but at least it gets you upright. I'm supposed you can, to love maybe, Steve Bannon. Uh, this is the difficulty. Rob right? Reiner. Am I supposed to love Rob Reiner? You know what the Christians would say, right? Uh, love, hate the sin, love the sinner, or you, you know, is that is that the cliche? I I, I hate the sin and the sinner. Well, I think you have to union busters, Jeff Bezos. I'm supposed to love Jeff Bezos. Mm, okay, all right. Now, look, I, I, I've got to take a few more, uh, a few more lessons with Marianne Williamson. Then, clearly, I would anybody who could tell me, convince me to love Jeff Bezos and not wish ill upon him. By the way, I have a service that I want to sell. What's that? I, I am going to charge $500 an hour for me to root against you. And, really? and you will have riches beyond your wildest <laughs> imagination. For $500, I, I was talking to a friend. Once again, somebody who I'm rooting against in show business is having yeah. massive success. Mm-hmm. And I thought, anybody I root against... It's an e-ticket to the ride of your life. They just do. Where do I venue the money, Dave? Five hundred bucks. I'll spend an hour. Yeah. Just praying that you fail, that your career goes down the tubes, and you will have you will have everything you want. Everything. Venmo forthcoming. I, give me five hundred dollars. That's what I charge per hour to root against you. Uh, I can root against your love life. Yeah, I can root against your financial situation. I can root against your health. It, it, Trust me, 
for five hundred dollars, you'll an hour. How an about hour. two fifty? Two. You would you would need more than a half hour with me. Two fifty. No, I need the full. No. Oh, the full. Okay. No, right. I don't pull this MacArthur Genius Grant bullshit where you give eight hundred. How could they can't round it up to a million? This is they why left. I said no to them. It's you know they. It, it actually is a lot more. It was a lot more than it used to be. It used to be something like 600-something, 600 600,000. And when Ishmael Reed won, it was only like 300,000. So I, I didn't even bother to apply this. You year. know what? I'd love to know what they right. do with the money. Uh, some people, you know, it's not that much. I mean, it's not like you get it in one big chunk where you can, like, mess around with it. They, they like, dole it out so that it's a little better than working in a McDonald's. So you're being paid to be a genius. Yeah, pretty much. They, 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 I, they, did, they, I could do that. I'd like that gig. They don't let Somebody, oh, you, you have to go to cocktail parties and they write you up and you have alum, alumni gatherings, I guess. But, I mean, there's like, uh, you know, professors and artists and people just do weird stuff that, you know, that they say, oh, this guy's never going to make any money. So I guess do, do you if, have to take a genius test? Do they test your IQ? No, this is the best thing so about it's bullshit. It. If they this, can't no, prove this, to me the person's a genius, this is the best thing about this. You don't apply; it just falls into your lap, and someone calls you and says, "Hey, you just won." It, it's like that old show, The Millionaire. Yeah, and, and I like that. No paperwork. You don't have to fill out. You don't have to, like, make sure you sent it to the right place. It just comes to you. That's why it's a genius grant, because, you know, no paperwork. That's what, that's that's a genius in it. Yeah. Anyway, but I, not not again. Not this year. Didn't get it. You didn't get it. So I didn't get it. I didn't get a Pulitzer. I didn't oh. get the Nobel in science this year. No, not, not I even. I can't catch a break. Ah, you're rooting against yourself. No, you got to root, root against yourself. That that's I, I already do that, by the way. Oh, yeah, send $500 yeah. to yourself. Okay. Anyway. Thank you, Emil. Thank you, David. Bye. Bye. Give my best. Yes. Same here. Bye. Dave and PA will wrap it up with you. I don't think Rodrigo has his hand raised. Oh, Florida man. I saw those pictures. Hey, Florida Whoa. man. Hey, what's going on, David, man? Those pictures were amazing. Yeah, it's crazy stuff, man. It's 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 still not over down here, that's for sure, man. Really? Yeah, I, I was just reevaluating the damage I'm in my cupboard. Most of my hurricane snacks were completely destroyed. Oh, that's sad. But yeah. that's sad. But no, seriously, my hometown of Sanford, it's it's having some serious flooding problems right now. It kind of Sanford sits on the St. John's River, you know, where the it flows north. So, you know, we gotta put a rain, that's no problem, but you know, down south, they got anywhere from two to five foot of rain, and it, the river flows north. Everything down south flows into that river, and then it flows north till it, you know, drains out into the ocean up in Jacksonville. So all the towns along the river are just crazy flooded. I've never seen nothing like it before. It's, you could fish from the courthouse in Sanford right now. It's like, really? My hometown looks like the final episode of Gilligan's Island. It's kind of crazy. And experts are saying it's uh, not expected to get back to normal levels until, you know, well after Thanksgiving. So. And people so are suffering. People, yeah, a lot of people are dealing with some crazy stuff. And I'm lucky because I'm just on the other side of the river on the hillside. So it's kind of you know, avoiding a lot of those trouble. But people like in the downtown Sanford area and along the lakefront, you know, some of those pictures that, that, that was property that was available. There used to be fields and 
just looks like late. <laughs> well, crazy. But, you know. And is it, 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 politics aside, is DeSantis up to the job? Uh, I don't I actually. You know, I mean, him and you know Biden were playing nice when they were here, as you would expect. But uh, the county just east of Seminole County has the worst flooding even worse than Sanford and it's Brevard County and they haven't been declared a disaster area. So I know, you know, Biden said he would, you know, give everything that, that DeSantis asked for. So I don't know if DeSantis has asked for that county. There's a lot of people that are complaining that they're not getting help and FEMA saying, well, you're not included. And I don't know if it was no oversight by who, but and, I know and Biden. What, what are those counties? What, what, are, who uh, are the, who are the voters there? Uh, Brevard County. That's, um, that encompasses the space center and uh, NASA and all that too. So, I mean, that's, you would think with that kind of brass over there, that that wouldn't have been an oversight. You know, it's and a lot of those, you know, you know, hard to say, I don't, you know, I want to speculate, but it, you know, I'm thinking they must have missed something. The Santos might have missed something. Hmm. But flooding's crazy, you know, and the other one knows about all of the reptiles on the run. But uh, have you ever heard of uh, fire ant balls? Fire ant balls. I'm not talking about the condition you woke up with at Tijuana. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, these freaking fire ants we have here, not only, I mean, they're amazing. I mean, not only individually can they carry up to 20 times their weight, but in this situation where all their mounds are all flooded out, they all cling together in a giant floating, rotating ball. It's, mm. you know, anywhere from softball to basketball size, and they, uh, they, they rotate and innately you know to distribute air to each and every one of the ants and maintain survival that way it's, it's kind of wild and but, grotesque i didn't i thought you were making a joke it sounds grotesque no it's serious actually it's, it's kind of crazy you know that that's you know so innately they do it they just kind of clean together and they rotate in the water and enough to where they can all get oxygen and maintain themselves until they find something to cling to you know so it's kind of wild but we got some informative people i credit our local weatherman with keeping everybody you know posted with good information I think he's full-blooded American Indian. They call him Chief Meteorologist. <laughs> Chief Meteorologist. Yeah, he's a good guy. But there, there are animals everywhere. I wasn't going to bring it up earlier. I didn't want to seem like a glory hound. But uh, yesterday I was on the road driving down the road, and this there's a huge turtle in the road. I mean, he must have been you know, a couple feet long, a foot and a half wide or so. And I knew there was traffic coming behind me, so I just did a real quick U-turn and you know used my truck to block the road, put my hazards on and get him. Picked him up and gave him about a you know ten yard run into the, the woods, get him out away from the traffic and stuff. And I learned a few choice words, but it was worth it. You know, well, I wasn't sweet. gonna stop at first because at first I thought it was Mitch McConnell trying to get out of his own way, but it turned out it was a real turtle. So well, that's sweet. That's a sweet story. You sent me a picture of water, uh, you know, glass sliding doors sealed shut. It looked like an aquarium. Yeah, it's kind of like being on the outside of the room. Where'd you find that picture? Ah, there's man, it's that's just one of bunches of them. There's just so many, so many crazy pictures and images coming in right where now. Where are the Where are the gators? Why? I mean, I, I would think what happened. To all the, I, I'd be terrified. Yeah, oh, they're everywhere. It's like snakes and gators. They, they can be just about anywhere right now because, like I said, the rivers. This isn't just the, the river. I mean, the the water level is rose to the level of the river underneath the ground too. So I mean, it's like. You walk out in your yard, it's like walking on a waterbed. It, it's a, it's an odd feeling, man. It's kind of crazy. But, wow. It's, but, hey, David, can I ask you a question, man? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, you trim your armpit hair? Can I what? Do you trim your armpit hair? Do I trim my armpit hair? Yeah, man. I'm in 
lately I look in the mirror and it looks like I got Gabe Kaplan in a headlock. <laughs> I'm just, I don't know how to address that. You know, I'm not sure what the right thing is to do there. Gabe Kaplan. Yeah, I hadn't I got a Gabe, good Gabe Kaplan reference in a long time, huh? Yeah. Hey, did I tell you last night I went line dancing? No. I mean, I found out this morning there was a roadside sobriety test, but, you know, <laughs> I must have passed. I woke up at home. <laughs> I didn't want to go to jail, man. I'm, I'm terrified from the description. You and Robert Smigel, you'll brief your parents in jail, you know. I'll never forget what that big dude told you. It's, I mean, some big dude whispered my ear as I was being booked that after tonight, there's only going to be seven planets because I'm going to destroy Uranus. Yes, I remember that very well. I was just surprised he had the correct count of planets, man. I mean, after the, you know, downgraded Pluto and all, he was, yeah. he was up on it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, David, if you got time, man, I got five stories ripped from the headlines of the Sunshine State. If uh, you want to try to figure out which one of the five Why don't we do this? Because it's 1130. Yeah, I know it's getting late. Why don't we do it? Uh, can we do it on Monday show? Yeah, no problem at all, brother. That'll be no that'll problem. be a lot of fun. Hey, also, before I get going, uh, before I leave, I got to tell you, I got to inform you that last week... Uh, the entire undefeated 1988 Super Bowl University football team was inducted into the Hall of Fame that I was a small part of. So, but you now played football? Address, yeah, in college I was addressed. I was lucky to be a small part of a undefeated football team in college. So, now, like I said, I wasn't a big part of it. I was a small part of it, but well, technically I'm in the Hall of Fame. So, hang on for one second. What, what, what position did you play, and what was the name of the team? Uh, defensive tackle out in uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. You know, wow, kind of crazy, but. And you're in the so Hall of Fame? In the Hall of Fame now. So from now in on, South like Dakota? South Dakota. Well, you know, Mike Steinell just got into the Hall of Fame in South I Dakota. I know. It's kind of wild. The same week he was telling you about it, it was like the same week that they inducted us, too. So it's kind of kind of ironic there. But. We so should... from now on, I'd like to address me as a Hall of Fame Florida man. Okay. Hall of Fame Florida <laughs> man. Do you, do you have like a plaque? Yeah, it's, it's a plaque. Uh, it looks more good. On Monday's show, uh -huh. when Mike is on, Professor Mike Steinel will compare your Hall of Fame plaques. Oh, you don't want to do that. Uh, Sioux Falls doesn't know where their money is. But no, that's <laughs> Hall great. Hall of Fame plaque uh, looks more like a coaster, maybe. But no. That's great. No, that's cool, man. It's not Congratulations. So I got to give you know shout out to my fellow. Uh, yeah. Out there, three of us from Sanford, you know, Bernard Burke and Nick Castiello, my fellow uh Boys from Bokey went out there with me, and the three Florida boys went out there and managed the frozen tundra. And, yeah. But I try not to admit to too many people that I played football. I only pick the what, and what position did you play? I played defensive tackle back then. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was a big dude that didn't want to be on a diet. So, And uh, do you still watch it? Uh, I watch college football, but I don't watch pro football really too much. You know? Wow. People Got here, it. very interesting. Thank you, Benji. Hey, no problem, man. I'll see you Monday, brother. Okay, thank you. I'll see you uh, office hours. You got it, man. Take it easy, brother. Thank you. I guess that's our show. Uh, no, Rodrigo? Okay. Uh, it's, yeah, it, it's getting late. Thank you to everybody. We had a great show today. Thank you to Grace Jackson. Thank you to Lane, uh, who plays the part of Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling. Thank you to Professor Ben Burgess. Ethan Hershenfeld, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, Quizmaster Dan Frankenberger, and the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Ann Lee, Professor Jonathan Bick, 
Professor Adnan Hussein. Thank you to Joe in Norway, Dave in PA, Alan Minsky, Professor Harvey J.K., and of course, Emil Guillermo. Today's show was produced by Dan Frankenberger. Nothing gets done here without Dan Frankenberger, along with Rodrigo. Rodrigo's now helping us get this show produced. So thank you to Rodrigo. Great job. Professor Jonathan Bick, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, The Invisible Ninja. I mentioned Grace Jackson already. And Joe in Norway. Thank you all. You do a great job. And we have two chat rooms going, one in our virtual studio audience on Zoom. The other one is on YouTube. And today's mods are Autumn Leaves, Midi Doctor, Bob Carmody, M. Toussaint, Choking on Ashes, Lexi444, S. Scout is Taken, Dent F., Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, and The Invisible Ninja. Office Hours starts at 8 p.m. Friday night. I will not do the opening slot. This may be the first time I'm not doing the opening slot. You know who's doing it? Liam McEnany and Colleen Worthman. It's going to be fun, so come by. If you'd like to join us for Office Hours, go to my website and hit Office Hours. It'll take you right in. The link is there. You don't need to do anything other than go to my website, hit the Office Hours menu, and it just takes you straight in. You just need Zoom or a phone. You can also phone in. While you're over at my website, please sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday at exactly 6 p.m. It's a great newsletter. And it includes the link to Office Hours. That covers everything. Happy birthday to Nadine, who turned 100 today. 100 years. There's good news out there. There's a lot of good news out there. You just have to look for it, like Nadine turning 100. Congratulations, Nadine. I am, uh, let me see, we're going to end with some, what are we going to do? We're going to end with some Mike Steinel, I hope. Yeah, I'm David Feldman, reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. I really like to read I'm traveling light I'm a creature of the road Got no regrets Gave up my postal code And cigarettes I'm doing much better With a touch of Tourette's I'm traveling light
Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. I got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket I get a chill, I'm traveling light. Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender. A 50 tequila in case I go on a bender. My attorney's number in case I want to change my gender, I'm traveling light. Expensive wrinkle cream, my Emmy statue for my self esteem. I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree. I like to keep my options open, don't you know? A shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book. Large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in LA, and my enemies list. Don't forget about my enemies list.